Part Two, Chapter Nine of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Nine, A Lost Continent. The next morning, February nineteen, I beheld the Canadian entering my stateroom. I was expecting this visit. He wore an expression of great disappointment. "'Well, sir,' he said to me. "'Well, Ned, the fates were against us yesterday.' "'Yes, that damned captain had to call a halt just as we were going to escape from his boat.' "'Yes, Ned, he had business with his bankers.' "'His bankers?' "'Or rather, his bank vaults.' by which I mean this ocean, where his wealth is safer than in any national treasury. I then related the evening's incidents to the Canadian, secretly hoping he would come around to the idea of not deserting the captain, but my narrative had no result other than Ned's voicing deep regret that he hadn't strolled across the Vigo battlefield on his own behalf. "'Anyhow,' he said, "'it's not over yet. My first harpoon missed, that's all.' We'll succeed the next time, and as soon as this evening, if need be. What's the Nautilus's heading? I asked. I've no idea, Ned replied. All right, at noon we'll find out what our position is. The Canadian returned to Conseil's side. As soon as I was dressed, I went into the lounge. The compass wasn't encouraging. The Nautilus's course was south-southwest. We were turning our backs on Europe. I could hardly wait until our position was reported on the chart. Near 11.30, the ballast tanks emptied, and the submersible rose to the surface of the ocean. I leaped onto the platform. Ned Land was already there. No more shore in sight. Nothing but the immenseness of the sea. A few sails were on the horizon, no doubt ships going as far as Cape Sauroque to find favorable winds for doubling the Cape of Good Hope. The sky was overcast. A squall was on the way. Furious, Ned Land tried to see through the mists on the horizon. He still hoped that behind all that fog there lay those shores he longed for. At noon, the sun made a momentary appearance. Taking advantage of this rift in the clouds, the chief officer took the orb's altitude. Then the sea grew turbulent. We went below again, and the hatch closed once more. When I consulted the chart an hour later, I saw that the Nautilus's position was marked at longitude 16 degrees 17 minutes and latitude 32 degrees 22 minutes, a good 150 leagues from the nearest coast. It wouldn't do to even dream of escaping, and I'll let the reader decide how promptly the Canadian threw a tantrum when I ventured to tell him our situation. As for me, I wasn't exactly grief-stricken. I felt as if a heavy weight had been lifted from me, and I was able to resume my regular tasks in a state of comparative calm. Near eleven o'clock in the evening, I received a most unexpected visit from Captain Nemo. He asked me very graciously if I felt exhausted from our vigil the night before. I said no. Then, Professor Aronnax, I propose an unusual excursion. Propose away, Captain. So far, you've visited the ocean depths only by day and under sunlight. 
would you like to see these depths on a dark night very much i warn you this will be an exhausting stroll we'll need to walk long hours and scale a mountain the roads aren't terribly well kept up everything you say captain just increases my curiosity i'm ready to go with you then come along professor and we'll go put on our diving suits arriving at the wardrobe i saw that neither my companions nor any crewmen would be coming with us on this excursion captain nemo hadn't even suggested my fetching ned or conseil in a few moments we had put on our equipment air tanks abundantly charged were placed on our backs but the electric lamps were not in readiness i commented on this to the captain they'll be useless to us he replied i thought i hadn't heard him right but i couldn't repeat my comment because the captain's head had already disappeared into its metal covering i finished harnessing myself i felt an alpenstock being placed in my hand and a few minutes later after the usual procedures we set foot on the floor of the atlantic three hundred meters down midnight was approaching the waters were profoundly dark but captain nemo pointed to a reddish spot in the distance a sort of wide glow shimmering about two miles from the nautilus what this fire was what substances fed it how and why it kept burning in the liquid mass i couldn't say anyhow it lit our way although hazily but i soon grew accustomed to this unique gloom and in these circumstances i understood the uselessness of the rumkorf device side by side captain nemo and i walked directly toward this conspicuous flame the level seafloor rose imperceptibly we took long strides helped by our alpenstocks but in general our progress was slow because our feet kept sinking into a kind of slimy mud mixed with seaweed and assorted flat stones as we moved forward i heard a kind of pitter-patter above my head sometimes this noise increased and became a continuous crackle i soon realized the cause it was a heavy rainfall rattling on the surface of the waves instinctively i worried that i might get soaked by water in the midst of water i couldn't help smiling at this outlandish notion but to tell the truth wearing these heavy diving suits you no longer feel the liquid element you simply think you're in the midst of air a little denser than air on land that's all after half an hour of walking the seafloor grew rocky jellyfish microscopic crustaceans and sea pen coral lit it faintly with their phosphorescent glimmers i glimpsed piles of stones covered by a couple million zoophytes and tangles of algae my feet often slipped on this viscous seaweed carpet and without my alpenstock i would have fallen more than once when i turned around i could still see the nautilus's whitish beacon which was starting to grow pale in the distance those piles of stones just mentioned were laid out on the ocean floor with a distinct but inexplicable symmetry i spotted gigantic furrows trailing off into the distant darkness their length incalculable there also were other peculiarities i couldn't make sense of it seemed to me that my heavy lead soles were crushing a litter of bones that made a dry crackling noise so what were these vast plains we were now crossing 
i wanted to ask the captain, but i still didn't grasp that sign language that allowed him to chat with his companions when they went with him on underwater excursions meanwhile the reddish light guiding us had expanded and inflamed the horizon the presence of this furnace under the waters had me extremely puzzled was it some sort of electrical discharge was i approaching some natural phenomenon still unknown to scientists on shore or rather and this thought did cross my mind had the hand of man intervened in that blaze had human beings fanned those flames in these deep strata would i meet up with more of captain nemo's companions friends he was about to visit who led lives as strange as his own would i find a whole colony of exiles down here men tired of the world's woes men who had sought and found independence in the ocean's lower depths all these insane inadmissible ideas dogged me and in this frame of mind continually excited by the series of wonders passing before my eyes i wouldn't have been surprised to find on this sea bottom one of those underwater towns captain nemo dreamed about in the midst of the stone mazes furrowing the atlantic seafloor captain nemo moved forward without hesitation he knew this dark path no doubt he had often traveled it and was incapable of losing his way i followed him with unshakable confidence he seemed like some spirit of the sea and as he walked ahead of me i marveled at his tall figure which stood out in black against the glowing background of the horizon it was one o'clock in the morning we arrived at the mountains lower gradients but in grappling with them we had to venture up difficult trails through a huge thicket yes a thicket of dead trees trees without leaves without sap turned to stone by the action of the waters and crowned here and there by gigantic pines it was like a still erect coal field its roots clutching broken soil its boughs clearly outlined against the ceiling of the waters like thin black paper cutouts picture a forest clinging to the sides of a peak in the harz mountains but a submerged forest the trails were cluttered with algae and fucus plants hosts of crustaceans swarming among them i plunged on scaling rocks straddling fallen tree trunks snapping marine creatures that swayed from one tree to another startling the fish that flitted from branch to branch carried away i didn't feel exhausted any more i followed a guide who was immune to exhaustion what a sight how can i describe it how can i portray these woods and rocks in this liquid setting their lower parts dark and sullen their upper parts tinted red in this light whose intensity was doubled by the reflecting power of the waters we scaled rocks that crumbled behind us collapsing in enormous sections with the hollow rumble of an avalanche to our right and left there were carved gloomy galleries where the eye lost its way huge glades opened up seemingly cleared by the hand of man and i sometimes wondered whether some residents of these underwater regions would suddenly appear before me but captain nemo kept climbing i didn't want to fall behind i followed him boldly my alpenstock was a great help 
one wrong step would have been disastrous on the narrow paths cut into the sides of these chasms but i walked along with a firm tread and without the slightest feeling of dizziness sometimes i leaped over a crevasse whose depth would have made me recoil had i been in the midst of glaciers on shore sometimes i ventured out on a wobbling tree trunk fallen across a gorge without looking down having eyes only for marveling at the wild scenery of this region there leaning on erratically cut foundations monumental rocks seemed to defy the laws of balance from between their stony knees trees sprang up like jets under fearsome pressure supporting other trees that supported them in turn next natural towers with wide steeply carved battlements leaned at angles that on dry land the laws of gravity would never have authorized and i too could feel the difference created by the water's powerful density despite my heavy clothing copper headpiece and metal soles i climbed the most impossibly steep gradients with all the nimbleness i swear it of a chamois or a pyrenees mountain goat as for my account of this excursion under the waters i'm well aware that it sounds incredible i'm the chronicler of deeds seemingly impossible and yet incontestably real this was no fantasy this was what i saw and felt two hours after leaving the nautilus we had cleared the timberline and one hundred feet above our heads stood the mountain peak forming a dark silhouette against the brilliant glare that came from its far slope petrified shrubs rambled here and there in sprawling zigzags fish rose in a body at our feet like birds startled in tall grass the rocky mass was gorged with impenetrable crevices deep caves unfathomable holes at whose far ends i could hear fearsome things moving around my blood would curdle as i watched some enormous antenna bar my path or saw some frightful pincer snap shut in the shadow of some cavity a thousand specks of light glittered in the midst of the gloom they were the eyes of gigantic crustaceans crouching in their lairs giant lobsters rearing up like spear carriers and moving their claws with a scrap iron clanking titanic crabs aiming their bodies like cannons on their carriages and hideous devilfish intertwining their tentacles like bushes of writhing snakes what was this astounding world that i didn't yet know in what order did these articulates belong these creatures for which the rocks provided a second carapace where had nature learned the secret of their vegetating existence and for how many centuries had they lived in the ocean's lower strata but i couldn't linger captain nemo on familiar terms with these dreadful animals no longer minded them we arrived at a preliminary plateau where still other surprises were waiting for me there picturesque ruins took shape betraying the hand of man not our creator they were huge stacks of stones in which you could distinguish the indistinct forms of palaces and temples now arrayed in hosts of blossoming zoophytes and over it all not ivy but a heavy mantle of algae and fucus plants but what part of this globe could this be this land swallowed by cataclysms 
who had set up these rocks and stones like the dolmens of prehistoric times where was i where had captain nemo's fancies taken me i wanted to ask him unable to i stopped him i seized his arm but he shook his head pointed to the mountain's topmost peak and seemed to tell me come on come with me come higher i followed him with one last burst of energy and in a few minutes i had scaled the peak which crowned the whole rocky mass by some ten meters i looked back down the side we had just cleared there the mountain rose only seven hundred to eight hundred feet above the plains but on its far slope it crowned the receding bottom of this part of the atlantic by a height twice that my eyes scanned the distance and took in a vast area lit by intense flashes of light in essence this mountain was a volcano fifty feet below its peak amid a shower of stones and slag a wide crater vomited torrents of lava that were dispersed in fiery cascades into the heart of the liquid mass so situated this volcano was an immense torch that lit up the lower plains all the way to the horizon as i said this underwater crater spewed lava but not flames flames need oxygen from the air and are unable to spread under water but a lava flow which contains in itself the principle of its incandescence can rise to a white heat overpower the liquid element and turn it into steam on contact swift currents swept away all this diffuse gas and torrents of lava slid to the foot of the mountain like the disgorgings of a mount vesuvius over the city limits of a second torre del greco in fact there beneath my eyes was a town in ruins demolished overwhelmed laid low its roofs caved in its temples pulled down its arches dislocated its columns stretching over the earth in these ruins you could still detect the solid proportions of a sort of tuscan architecture farther off the remains of a gigantic aqueduct here the caked heights of an acropolis along with the fluid forms of a parthenon there the remnants of a wharf as if some bygone port had long ago harbored merchant vessels and triple-tiered war-galleys on the shores of some lost ocean still farther off long rows of collapsing walls deserted thoroughfares a whole pompeii buried under the waters which captain nemo had resurrected before my eyes where was i where was i i had to find out at all cost i wanted to speak i wanted to rip off the copper sphere imprisoning my head but captain nemo came over and stopped me with a gesture then picking up a piece of chalky stone he advanced to a black basaltic rock and scrawled this one word atlantis what lightning flashed through my mind atlantis that ancient land of meropis mentioned by the historian theopompus plato's atlantis the continent whose very existence has been denied by such philosophers and scientists as origin porphyry iamblichus d'anville malte bruin and humboldt 
who entered its disappearance in the ledger of myths and folktales the country whose reality has nevertheless been accepted by such other thinkers as poseidonius pliny ammianus marcellinus tertullian ingel scherer tournefort buffon and d'abazac i had this land right under my eyes furnishing its own unimpeachable evidence of the catastrophe that had overtaken it so this was the submerged region that had existed outside europe asia and libya beyond the pillars of hercules home of those powerful atlantean people against whom ancient greece had waged its earliest wars the writer whose narratives record the lofty deeds of these heroic times is plato himself his dialogues timaeus and critias were drafted with the poet and legislator solon as their inspiration as it were one day solon was conversing with some elderly wise men in the egyptian capital of sais a town already eight thousand years of age as documented by the annals engraved on the sacred walls of its temples one of these elders related the history of another town one thousand years older still this original city of athens ninety centuries old had been invaded and partly destroyed by the atlanteans these atlanteans he said resided on an immense continent greater than africa and asia combined taking in an area that lay between latitude twelve degrees and forty degrees north their dominion extended even to egypt they tried to enforce their rule as far as greece but they had to retreat before the indomitable resistance of the hellenic people centuries passed a cataclysm occurred floods earthquakes a single night and day were enough to obliterate this atlantis whose highest peaks madeira the azores the canaries the cape verde islands still emerge above the waves these were the historical memories that captain nemo's scrawl sent rushing through my mind thus led by the strangest of fates i was treading underfoot one of the mountains of that continent my hands were touching ruins many thousands of years old contemporary with prehistoric times i was walking in the very place where contemporaries of early man had walked my heavy souls were crushing the skeletons of animals from the age of fable animals that used to take cover in the shade of these trees now turned to stone oh why was i so short of time i would have gone down the steep slopes of this mountain crossed this entire immense continent which surely connects africa with america and visited its great prehistoric cities under my eyes there perhaps lay the warlike town of Macamos or the pious village of Eusebes, whose gigantic inhabitants lived for whole centuries and had the strength to raise blocks of stone that still withstood the action of the waters. One day, perhaps, some volcanic phenomenon will bring these sunken ruins back to the surface of the waves. Numerous underwater volcanoes have been sighted in this part of the ocean, and many ships have felt terrific tremors when passing over these turbulent depths a few have heard hollow noises that announced some struggle of the elements far below 
others have hauled in volcanic ash hurled above the waves as far as the equator this whole seafloor is still under construction by plutonic forces and in some remote epoch built up by volcanic disgorgings and successive layers of lava who knows whether the peaks of these fire-belching mountains may reappear above the surface of the atlantic as i mused in this way trying to establish in my memory every detail of this impressive landscape captain nemo was leaning his elbows on a moss-covered monument motionless as if petrified in some mute trance was he dreaming of those lost generations asking them for the secret of human destiny was it here that this strange man came to revive himself basking in historical memories reliving that bygone life he who had no desire for our modern one i would have given anything to know his thoughts to share them understand them we stayed in this place an entire hour contemplating its vast plains in the lava's glow which sometimes took on a startling intensity inner boilings sent quick shivers running through the mountain's crust noises from deep underneath clearly transmitted by the liquid medium reverberated with majestic amplitude just then the moon appeared for an instant through the watery mass casting a few pale rays over this submerged continent it was only a fleeting glimmer but its effect was indescribable the captain stood up and took one last look at these immense plains then his hand signaled me to follow him we went swiftly down the mountain once past the petrified forest i could see the nautilus's beacon twinkling like a star the captain walked straight toward it and we were back on board just as the first glimmers of dawn were whitening the surface of the ocean End of Part 2, Chapter 9 Part 2, Chapter 10 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana Chapter 10 the underwater coal fields the next day february twenty i overslept i was so exhausted from the night before i didn't get up until eleven o'clock i dressed quickly i hurried to find out the nautilus's heading the instruments indicated that it was running southward at a speed of twenty miles per hour and a depth of one hundred meters conseil entered I described our nocturnal excursion to him and since the panels were open he could still catch a glimpse of this submerged continent in fact the nautilus was skimming only ten meters over the soil of these atlantis plains the ship scudded along like an air balloon borne by the wind over some prairie on land but it would be more accurate to say that we sat in the lounge as if we were riding in a coach on an express train 
as for the foregrounds passing before our eyes they were fantastically carved rocks forests of trees that had crossed over from the vegetable kingdom into the mineral kingdom their motionless silhouettes sprawling beneath the waves there also were stony masses buried beneath carpets of oxidia and sea anemone bristling with long vertical water plants then strangely contoured blocks of lava that testified to all the fury of those plutonic developments while this bizarre scenery was glittering under our electric beams i told conseil the story of the atlanteans who had inspired the old french scientist jean bailey to write so many entertaining albeit utterly fictitious pages editor's note bailey believed that atlantis was located at the north pole i told the lad about the wars of these heroic people i discussed the question of atlantis with the fervor of a man who no longer had any doubts but conseil was so distracted he barely heard me and his lack of interest in any commentary on this historical topic was soon explained in essence numerous fish had caught his eye and when fish pass by conseil vanishes into his world of classifying and leaves real life behind in which case i could only tag along and resume our ichthyological research even so these atlantic fish were not noticeably different from those we had observed earlier there were rays of gigantic size five meters long and with muscles so powerful they could leap above the waves sharks of various species including a fifteen-foot glaucus shark with sharp triangular teeth and so transparent it was almost invisible amid the waters brown lantern sharks prism-shaped humanton sharks armored with protuberant hides sturgeons resembling their relatives in the mediterranean trumpet-snouted pipefish a foot and a half long yellowish-brown with small gray fins and no teeth or tongue unreeling like slim supple snakes among bony fish conseil noticed some blackish marlin three meters long with a sharp sword jutting from the upper jaw bright-colored weavers known in aristotle's day as sea dragons and whose dorsal stingers make them quite dangerous to pick up then dolphin fish with brown backs striped in blue and edged in gold handsome dorados moon-like ophas that look like azure discs but which the sun's rays turn into spots of silver finally eight-meter swordfish from the genus xiphaeus swimming in schools sporting yellowish sickle-shaped fins and six-foot broadswords stalwart animals plant eaters rather than fish eaters obeying the tiniest signals from their females like hen-pecked husbands but while observing these different species of marine fauna i didn't stop examining the long plains of atlantis sometimes an unpredictable irregularity in the seafloor would force the nautilus to slow down and then it would glide into the narrow channels between the hills with a cetacean's dexterity if the labyrinth became hopelessly tangled the submersible would rise above it like an airship and after clearing the obstacle it would resume its speedy course just a few meters above the ocean floor it was an enjoyable and impressive way of navigating that did indeed recall the maneuvers of an airship ride with the major difference that the nautilus faithfully obeyed the hands of its helmsman
the terrain consisted mostly of thick slime mixed with petrified branches but it changed little by little near four o'clock in the afternoon it grew rockier and seemed to be strewn with pudding stones and a basaltic gravel called tuff together with bits of lava and sulfurous obsidian i expected these long plains to change into mountain regions and in fact as the nautilus was executing certain turns i noticed that the southerly horizon was blocked by a high wall that seemed to close off every exit its summit obviously poked above the level of the ocean it had to be a continent or at least an island either one of the canaries or one of the cape verde islands our bearings hadn't been marked on the chart perhaps deliberately and i had no idea what our position was in any case this wall seemed to signal the end of atlantis of which all in all we had crossed only a small part nightfall didn't interrupt my observations i was left to myself conseil had repaired to his cabin the nautilus slowed down hovering above the muddled masses on the seafloor sometimes grazing them as if wanting to come to rest sometimes rising unpredictably to the surface of the waves then i glimpsed a few bright constellations through the crystal waters specifically five or six of those zodiacal stars trailing from the tail end of orion i would have stayed longer at my window marveling at these beauties of sea and sky but the panels closed just then the nautilus had arrived at the perpendicular face of that high wall how the ship would maneuver i hadn't to guess i repaired to my stateroom the nautilus did not stir i fell asleep with the firm intention of waking up in just a few hours but it was eight o'clock the next day when i returned to the lounge i stared at the pressure gauge it told me that the nautilus was afloat on the surface of the ocean furthermore i heard the sound of footsteps on the platform yet there were no rolling movements to indicate the presence of waves undulating above me i climbed as far as the hatch it was open but instead of the broad daylight i was expecting i found that i was surrounded by total darkness where were we had i been mistaken was it still night no not one star was twinkling and nighttime is never so utterly black i wasn't sure what to think when a voice said to me is that you professor ah captain nemo i replied where are we underground professor underground i exclaimed and the nautilus is still floating it always floats but i don't understand wait a little while our beacon is about to go on and if you want some light on the subject you'll be satisfied i set foot on the platform and waited the darkness was so profound i couldn't see even captain nemo however looking at the zenith directly overhead i thought i caught sight of a feeble glimmer a sort of twilight filtering through a circular hole just then the beacon suddenly went on and its intense brightness made that hazy light vanish this stream of electricity dazzled my eyes and after momentarily shutting them i looked around the nautilus was stationary 
it was floating next to an embankment shaped like a wharf as for the water now buoying the ship it was a lake completely encircled by an inner wall about two miles in diameter hence six miles around its level as indicated by the pressure gauge would be the same as the outside level because some connection had to exist between this lake and the sea slanting inward over their base these high walls converged to form a vault shaped like an immense upside-down funnel that measured five hundred or six hundred meters in height at its summit there gaped the circular opening through which i had detected that faint glimmer obviously daylight before more carefully examining the interior features of this enormous cavern and before deciding if it was the work of nature or humankind i went over to captain nemo where are we i said in the very heart of an extinct volcano the captain answered me a volcano whose interior was invaded by the sea after some convulsion in the earth while you were sleeping professor the nautilus entered this lagoon through a natural channel that opens ten meters below the surface of the ocean this is our home port secure convenient secret and sheltered against winds from any direction along the coasts of your continents or islands show me any offshore mooring that can equal this safe refuge for withstanding the fury of hurricanes indeed i replied here you're in perfect safety captain nemo who could reach you in the heart of a volcano but don't i see an opening at its summit yes it's a crater a crater formerly filled with lava steam and flames but which now lets in this life-giving air we're breathing but which volcanic mountain is this i asked it's one of the many islets with which this sea is strewn for ships a mere reef for us an immense cavern i discovered it by chance and chance served me well but couldn't someone enter through the mouth of its crater no more than i could exit through it you can climb about a hundred feet up the inner base of this mountain but then the walls overhang they lean too far in to be scaled i can see captain that nature is your obedient servant any time or any place you're safe on this lake and nobody else can visit its waters but what's the purpose of this refuge the nautilus doesn't need a harbor no professor but it needs electricity to run batteries to generate its electricity sodium to feed its batteries coal to make its sodium and coal fields from which to dig its coal now then right at this spot the sea covers entire forests that sank under water in prehistoric times today turned to stone transformed into carbon fuel they offer me inexhaustible coal mines so captain your men practice the trade of miners here precisely these mines extend under the waves like the coal fields at newcastle here dressed in diving suits pick and mattock in hand my men go out and dig this carbon fuel for which i don't need a single mine on land when i burn this combustible to produce sodium the smoke escaping from the mountain's crater gives it the appearance of a still active volcano and will we see your companions at work no 
at least not this time because i'm eager to continue our underwater tour of the world accordingly i'll rest content with drawing on my reserve stock of sodium we'll stay here long enough to load it on board in other words a single workday then we'll resume our voyage so professor aronnax if you'd like to explore this cavern and circle its lagoon seize the day i thanked the captain and went to look for my two companions who hadn't yet left their cabin i invited them to follow me not telling them where we were they climbed onto the platform conseil whom nothing could startle saw it as a perfectly natural thing to fall asleep under the waves and wake up under a mountain but ned land had no idea in his head other than to see if this cavern offered some way out after breakfast near ten o'clock we went down onto the embankment so here we are back on shore conseil said i hardly call this shore the canadian replied and besides we aren't on it but under it a sandy beach unfolded before us measuring five hundred feet at its widest point between the waters of the lake and the foot of the mountain's walls via this strand you could easily circle the lake but the base of these high walls consisted of broken soil over which there lay picturesque piles of volcanic blocks and enormous pumice stones all these crumbling masses were covered with an enamel polished by the action of underground fires and they glistened under the stream of electric light from our beacon stirred up by our footsteps the mica-rich dust on this beach flew into the air like a cloud of sparks the ground rose appreciably as it moved away from the sand flats by the waves and we soon arrived at some long winding gradients genuinely steep paths that allowed us to climb little by little but we had to tread cautiously in the midst of pudding stones that weren't cemented together and our feet kept skidding on glassy trachyte made of feldspar and quartz crystals the volcanic nature of this enormous pit was apparent all around us I ventured to comment on it to my companions can you picture i asked them what this funnel must have been like when it was filled with boiling lava and the level of that incandescent liquid rose right to the mountain's mouth like cast iron up the insides of a furnace i can picture it perfectly conseil replied but will master tell me why this huge smelter suspended operations and how it is that an oven was replaced by the tranquil waters of a lake in all likelihood conseil because some convulsion created an opening below the surface of the ocean the opening that serves as a passageway for the nautilus then the waters of the atlantic rushed inside the mountain there ensued a dreadful struggle between the elements of fire and water a struggle ending in king neptune's favor but many centuries have passed since then and this submerged volcano has changed into a peaceful cavern that's fine ned land answered i accept the explanation but in our personal interests i'm sorry this opening the professor mentioned wasn't made above sea level but ned my friend conseil answered if it weren't an underwater passageway the nautilus couldn't enter it and i might add mr land i said that the waters wouldn't have rushed under the mountain and the volcano would still be a volcano so you have nothing to be sorry about 
our climb continued the gradients got steeper and narrower sometimes they were cut across by deep pits that had to be cleared masses of overhanging rock had to be gotten around you slid on your knees you crept on your belly but helped by the canadian's strength and conseil's dexterity we overcame every obstacle at an elevation of about thirty meters the nature of the terrain changed without becoming any easier pudding stones and trachyte gave way to black basaltic rock here lying in slabs all swollen with blisters there shaped like actual prisms and arranged into a series of columns that supported the springings of this immense vault a wonderful sample of natural architecture then among this basaltic rock there snaked long hardened lava flows inlaid with veins of bituminous coal and in places covered by wide carpets of sulphur the sunshine coming through the crater had grown stronger shedding a hazy light over all the volcanic waste forever buried in the hearts of this extinct mountain but when we had ascended to an elevation of about two hundred and fifty feet we were stopped by insurmountable obstacles the converging inside walls changed into overhangs and our climb into a circular stroll at this topmost level the vegetable kingdom began to challenge the mineral kingdom shrubs and even a few trees emerged from crevices in the walls i recognized some spurges that let their caustic purgative sap trickle out there were heliotropes very remiss at living up to their sun-worshipping reputations since no sunlight ever reached them their clusters of flowers drooped sadly their colors and scents were faded here and there chrysanthemums sprouted timidly at the feet of aloes with long sad sickly leaves but between these lava flows i spotted little violets that still gave off a subtle fragrance and i confess that i inhaled it with delight the soul of a flower is its scent and those splendid water plants flowers of the sea have no souls we had arrived at the foot of a sturdy clump of dragon trees which were splitting the rocks with exertions of their muscular roots when ned land exclaimed oh sir a hive a hive i answered with a gesture of utter disbelief yes a hive the canadian repeated with bees buzzing around i went closer and was forced to recognize the obvious at the mouth of a hole cut in the trunk of a dragon tree there swarmed thousands of these ingenious insects so common to all the canary islands where their output is especially prized naturally enough the canadian wanted to lay in a supply of honey and it would have been ill-mannered of me to say no he mixed sulphur with some dry leaves set them on fire with a spark from his tinder-box and proceeded to smoke the bees out little by little the buzzing died down and the disemboweled hive yielded several pounds of sweet honey ned land stuffed his haversack with it when i've mixed this honey with our breadfruit batter he told us i'll be ready to serve you a delectable piece of cake but of course conseil put in it will be gingerbread i'm all for gingerbread i said but let's resume this fascinating stroll at certain turns in the trail we were going along the lake appeared in its full expanse the ship's beacon lit up that whole placid surface which experienced neither ripples nor undulations the nautilus lay perfectly still 
on its platform and on the embankment crewmen were bustling around black shadows that stood out clearly in the midst of the luminous air just then we went around the highest ridge of these rocky foothills that supported the vault then i saw that bees weren't the animal kingdom's only representatives inside this volcano here and in the shadows birds of prey soared and whirled flying away from nests perched on tips of rocks there were sparrow hawks with white bellies and screeching kestrels with all the speed their stilt-like legs could muster fine fat bustards scampered over the slopes i'll let the reader decide whether the canadian's appetite was aroused by the sight of this tasty game and whether he regretted having no rifle in his hands he tried to make stones do the work of bullets and after several fruitless attempts he managed to wound one of these magnificent bustards to say he risked his life twenty times in order to capture this bird is simply the unadulterated truth but he fared so well the animal went into his sack to join the honeycombs by then we were forced to go back down to the beach because the ridge had become impossible above us the yawning crater looked like the wide mouth of a well from where we stood the sky was pretty easy to see and i watched clouds race by disheveled by the west wind letting tatters of mist trail over the mountain's summit proof positive that those clouds kept at a moderate altitude because this volcano didn't rise more than eighteen hundred feet above the level of the ocean half an hour after the canadian's latest exploits we were back on the inner beach there the local flora was represented by a wide carpet of samphire a small umbelliferous plant that keeps quite nicely which also boasts the names glasswort saxifrage and sea fennel conseil picked a couple bunches as for the local fauna it included thousands of crustaceans of every type lobsters hermit crabs prawns mycid shrimps daddy longlegs rock crabs and a prodigious number of seashells such as cowries murex snails and limpets in this locality there gaped the mouth of a magnificent cave my companions and i took great pleasure in stretching out on its fine-grained sand fire had polished the sparkling enamel of its inner walls sprinkled all over with mica-rich dust ned land tapped these walls and tried to probe their thickness i couldn't help smiling our conversation then turned to his everlasting escape plans and without going too far i felt i could offer him this hope captain nemo had gone down south only to replenish his sodium supplies so i hoped he would now hug the coasts of europe and america which would allow the canadian to try again with a greater chance of success we were stretched out in this delightful cave for an hour our conversation lively at the outset then languished a definite drowsiness overcame us since i saw no good reason to resist the call of sleep i fell into a heavy doze i dreamed one doesn't choose his dreams that my life had been reduced to the vegetating existence of a simple mollusk it seemed to me that this cave made up my double-valved shell suddenly conseil's voice startled me awake get up get up shouted the fine lad what is it i asked in a sitting position the water's coming up to us i got back on my feet 
like a torrent the sea was rushing into our retreat and since we definitely were not mollusks we had to clear out in a few seconds we were safe on top of the cave what happened conseil asked some new phenomenon not quite my friends i replied it was the tide merely the tide which well nigh caught us by surprise just as it did sir walter scott's hero the ocean outside is rising and by a perfectly natural law of balance the level of this lake is also rising we've gotten off with a mild dunking let's go change clothes on the nautilus three-quarters of an hour later we had completed our circular stroll and were back on board just then the crewmen finished loading the sodium supplies and the nautilus could have departed immediately but captain nemo gave no orders would he wait for nightfall and exit through his underwater passageway in secrecy perhaps be that as it may by the next day the nautilus had left its home port and was navigating well out from any shore a few meters beneath the waves of the atlantic End of Part 2, Chapter 10Chapter 11 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 11 The Sargasso Sea. The Nautilus didn't change direction. For the time being, then, we had to set aside any hope of returning to European seas. Captain Nemo kept his prow pointing south. Where was he taking us? I was afraid to guess. That day the Nautilus crossed an odd part of the Atlantic Ocean. No one is unaware of the existence of that great warm-water current known by name as the Gulf Stream after emerging from channels off florida it heads towards spitzbergen but before entering the gulf of mexico near latitude forty four degrees north this current divides into two arms its chief arm makes for the shores of ireland and norway while the second flexes southward at the level of the azores then it hits the coast of africa sweeps in a long oval and returns to the caribbean sea now then this second arm more accurately a collar forms a ring of warm water around a section of cool tranquil motionless ocean called the sargasso sea this is an actual lake in the open atlantic and the great current's waters take at least three years to circle it properly speaking the sargasso sea covers every submerged part of atlantis Certain authors have even held that the many weeds strewn over this sea were torn loose from the prairies of that ancient continent. But it's more likely that these grasses, algae, and fucus plants were carried off from the beaches of Europe and America, then taken as far as this zone by the Gulf Stream. This is one of the reasons why Christopher Columbus assumed the existence of a new world. When the ships of that bold investigator arrived in the Sargasso Sea, they had great difficulty navigating in the midst of these weeds, which, much to their crew's dismay, slowed them down to a halt, and they wasted three long weeks crossing this sector. 
such was the region our nautilus was visiting just then a genuine prairie a tightly woven carpet of algae gulfweed and bladder rack so dense and compact a craft's stem post couldn't tear through it without difficulty accordingly not wanting to entangle his propeller in this weed-choked mass captain nemo stayed at a depth some meters below the surface of the waves the name sargasso comes from the spanish word sargazo meaning gulfweed this gulfweed the swimming gulfweed or berry carrier is the chief substance making up this immense shoal and here's why these water plants collect in this placid atlantic basin according to the expert on the subject commander maori author of the physical geography of the sea the explanation he gives seems to entail a set of conditions that everybody knows now maori says if bits of cork or chafe or any floating substance be put into a basin and a circular motion be given to the water all the light substances will be found crowding together near the center of the pool where there is the least motion just such a basin is the atlantic ocean to the gulf stream and the sargasso sea is the center of the whirl i share maori's view and i was able to study the phenomenon in this exclusive setting where ships rarely go above us huddled among the brown weeds there floated objects originating from all over tree trunks ripped from the rocky mountains or the andes and sent floating down the amazon or the mississippi numerous pieces of wreckage remnants of keels or undersides bulwarks staved in and so weighed down with seashells and barnacles they couldn't rise to the surface of the ocean and the passing years will some day bear out maori's other view that by collecting in this way over the centuries these substances will be turned to stone by the action of the waters and will then form inexhaustible coal fields valuable reserves prepared by far-seeing nature for that time when man will have exhausted his mines on the continents in the midst of this hopelessly tangled fabric of weeds and fucus plants i noted some delightful pink-colored star-shaped alcyon coral sea anemone trailing the long tresses of their tentacles some green red and blue jellyfish and especially those big rhizome jellyfish that cuvier described whose bluish parasols are trimmed with violet festoons we spent the whole day of february twenty second in the sargasso sea where fish that dote on marine plants and crustaceans find plenty to eat the next day the ocean resumed its usual appearance from this moment on for nineteen days from february twenty three to march twelve the nautilus stayed in the middle of the atlantic hustling us along at a constant speed of one hundred leagues every twenty-four hours it was obvious that captain nemo wanted to carry out his underwater program and i had no doubt that he intended after doubling cape horn to return to the pacific south seas so ned land had good reason to worry in these wide seas empty of islands it was no longer feasible to jump ship nor did we have any way to counter captain nemo's whims we had no choice but to acquiesce but if we couldn't attain our end through force or cunning i liked to think that we might achieve it through persuasion once this voyage was over might not captain nemo consent to set us free in return for our promise never to reveal his existence our word of honor which we sincerely would have kept 
however this delicate question would have to be negotiated with the captain but how would he receive our demands for freedom at the very outset and in no uncertain terms hadn't he declared that the secret of his life required that we be permanently imprisoned on board the nautilus wouldn't he see my four-month silence as a tacit acceptance of this situation would my returning to this subject arouse suspicions that could jeopardize our escape plans if we had promising circumstances for trying again later on i weighed all these considerations turned them over in my mind submitted them to conseil but he was as baffled as i was in short although i'm not easily discouraged i realized that my chances of ever seeing my fellow-men again were shrinking by the day especially at a time when captain nemo was recklessly racing toward the south atlantic during those nineteen days just mentioned no unique incidents distinguished our voyage i saw little of the captain he was at work in the library i often found books he had left open especially books on natural history he had thumbed through my work on the great ocean depths and the margins were covered with his notes which sometimes contradicted my theories and formulations but the captain remained content with this method of refining my work and he rarely discussed it with me sometimes i heard melancholy sounds reverberating from the organ which he played very expressively but only at night in the midst of the most secretive darkness while the nautilus slumbered in the wilderness of the ocean during this part of our voyage we navigated on the surface of the waves for entire days the sea was nearly deserted a few sailing ships laden for the east indies were heading toward the cape of good hope one day we were chased by the longboats of a whaling vessel which undoubtedly viewed us as some enormous baleen whale of great value but captain nemo didn't want these gallant gentlemen wasting their time and energy so he ended the hunt by diving beneath the waves this incident seemed to fascinate ned land intensely i'm sure the canadian was sorry that these fishermen couldn't harpoon our sheet-iron cetacean and mortally wound it during this period the fish conseil and i observed differed little from those we had already studied in other latitudes chief among them were specimens of that dreadful cartilaginous genus that's divided into three subgenera numbering at least thirty-two species striped sharks five meters long the head squat and wider than the body the caudal fin curved the back with seven big black parallel lines running lengthwise then purlon sharks ash gray pierced with seven gill openings furnished with a single dorsal fin placed almost exactly in the middle of the body some big dogfish also passed by a voracious species of shark if there ever was one with some justice fishermen's yarns aren't to be trusted but here's what a few of them relate inside the corpse of one of these animals there were found a buffalo head and a whole calf in another two tuna and a sailor in uniform in yet another a soldier with his saber in another finally a horse with its rider in candor none of these sounds like divinely inspired truth but the fact remains that not a single dogfish let itself get caught in the nautilus's nets so i can't vouch for their veracity schools of elegant playful dolphins swam along for entire days they went in groups of five or six 
hunting in packs like wolves over the countryside moreover they're just as voracious as dogfish if i can believe a certain copenhagen professor who says that from one dolphin's stomach he removed thirteen porpoises and fifteen seals true it was a killer whale belonging to the biggest known species whose length sometimes exceeds twenty-four feet the family delphinia numbers ten genera and the dolphins i saw were akin to the genus delphinorynchius remarkable for an extremely narrow muzzle four times as long as the cranium measuring three meters their bodies were black on top underneath a pinkish white strewn with small very scattered spots from these seas i'll also mention some unusual specimens of croakers fish from the order acanthopterygia family cyanidia some authors more artistic than scientific claim that these fish are melodious singers that their voices in unison put on concerts unmatched by human choristers i don't say nay but to my regret these croakers didn't serenade us as we passed finally to conclude conseil classified a large number of flying fish nothing could have made a more unusual sight than the marvelous timing with which dolphins hunt these fish whatever the range of its flight however evasive its trajectory even up and over the nautilus the hapless flying fish always found a dolphin to welcome it with open mouth these were either flying gurnards or kite-like sea robins whose lips glowed in the dark at night scrawling fiery streaks in the air before plunging into the murky waters like so many shooting stars our navigating continued under these conditions until march thirteen that day the nautilus was put to work in some depth-sounding experiments that fascinated me deeply by then we had fared nearly thirteen thousand leagues from our starting point in the pacific high seas our position fix placed us in latitude 45 degrees 37 minutes south and longitude 37 degrees 53 minutes west these were the same waterways where captain denham aboard the herald paid out fourteen thousand meters of sounding line without finding bottom it was here too that lieutenant parker aboard the american frigate congress was unable to reach the underwater soil at fifteen thousand one hundred and forty nine meters captain nemo decided to take his nautilus down to the lowest depths in order to double-check these different soundings i got ready to record the results of this experiment the panels in the lounge opened and maneuvers began for reaching those strata so prodigiously far removed it was apparently considered out of the question to dive by filling the ballast tanks perhaps they wouldn't sufficiently increase the nautilus's specific gravity moreover in order to come back up it would be necessary to expel the excess water and our pumps might not have been strong enough to overcome the outside pressure captain nemo decided to make for the ocean floor by submerging on an appropriately gradual diagonal with the help of his side fins which were set at a forty five degree angle to the nautilus's waterline then the propeller was brought to its maximum speed and its four blades churned the waves with indescribable violence under this powerful thrust the nautilus's hull quivered like a resonating cord and the ship sank steadily under the waters stationed in the lounge the captain and i watched the needle swerving swiftly over the pressure gauge soon we had gone below the livable zone where most fish reside 
some of these animals can thrive only at the surface of seas or rivers but a minority can dwell at fairly great depths among the latter i observed a species of dogfish called the cow shark that's equipped with six respiratory slits a telescope fish with its enormous eyes the armored grenard with gray thoracic fins plus black pectoral fins and a breastplate protected by pale red slabs of bone then finally the grenadier living at a depth of twelve hundred meters by that point tolerating a pressure of one hundred and twenty atmospheres i asked captain nemo if he had observed any fish at more considerable depths fish rarely he answered me but given the current state of marine science who are we to presume what do we really know of these depths just this captain in going toward the ocean's lower strata we know that vegetable life disappears more quickly than animal life we know that moving creatures can still be encountered where water plants no longer grow we know that oysters and pilgrim scallops live in two thousand meters of water and that admiral mcclintock england's hero of the polar seas pulled in a live sea star from a depth of twenty five hundred meters we know that the crew of the royal navy's bulldog fished up a starfish from two thousand six hundred and twenty fathoms hence from a depth of more than one vertical league would you still say captain nemo that we really know nothing no professor the captain replied i wouldn't be so discourteous yet i will ask you to explain how these creatures can live at such depths i explained it on two grounds i replied in the first place because vertical currents which are caused by differences in the water's salinity and density can produce enough motion to sustain the rudimentary lifestyles of sea lilies and starfish true the captain put in in the second place because oxygen is the basis of life and we know that the amount of oxygen dissolved in salt water increases rather than decreases with depth that the pressure in these lower strata helps to concentrate their oxygen content oh we know that do we captain nemo replied in a tone of mild surprise well professor we have good reason to know it because it's the truth i might add in fact that the air bladders of fish contain more nitrogen than oxygen when these animals are caught at the surface of the water and conversely more oxygen than nitrogen when they're pulled up from the lower depths which bears out your formulation but let's continue our observations my eyes flew back to the pressure gauge the instrument indicated a depth of six thousand meters our submergence had been going on for an hour the nautilus slid downward on its slanting fins still sinking these deserted waters were wonderfully clear with a transparency impossible to convey an hour later we were at thirteen thousand meters about three and a quarter vertical leagues and the ocean floor was nowhere in sight however at fourteen thousand meters i saw blackish peaks rising in the midst of the waters but these summits could have belonged to mountains as high or even higher than the himalayas or mont blanc and the extent of these depths remained incalculable despite the powerful pressures it was undergoing the nautilus sank still deeper i could feel its sheet-iron plates trembling down to their riveted joins metal bars arched bulkheads groaned the lounge windows seemed to be warping inward under the water's pressure and this whole sturdy mechanism would surely have given way if as its captain had said it weren't capable of resisting like a solid block 
while grazing these rocky slopes lost under the waters i still spotted some seashells tube worms lively annelid worms from the genus spirorbis and certain starfish specimens but soon these last representatives of animal life vanished and three vertical leagues down the nautilus passed below the limits of underwater existence just as an air balloon rises above the breathable zones in the sky we reached a depth of sixteen thousand meters four vertical leagues and by then the nautilus's plating was tolerating a pressure of sixteen hundred atmospheres in other words one thousand six hundred kilograms per each square centimeter on its surface what an experience i exclaimed traveling these deep regions where no man has ever ventured before look captain look at these magnificent rocks these uninhabited caves these last global haunts where life is no longer possible what unheard-of scenery and why are we reduced to preserving it only as a memory would you like captain nemo asked me to bring back more than just a memory what do you mean i mean that nothing could be easier than taking a photograph of this underwater region before i had time to express the surprise this new proposition caused me a camera was carried into the lounge at captain nemo's request the liquid setting electrically lit unfolded with perfect clarity through the wide open panels no shadows no blurs thanks to our artificial light not even sunshine could have been better for our purposes with the thrust of its propeller curved by the slant of its fins the nautilus stood still the camera was aimed at the scenery on the ocean floor and in a few seconds we had a perfect negative i attach a print of the positive in it you can view these primordial rocks that have never seen the light of day this nether granite that forms the powerful foundation of our globe the deep caves cut into the stony mass the outlines of incomparable distinctness whose far edges stand out in black as if from the brush of certain flemish painters in the distance is a mountainous horizon a wondrously undulating line that makes up the background of this landscape the general effect of these smooth rocks is indescribable black polished without moss or other blemish carved into strange shapes sitting firmly on a carpet of sand that sparkled beneath our streams of electric light meanwhile his photographic operations over captain nemo told me let's go back up professor we mustn't push our luck and expose the nautilus too long to these pressures let's go back up i replied hold on tight before i had time to realize why the captain made this recommendation i was hurled to the carpet its fins set vertically its propeller thrown in gear at the captain's signal the nautilus rose with lightning speed shooting upward like an air balloon into the sky vibrating resonantly it knifed through the watery mass not a single detail was visible in four minutes it had cleared the four vertical leagues separating it from the surface of the ocean and after emerging like a flying fish it fell back into the sea making the waves leap to prodigious heights End of Part 2, Chapter 11
Part Two, Chapter Twelve of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Twelve Sperm Whales and Baleen Whales. During the night of March 13 14, the Nautilus resumed its southward heading. Once it was abreast of Cape Horn, I thought it would strike west of the Cape, make for Pacific seas, and complete its tour of the world. It did nothing of the sort, and kept moving toward the southernmost regions. So where was it bound? The Pole? That was insanity! I was beginning to think that the captain's recklessness more than justified Ned Land's worst fears. For a good while the Canadian had said nothing more to me about his escape plans. He had become less sociable, almost sullen. I could see how heavily this protracted imprisonment was weighing on him. I could feel the anger building in him. Whenever he encountered the captain, his eyes would flicker with dark fire, and I was in constant dread that his natural vehemence would cause him to do something rash. That day, March 14, he and Conseil managed to find me in the stateroom. I asked them the purpose of their visit. To put a simple question to you, sir, the Canadian answered me. Go on, Ned. How many men do you think are on board the Nautilus? I'm unable to say, my friend. It seems to me, Ned Land went on, that it wouldn't take much of a crew to run a ship like this one. Correct, I replied. Under existing conditions, some ten men at the most should be enough to operate it. All right, the Canadian said. Then why should there be any more than that? Why? I answered. I stared at Ned Land, whose motives were easy to guess. Because, I said, if I can trust my hunches, if I truly understand the captain's way of life, his Nautilus isn't simply a ship. It's meant to be a refuge for people like its commander, people who have severed all ties with the shore. Perhaps, Conseil said, but in a nutshell, the Nautilus can hold only a certain number of men, so couldn't Master estimate their maximum? How, Conseil? By calculating it. Master is familiar with the ship's capacity, hence the amount of air it contains. On the other hand, Master knows how much air each man consumes in the act of breathing, and he can compare this data with the fact that the Nautilus must rise to the surface every twenty-four hours. Conseil didn't finish his sentence, but I could easily see what he was driving at. I follow you, I said, but while they're simple to do, such calculations can give only a very uncertain figure. No problem, the Canadian went on insistently. Then here's how I calculate it, I replied. In one hour, each man consumes the oxygen contained in 100 liters of air. Hence, during 24 hours, the oxygen contained in 2,400 liters. Therefore, we must look for the multiple of 2,400 liters of air that gives us the amount found in the Nautilus. Precisely, Conseil said. Now then, I went on, the Nautilus's capacity is 1,500 metric tons, and that of a ton is 1,000 liters, so the Nautilus holds 1,500,000 liters of air, which divided by 2,400, I did a quick pencil calculation, 
gives us the quotient of six hundred twenty-five, which is tantamount to saying that the air contained in the Nautilus would be exactly enough for six hundred and twenty-five men over twenty-four hours. Six hundred and twenty-five, Ned repeated. But rest assured, I added, that between passengers, seamen, or officers, we don't total one-tenth of that figure. Which is still too many for three men, Conseil muttered. So, my poor Ned, I can only counsel patience. And, Conseil replied, even more than patience, resignation. Conseil had said the true word. Even so, he went on, Captain Nemo can't go south forever. He'll surely have to stop, if only at the ice bank, and he'll return to the seas of civilization. Then it will be time to resume Ned Land's plans. The Canadian shook his head, passed his hand over his brow, made no reply, and left us. With master's permission, I'll make an observation to him, Conseil then told me. Our poor Ned broods about all the things he can't have. He's haunted by his former life. He seems to miss everything that's denied us. He's obsessed by his old memories, and it's breaking his heart. We must understand him. What does he have to occupy him here? Nothing. He isn't a scientist like Master, and he doesn't share our enthusiasm for the sea's wonders. He would risk anything just to enter a tavern in his own country. To be sure, the monotony of life on board must have seemed unbearable to the Canadian, who was accustomed to freedom and activity. It was a rare event that could excite him. That day, however, a development occurred that reminded him of his happy years as a harpooner. Near eleven o'clock in the morning, while on the surface of the ocean, the Nautilus fell in with a herd of baleen whales. This encounter didn't surprise me, because I knew these animals were being hunted so relentlessly that they took refuge in the ocean basins of the high latitudes. In the maritime world, and in the realm of geographic exploration, whales have played a major role. This is the animal that first dragged the Basques in its wake, then the Asturian Spaniards, Englishmen, and Dutchmen, emboldening them against the ocean's perils and leading them to the ends of the earth. Baleen whales like to frequent the southernmost and northernmost seas. Old legends even claim that these cetaceans led fishermen to within a mere seven leagues of the North Pole. Although this feat is fictitious, it will some day come true, because it's likely that by hunting whales in the Arctic and Antarctic regions, man will finally reach this unknown spot on the globe. We were seated on the platform next to a tranquil sea. The month of March, since it's the equivalent of October in these latitudes, was giving us some fine autumn days. It was the Canadian, on this topic he was never mistaken, who sighted a baleen whale on the eastern horizon. If you looked carefully, you could see its blackish back alternately rise and fall above the waves, five miles from the Nautilus. Wow! Ned Land exclaimed. If I were on board a whaler, that's an encounter that would be great fun. That's one big animal. Look how high its blowholes are spouting all that air and steam. Damnation! Why am I changed to this hunk of sheet iron? Why, Ned, I replied, you still aren't over your old fishing urges. How could a whale fisherman forget his old trade, sir? Who could ever get tired of such exciting hunting? You've never fished these seas, Ned? Never, sir. 
just the northernmost seas, equally in the Bering Strait and the Davis Strait. So the southern right whale is still unknown to you? Until now, it's the bowhead whale you've hunted, and it won't risk going past the warm waters of the equator. Oh, Professor, what are you feeding me? The Canadian answered in a tolerably skeptical tone. I'm feeding you the facts. By thunder, in 65, just two and a half years ago, I, to whom you speak, I myself stepped onto the carcass of a whale near Greenland, and its flank still carried the marked harpoon of a whaling ship from the Bering Sea. Now I ask you, after it had been wounded west of America, how could this animal be killed in the east, unless it had cleared the equator and doubled Cape Horn or the Cape of Good Hope? I agree with our friend Ned, Conseil said, and I'm waiting to hear how Master will reply to him. Master will reply, my friends, that baleen whales are localized according to species, within certain seas that they never leave. And if one of these animals went from the Bering Strait to the Davis Strait, it's quite simply because there's some passageway from one sea to the other, either along the coasts of Canada or Siberia. You expect us to fall for that? the Canadian asked, tipping me a wink. If Master says so, Conseil replied. Which means, the Canadian went on, since I've never fished these waterways, I don't know the whales that frequent them. That's what I've been telling you, Ned. All the more reason to get to know them, Conseil answered. Look, look, the Canadian exclaimed, his voice full of excitement. It's approaching. It's coming toward us. It's thumbing its nose at me. It knows I can't do a blessed thing to it. Ned stamped his foot. Brandishing an imaginary harpoon, his hands positively trembled. These cetaceans, he asked, are they as big as the ones in the northernmost seas? Pretty nearly, Ned. Because I've seen big baleen whales, sir, whales measuring up to a hundred feet long. I've even heard that those Rorqual whales off the Aleuthian Islands sometimes get over a hundred and fifty feet. That strikes me as exaggerated, I replied. Those animals are only members of the genus Balaenoptera, furnished with dorsal fins, like the sperm whales. They're generally smaller than the bowhead whale. Oh, exclaimed the Canadian, whose eyes hadn't left the ocean. It's getting closer. It's coming into the Nautilus's waters. Then going on with his conversation. You talk about sperm whales, he said, as if they were little beasts. But there are stories of gigantic sperm whales. They're shrewd cetaceans. I hear that some will cover themselves with algae and fucus plants. People mistake them for islets. They pitch camp on top, make themselves at home, light a fire. Build houses, Conseil said. Yes, funny man, Ned Land replied. Then one fine day the animal dives and drags all its occupants down into the depths. Like in the voyages of Sinbad the Sailor, I answered, laughing. Oh, Mr. Land, you're addicted to tall tales. What sperm whales you're handing us? I hope you don't really believe in them. Mr. Naturalist, the Canadian replied in all seriousness, when it comes to whales, you can believe anything. Look at that one move. Look at it stealing away. People claim these animals can circle around the world in just 15 days. I don't say nay. But what you undoubtedly don't know, Professor Aronnax, is that at the beginning of the world, whales traveled even quicker. Oh, really, Ned? And why so? Because in those days their tails moved side to side like those on fish. In other words, their tails were straight up, 
thrashing the water from left to right, right to left. But spotting that they swam too fast, our creator twisted their tails, and ever since they've been thrashing the waves up and down at the expense of their speed. Fine, Ned, I said, then resurrected one of the Canadian's expressions. You expect us to fall for that? Not too terribly, Ned Land replied, and no more than if I told you there are whales that are three hundred feet long and weigh a million pounds. That's indeed considerable, I said, but you must admit that certain cetaceans do grow to significant size, since they're said to supply as much as a hundred and twenty metric tons of oil. That I've seen, the Canadian said. I can easily believe it, Ned just as I can believe that certain baleen whales equal 100 elephants in bulk. Imagine the impact of such a mass if it were launched at full speed. Is it true, Conseil asked, that they can sink ships? Ships? I doubt it, I replied. However, they say that in 1820, right in these southern seas, a baleen whale rushed at the Essex and pushed it backward at a speed of four meters per second. Its stern was flooded, and the Essex went down fast. Ned looked at me with a bantering expression. Speaking for myself, he said, I once got walloped by a whale's tail in my longboat, needless to say. My companions and I were launched to an altitude of six meters, but next to the professor's whale, mine was just a baby. Do these animals live a long time? Conseil asked. A thousand years, the Canadian replied without hesitation. And how, Ned, I asked, do you know that's so? Because people say so. And why do people say so? Because people know so. No, Ned, people don't know so. They suppose so. And here's the logic with which they back up their beliefs. When fishermen first hunted whales 400 years ago, these animals grew to bigger sizes than they do today. Reasonably enough, it's assumed that today's whales are smaller because they haven't had time to reach their full growth. That's why the Count de Buffon's encyclopedia says that cetaceans can live, and even must live, for a thousand years. You understand? Ned Land didn't understand. He no longer even heard me. That baleen whale kept coming closer. His eyes devoured it. Oh, he exclaimed, it's not just one whale, it's ten, twenty, a whole gam, and I can't do a thing. I'm tied hand and foot. But Ned, my friend, Conseil said, why not ask Captain Nemo for permission to hunt? Before Conseil could finish his sentence, Ned Land scooted down the hatch and ran to look for the captain. A few moments later, the two of them reappeared on the platform. Captain Nemo observed the herd of cetaceans cavorting on the waters a mile from the Nautilus. They are southern right whales, he said. There goes the fortune of a whole whaling fleet. Well, sir, the Canadian asked, couldn't I hunt them, just so I don't forget my old harpooning trade? Hunt them? What for? Captain Nemo replied. Simply to destroy them. We have no use for whale oil on this ship. But, sir, the Canadian went on, in the Red Sea you authorized us to chase a dugong. There it was an issue of obtaining fresh meat for my crew. Here it would be killing for the sake of killing. I'm well aware that's a privilege reserved for mankind, but I don't allow such murderous pastimes. 
when your peers mr land destroy decent harmless creatures like the southern right whale or the bowhead whale they commit a reprehensible offense thus they have already dispopulated all of baffin bay and they'll wipe out a whole class of useful animals so leave these poor cetaceans alone they have quite enough natural enemies such as sperm whales swordfish and sawfish without you meddling with them i'll let the reader decide what faces the canadian made during this lecture on hunting ethics furnishing such arguments to a professional harpooner was a waste of words ned land stared at captain nemo and obviously missed his meaning but the captain was right thanks to the mindless barbaric bloodthirstiness of fishermen the last baleen whale will some day disappear from the ocean ned land whistled yankee doodle between his teeth stuffed his hands in his pockets and turned his back on us meanwhile captain nemo studied the herd of cetaceans then addressed me i was right to claim that baleen whales have enough natural enemies without counting man these specimens will soon have to deal with mighty opponents eight miles to leeward professor aronnax can you see those blackish specks moving about yes captain i replied those are sperm whales dreadful animals that i've sometimes encountered in herds of two hundred or three hundred as for them they are cruel destructive beasts and they deserve to be exterminated the canadian turned swiftly at these last words well captain i said on behalf of the baleen whales there's still time it's pointless to run any risks professor the nautilus will suffice to disperse these sperm whales it's armed with a steel spur quite equal to mr land's harpoon i imagine the canadian didn't bother shrugging his shoulders attacking cetaceans with thrusts from a spur who ever heard of such malarkey wait and see professor aronnax captain nemo said we'll show you a style of hunting with which you aren't yet familiar we'll take no pity on these ferocious cetaceans they are merely mouth and teeth mouth and teeth there's no better way to describe the long-skulled sperm whale whose length sometimes exceeds twenty-five meters the enormous head of this cetacean occupies about a third of its body better armed than a baleen whale whose upper jaw is adorned solely with whalebone the sperm whale is equipped with twenty-five huge teeth that are twenty centimeters high have cylindrical conical summits and weigh two pounds each in the top part of this enormous head inside big cavities separated by cartilage you'll find three hundred to four hundred kilograms of that valuable oil called spermaceti the sperm whale is an awkward animal more tadpole than fish as professor fredal has noted it's poorly constructed being defective so to speak over the whole left side of its frame with good eyesight only in its right eye meanwhile the monstrous herd kept coming closer it had seen the baleen whales and was preparing to attack you could tell in advance that the sperm whales would be victorious not only because they were better built for fighting than their harmless adversaries but also because they could stay longer under water before returning to breathe at the surface there was just time to run to the rescue of the baleen whales the nautilus proceeded to mid-water conseil ned and i sat in front of the lounge windows captain nemo made his way to the helmsman's side to operate his submersible as an engine of destruction soon i felt the beats of our propeller getting faster and we picked up speed 
the battle between sperm whales and baleen whales had already begun when the nautilus arrived it maneuvered to cut into the herd of long-skulled predators at first the latter showed little concern at the sight of this new monster meddling in the battle but they soon had to sidestep its thrusts what a struggle ned land quickly grew enthusiastic and even ended up applauding brandished in its captain's hands the nautilus was simply a fearsome harpoon he hurled it at those fleshy masses and ran them clean through leaving behind two squirming animal halves as for those daunting strokes of the tail hitting our sides the ship never felt them no more than the collisions it caused one sperm whale exterminated it ran at another tacked on the spot so as not to miss its prey went ahead or astern obeyed its rudder dived when the cetacean sank to deeper strata rose when it returned to the surface struck it head-on or slantwise hacked at it or tore it and from every direction and at any speed skewered it with its dreadful spur what bloodshed what a hubbub on the surface of the waves what sharp hisses and snorts unique to these frightened animals their tails churned that normally peaceful strata into actual billows this homeric slaughter dragged on for an hour and the long-skulled predators couldn't get away several times ten or twelve of them teamed up trying to crush the nautilus with their sheer mass through the windows you could see their enormous mouths paved with teeth their fearsome eyes losing all self-control ned land hurled threats and insults at them you could feel them clinging to the submersible like hounds atop a wild boar in the underbrush but by forcing the pace of its propeller the nautilus carried them off dragged them under or brought them back to the upper levels of the waters untroubled by their enormous weight or their powerful grip finally this mass of sperm whales thinned out the waves grew tranquil again i felt us rising to the surface of the ocean the hatch opened and we rushed onto the platform the sea was covered with mutilated corpses a fearsome explosion couldn't have slashed torn or shredded these fleshy masses with greater violence we were floating in the midst of gigantic bodies bluish on the back whitish on the belly and all deformed by enormous protuberances a few frightened sperm whales were fleeing toward the horizon the waves were dyed red over an area of several miles and the nautilus was floating in the middle of a sea of blood captain nemo rejoined us well mr land he said well sir replied the canadian whose enthusiasm had subsided it's a dreadful sight for sure but i'm a hunter not a butcher and this is plain butchery it was a slaughter of destructive animals the captain replied and the nautilus is no butcher knife i prefer my harpoon the canadian answered to each his own the captain replied staring intently at ned land i was in dread the latter would give way to some violent outburst that might have had deplorable consequences but his anger was diverted by the sight of a baleen whale that the nautilus had pulled alongside of just then this animal had been unable to escape the teeth of those sperm whales i recognized the southern right whale its head squat its body dark all over anatomically it's distinguished from the white whale and the black right whale by the fusion of its seven cervical vertebra and it numbers two more ribs than its relatives floating on its side its belly riddled with bites the poor cetacean was dead still hanging from the tip of its mutilated fin was a little baby whale that it had been unable to rescue from the slaughter 
its open mouth let water flow through its whalebone like a murmuring surf captain nemo guided the nautilus next to the animal's corpse two of his men climbed onto the whale's flank and to my astonishment i saw them draw from its udders all the milk they held in other words enough to fill two or three casks the captain offered me a cup of this still warm milk i couldn't help showing my distaste for such a beverage he assured me that this milk was excellent no different from cow's milk i sampled it and agreed so this milk was a worthwhile reserve ration for us because in the form of salt butter or cheese it would provide a pleasant change of pace from our standard fare from that day on i noted with some uneasiness that ned land's attitudes toward captain nemo grew worse and worse and i decided to keep a close watch on the canadian's movements and activities end of part two chapter twelve Part 2, Chapter 13 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 13, The Ice Bank. The Nautilus resumed its unruffled southbound heading. It went along the 50th meridian with considerable speed would it go to the pole i didn't think so because every previous attempt to reach this spot on the globe had failed besides the season was already quite advanced since march thirteen on antarctic shores corresponds with september thirteen in the northernmost regions which marks the beginning of the equinoctial period on march fourteen at latitude fifty five degrees i spotted floating ice plain pale bits of rubble twenty to twenty-five feet long which formed reefs over which the sea burst into foam the nautilus stayed on the surface of the ocean having fished in the arctic seas ned land was already familiar with the sight of icebergs conseil and i were marveling at them for the first time in the sky toward the southern horizon there stretched a dazzling white band english whalers have given this the name ice blink no matter how heavy the clouds may be they can't obscure this phenomenon it announces the presence of a pack or shoal of ice indeed larger blocks of ice soon appeared their brilliance varying at the whim of the mists some of these masses displayed green veins as if scrawled with undulating lines of copper sulfate others looked like enormous amethysts letting the light penetrate their insides the latter reflected the sun's rays from a thousand facets of their crystals the former tinted with a bright limestone sheen would have supplied enough building material to make a whole marble town the farther down south we went the more these floating islands grew in numbers and prominence polar birds nested on them by the thousands these were petrels cape pigeons or puffins and their calls were deafening mistaking the nautilus for the corpse of a whale some of them alighted on it and prodded its resonant sheet-iron with pecks of their beaks during this navigating in the midst of the ice captain nemo often stayed on the platform he observed these deserted waterways carefully i saw his calm eyes sometimes perk up 
in these polar seas forbidden to man did he feel right at home the lord of these unreachable regions perhaps but he didn't say he stood still reviving only when his pilot's instincts took over then steering his nautilus with consummate dexterity he skillfully dodged the masses of ice some of which measured several miles in length their heights varying from seventy to eighty meters often the horizon seemed completely closed off abreast of latitude sixty degrees every passageway had disappeared searching with care captain nemo soon found a narrow opening into which he brazenly slipped well aware however that it would close behind him guided by his skillful hands the nautilus passed by all these different masses of ice which are classified by size and shape with a precision that enraptured conseil icebergs or mountains ice fields or smooth limitless tracts drift ice or floating flows packs or broken tracts called patches when they're circular and streams when they form long strips the temperature was fairly low exposed to the outside air the thermometer marked minus two degrees to minus three degrees centigrade but we were warmly dressed in furs for which seals and aquatic bears had paid the price evenly heated by all its electric equipment the nautilus's interior defied the most intense cold moreover to find a bearable temperature the ship had only to sink just a few meters beneath the waves two months earlier we would have enjoyed perpetual daylight in this latitude but night already fell for three or four hours and later it would cast six months of shadow over these circumpolar regions on march fifteen we passed beyond the latitude of the south shetland and south orkney islands the captain told me that many tribes of seals used to inhabit these shores but english and american whalers in a frenzy of destruction slaughtered all the adults including pregnant females and where life and activity once existed those fishermen left behind only silence and death going along the fifty-fifth meridian the nautilus cut the antarctic circle on march sixteenth near eight o'clock in the morning ice completely surrounded us and closed off the horizon nevertheless captain nemo went from passageway to passageway always proceeding south but where is he going i asked straight ahead conseil replied ultimately when he can't go any farther he'll stop i wouldn't bet on it i replied and in all honesty i confess that this venturesome excursion was far from displeasing to me i can't express the intensity of my amazement at the beauties of these new regions the ice struck superb poses here its general effect suggested an oriental town with countless minarets and mosques there a city in ruins flung to the ground by convulsions in the earth these views were varied continuously by the sun's oblique rays or were completely swallowed up by gray mists in the middle of blizzards then explosions cave-ins and great iceberg somersaults would occur all around us altering the scenery like the changing landscape in a diorama if the nautilus was submerged during these losses of balance we heard the resulting noises spread under the waters with frightful intensity and the collapse of these masses created daunting eddies down to the ocean's lower strata 
the nautilus then rolled and pitched like a ship left to the fury of the elements often no longer seeing any way out i thought we were imprisoned for good but captain nemo guided by his instincts discovered new passageways from the tiniest indications he was never wrong when he observed slender threads of bluish water streaking through these ice fields accordingly i was sure that he had already risked his nautilus in the midst of the antarctic seas however during the day of march sixteen these tracts of ice completely barred our path it wasn't the ice bank as yet just huge ice fields cemented together by the cold this obstacle couldn't stop captain nemo and he launched his ship against the ice fields with hideous violence the nautilus went into these brittle masses like a wedge splitting them with dreadful cracklings it was an old-fashioned battering ram propelled with infinite power hurled aloft ice rubble fell back around us like hail through brute force alone the submersible carved out a channel for itself carried away by its momentum the ship sometimes mounted on top of these tracts of ice and crushed them with its weight or at other times when cooped up beneath the ice fields it split them with simple pitching movements creating wide punctures violent squalls assaulted us during the daytime thanks to certain heavy mists we couldn't see from one end of the platform to the other the wind shifted abruptly to every point on the compass the snow was piling up in such packed layers it had to be chipped loose with blows from picks even in a temperature of merely minus five degrees centigrade every outside part of the nautilus was covered with ice a ship's rigging would have been unusable because all its tackle would have jammed in the grooves of the pulleys only a craft without sails driven by an electric motor that needed no coal could face such high latitudes under these conditions the barometer generally stayed quite low it fell as far as seventy three point five centimeters our compass indications no longer offered any guarantees the deranged needles would mark contradictory directions as we approached the southern magnetic pole which doesn't coincide with the south pole proper in fact according to the astronomer hastine this magnetic pole is located fairly close to latitude seventy degrees and longitude one hundred and thirty degrees or abiding by the observations of louis isidore du perret in longitude one thirty five degrees and latitude seventy degrees thirty minutes hence we had to transport compasses to different parts of the ship take many readings and strike an average often we would chart our course only by guesswork a less than satisfactory method in the midst of these winding passageways whose landmarks change continuously at last on march eighteen after twenty futile assaults the nautilus was decisively held in check no longer was it an ice stream patch or field it was an endless immovable barrier formed by ice mountains fused to each other the ice bank the canadian told me for ned land as well as for every navigator before us i knew that this was the great insurmountable obstacle when the sun appeared for an instant near noon captain nemo took a reasonably accurate sight that gave our position as longitude fifty one degrees thirty minutes and latitude sixty seven degrees thirty nine minutes south this was a position already well along in these antarctic regions as for the liquid surface of the sea there was no longer any semblance of it before our eyes 
before the nautilus's spur there lay vast broken plains a tangle of confused chunks with all the helter-skelter unpredictability typical of a river's surface a short while before its ice breakup but in this case the proportions were gigantic here and there stood sharp peaks lean spires that rose as high as two hundred feet farther off a succession of steeply cut cliffs sporting a grayish tint huge mirrors that reflected the sparse rays of the sun half drowned in mist beyond a stark silence reigned in this desolate natural setting a silence barely broken by the flapping wings of petrels or puffins by this point everything was frozen even sound so the nautilus had to halt in its venturesome course among these tracts of ice sir ned land told me that day if your captain goes any farther yes he'll be a superman how so ned because nobody can clear the ice bank your captain's a powerful man but damnation he isn't more powerful than nature if she draws a boundary line there you stop like it or not correct ned land but i still want to know what's behind this ice bank behold my greatest source of irritation a wall master is right conseil said walls were invented simply to frustrate scientists all walls should be banned fine the canadian put in but we already know what's behind this ice bank what i asked ice ice and more ice you may be sure of that ned i answered but i'm not that's why i want to see for myself well professor the canadian replied you could just drop that idea you've made it to the ice bank which is already far enough but you won't get any farther neither your captain nemo nor his nautilus and whether he wants to or not we'll head north again in other words to the land of sensible people i had to agree that ned land was right and until ships are built to navigate over tracts of ice they'll have to stop at the ice bank indeed despite its efforts despite the powerful methods it used to split this ice the nautilus was reduced to immobility ordinarily when someone can't go any farther he still has the option of returning in his tracks but here it was just as impossible to turn back as to go forward because every passageway had closed behind us and if our submersible remained even slightly stationary it would be frozen in without delay which is exactly what happened near two o'clock in the afternoon and fresh ice kept forming over the ship's sides with astonishing speed i had to admit that captain nemo's leadership had been most injudicious just then i was on the platform observing the situation for a while the captain said to me well professor what think you i think we're trapped captain trapped what do you mean i mean we can't go forward backward or sideways i think that's the standard definition of trapped at least in the civilized world so professor aronnax you think the nautilus won't be able to float clear only with the greatest difficulty captain since the season is already too advanced for you to depend on an ice breakup oh professor captain nemo replied in an ironic tone you never change you see only impediments and obstacles i promise you not only will the nautilus float clear it will go farther still farther south 
I asked, gaping at the captain. Yes, sir, it will go to the pole. To the pole, I exclaimed, unable to keep back a movement of disbelief. Yes, the captain replied coolly, the Antarctic pole, that unknown spot crossed by every meridian on the globe. As you know, I do whatever I like with my Nautilus. Yes, I did know that. I knew this man was daring to the point of being foolhardy, but to overcome all the obstacles around the South Pole, even more unattainable than the North Pole, which still hadn't been reached by the boldest navigators, wasn't this an absolutely insane undertaking, one that could occur only in the brain of a madman? It then dawned on me to ask Captain Nemo if he had already discovered this pole, which no human being had ever trod underfoot. No, sir he answered me but we'll discover it together where others have failed i'll succeed never before has my nautilus cruised so far into these southernmost seas but i repeat it will go farther still i'd like to believe you captain i went on in a tone of some sarcasm oh i do believe you let's forge ahead there are no obstacles for us let's shatter this ice bank let's blow it up and if it still resists let's put wings on the nautilus and fly over it over it professor captain nemo replied serenely no not over it but under it under it i exclaimed a sudden insight into captain nemo's plans had just flashed through my mind i understood the marvelous talents of his nautilus would be put to work once again in this superhuman undertaking i can see we're starting to understand each other professor captain nemo told me with a half smile you already glimpse the potential myself i'd say the success of this attempt maneuvers that aren't feasible for an ordinary ship are easy for the nautilus if a continent emerges at the pole we'll stop at that continent but on the other hand if open sea washes the pole we'll go to that very place right i said carried away by the captain's logic even though the surface of the sea has solidified into ice its lower strata are still open thanks to that divine justice that puts the maximum density of salt water one degree above its freezing point and if i'm not mistaken the submerged part of this ice bank is in a four to one ratio to its emerging part very nearly professor for each foot of iceberg above the sea there are three more below now then since these ice mountains don't exceed a height of 100 meters they sink only to a depth of 300 meters and what are 300 meters to the nautilus a mere nothing sir we could even go to greater depths and find that temperature layer common to all ocean water and there we'd brave with impunity the minus 30 degrees or minus 40 degrees cold on the surface true sir very true i replied with growing excitement our sole difficulty captain nemo went on lies in our staying submerged for several days without renewing our air supply that's all i answered the nautilus has huge air tanks we'll fill them up and they'll supply all the oxygen we need good thinking professor aronnax the captain replied with a smile but since i don't want to be accused of foolhardiness i'm giving you all my objections in advance you have more just one 
if a sea exists at the south pole it's possible this sea may be completely frozen over so we couldn't come up to the surface my dear sir have you forgotten that the nautilus is armed with a fearsome spur couldn't it be launched diagonally against those tracts of ice which would break open from the impact ah professor you're full of ideas today besides captain i added with still greater enthusiasm why wouldn't we find open sea at the south pole just as at the north pole the cold temperature poles and the geographical poles don't coincide in either the northern or southern hemispheres and until proof to the contrary we can assume these two spots on the earth feature either a continent or an ice-free ocean i think as you do professor aronnax captain nemo replied i'll only point out that after raising so many objections against my plan you're now crushing me under arguments in its favor captain nemo was right i was outdoing him in daring it was i who was sweeping him to the pole i was leading the way i was out in front but no you silly fool captain nemo already knew the pros and cons of this question and it amused him to see you flying off into impossible fantasies nevertheless he didn't waste an instant at his signal the chief officer appeared the two men held a quick exchange in their incomprehensible language and either the chief officer had been alerted previously or he found the plan feasible because he showed no surprise but as unemotional as he was he couldn't have been more impeccably emotionless than conseil when i told the fine lad our intention of pushing on to the south pole he greeted my announcement with the usual as master wishes and i had to be content with that as for ned land no human shoulders ever executed a higher shrug than the pair belonging to our canadian honestly sir he told me you and your captain nemo i pity you both but we will go to the pole mr land maybe but you won't come back and ned land re-entered his cabin to keep from doing something desperate he said as he left me meanwhile preparations for this daring attempt were getting under way the nautilus's powerful pumps forced air down into the tanks and stored it under high pressure near four o'clock captain nemo informed me that the platform hatches were about to be closed i took a last look at the dense ice bank we were going to conquer the weather was fair the skies reasonably clear the cold quite brisk namely minus twelve degrees centigrade but after the wind had lulled this temperature didn't seem too unbearable equipped with picks some ten men climbed onto the nautilus's sides and cracked loose the ice around the ship's lower plating which was soon set free this operation was swiftly executed because the fresh ice was still thin we all re-entered the interior the main ballast tanks were filled with the water that hadn't yet congealed at our line of flotation the nautilus submerged without delay i took a seat in the lounge with conseil through the open window we stared at the lower strata of this southernmost ocean the thermometer rose again the needle on the pressure gauge swerved over its dial about three hundred meters down just as captain nemo had predicted we cruised beneath the undulating surface of the ice bank but the nautilus sank deeper still it reached a depth of eight hundred meters at the surface this water gave a temperature of minus twelve degrees centigrade but now it gave no more than minus ten degrees centigrade two degrees had already been gained 
thanks to its heating equipment, the Nautilus's temperature, needless to say, stayed at a much higher degree. Every maneuver was accomplished with extraordinary precision. With all due respect to Master, Conseil told me, we'll pass it by. I fully expect to, I replied in a tone of deep conviction. Now, in open water, the Nautilus took a direct course to the pole without veering from the 52nd meridian. From 67 degrees 30 minutes to 90 degrees, 22 and a half degrees of latitude were left to cross, in other words, slightly more than 500 leagues. The Nautilus adopted an average speed of 26 miles per hour, the speed of an express train. If it kept up this pace, 40 hours would do it for reaching the pole. For part of the night, the novelty of our circumstances kept Conseil and me at the lounge window. The sea was lit by our beacon's electric rays, but the depths were deserted. Fish didn't linger in these imprisoned waters. Here they found merely a passageway for going from the Antarctic Ocean to open sea at the pole. Our progress was swift. You could feel it in the vibrations of the long steel hull. Near two o'clock in the morning, I went to snatch a few hours of sleep. Conseil did likewise. I didn't encounter Captain Nemo while going down the gangways. I assumed that he was keeping to the pilot house. The next day, March 19, at five o'clock in the morning, I was back at my post in the lounge. The electric log indicated that the Nautilus had reduced speed. By then, it was rising to the surface, but cautiously, while slowly emptying its ballast tanks. My heart was pounding. Would we emerge into the open and find the polar air again? No. A jolt told me that the Nautilus had bumped the underbelly of the ice bank, still quite thick to judge from the hollowness of the accompanying noise. Indeed, we had struck bottom, to use nautical terminology, but in the opposite direction and at a depth of 3,000 feet. That gave us 4,000 feet of ice overhead, of which 1,000 feet emerged above water. So the ice bank was higher here than we had found it on the outskirts, a circumstance less than encouraging. Several times that day, the Nautilus repeated the same experiment, and always it bumped against this surface that formed a ceiling above it. At certain moments, the ship encountered ice at a depth of 900 meters, denoting a thickness of 1,200 meters, of which 300 meters rose above the level of the ocean. This height had tripled since the moment the Nautilus had dived beneath the waves. I meticulously noted these different depths, obtaining the underwater profile of this upside-down mountain chain that stretched beneath the sea. By evening, there was still no improvement in our situation. The ice stayed between 400 and 500 meters deep. It was obviously shrinking, but what a barrier still lay between us and the surface of the ocean. By then, it was eight o'clock. The air inside the Nautilus should have been renewed four hours earlier, following daily practice on board. But I didn't suffer very much, although Captain Nemo hadn't yet made demands on the supplementary oxygen in his air tanks. That night, my sleep was fitful. Hope and fear besieged me by turns. I got up several times. The Nautilus continued groping. Near three o'clock in the morning, I observed that we encountered the ice bank's underbelly at a depth of only 50 meters, so only 150 feet separated us from the surface of the water. 
little by little the ice bank was turning into an ice field again the mountains were changing back into plains my eyes didn't leave the pressure gauge we kept rising on a diagonal going along the shiny surface that sparkled beneath our electric rays above and below the ice bank was subsiding in long gradients mile after mile it was growing thinner finally at six o'clock in the morning on that memorable day of march nineteen the lounge door opened captain nemo appeared open sea he told me end of part two chapter thirteen Part two, chapter fourteen of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, an underwater tour of the world by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter fourteen, the South Pole. I rushed up onto the platform. Yes, open sea. Barely a few sparse flows some moving icebergs a sea stretching into the distance hosts of birds in the air and myriads of fish under the waters which varied from intense blue to olive green depending on the depth the thermometer marked three degrees centigrade it was as if a comparative springtime had been locked up behind that ice bank whose distant masses were outlined on the northern horizon are we at the pole i asked the captain my heart pounding i've no idea he answered me at noon we'll fix our position but will the sun show through this mist i said staring at the grayish sky no matter how faintly it shines it will be enough for me the captain replied to the south ten miles from the nautilus a solitary islet rose to a height of two hundred meters we proceeded toward it but cautiously because this sea could have been strewn with reefs in an hour we had reached the islet two hours later we had completed a full circle around it it measured four to five miles in circumference a narrow channel separated it from a considerable shore perhaps a continent whose limits we couldn't see the existence of this shore seemed to bear out commander maori's hypotheses in essence this ingenious american had noted that between the south pole and the sixtieth parallel the sea is covered with floating ice of dimensions much greater than any found in the north atlantic from this fact he drew the conclusion that the antarctic circle must contain considerable shores since icebergs can't form on the high seas but only along coastlines according to his calculations this frozen mass enclosing the southernmost pole forms a vast ice cap whose width must reach four thousand kilometers meanwhile to avoid running aground the nautilus halted three cable lengths from a strand crowned by superb piles of rocks the skiff was launched to sea two crewmen carrying instruments the captain conseil and i were on board it was ten o'clock in the morning I hadn't seen Ned Land. No doubt, in the presence of the South Pole, the Canadian hated having to eat his words. A few strokes of the oar brought the skiff to the sand, where it ran aground. Just as Conseil was about to jump ashore, I held him back. Sir, I told Captain Nemo, to you belongs the honor of first setting foot on this shore.
yes sir the captain replied and if i have no hesitation in treading this polar soil it's because no human being until now has left a footprint here so saying he leaped lightly onto the sand his heart must have been throbbing with intense excitement he scaled an overhanging rock that ended in a small promontory and there mute and motionless with crossed arms and blazing eyes he seemed to be laying claim to these southernmost regions after spending five minutes in this trance he turned to us whenever you're ready sir he called to me i got out conseil at my heels leaving the two men in the skiff over an extensive area the soil consisted of that igneous gravel called tuff reddish in color as if made from crushed bricks the ground was covered with slag lava flows and pumice stones its volcanic origin was unmistakable in certain localities thin smoke holes gave off a sulfurous odor showing that the inner fires still kept their wide-ranging power nevertheless when i scaled a high escarpment i could see no volcanoes within a radius of several miles in these antarctic districts as is well known sir james clark ross had found the craters of mount erebus and mount terror in fully active condition on the one hundred and sixty seventh meridian at latitude seventy seven degrees thirty two minutes the vegetation on this desolate continent struck me as quite limited a few lichens of the species eusnea melanoxanthrea sprawled over the black rocks the whole meager flora of this region consisted of certain microscopic buds rudimentary diatoms made up of a type of cell positioned between two quartz rich shells plus long purple and crimson fucus plants buoyed by small air bladders and washed up on the coast by the surf the beach was strewn with mollusks small mussels limpets smooth heart-shaped cockles and especially some sea butterflies with oblong membrane-filled bodies whose heads are formed from two rounded lobes i also saw myriads of those northernmost sea butterflies three centimeters long which a baleen whale can swallow by the thousands in one gulp the open waters at the shoreline were alive with these delightful pteropods true butterflies of the sea among other zoophytes present in these shallows there were a few coral tree forms that according to sir james clark ross live in these antarctic seas at depths as great as one thousand meters then small alcyon coral belonging to the species procellaria pelagica also a large number of starfish unique to these climes plus some feather stars spangling the sand but it was in the air that life was superabundant there various species of birds flew and fluttered by the thousands deafening us with their calls crowding the rocks other fowl watched without fear as we passed and pressed familiarly against our feet these were auks as agile and supple in water where they are sometimes mistaken for fast bonito as they are clumsy and heavy on land they uttered outlandish calls and participated in numerous public assemblies that featured much noise but little action among other fowl i noted some sheath bills from the wading bird family the size of pigeons white in color the beak short and conical the eyes framed by red circles conseil laid in a supply of them because when they're properly cooked these winged creatures make a pleasant dish 
in the air there passed sooty albatross in four-meter wingspans birds aptly dubbed vultures of the ocean also gigantic petrels including several with arching wings enthusiastic eaters of seal that are known as quebrantahusis editor's note spanish for ospreys and cape pigeons a sort of small duck the tops of their bodies black and white in short a whole series of petrels some whitish with wings trimmed in brown others blue and exclusive to these antarctic seas the former so oily i told conseil that inhabitants of the faroe islands simply fit the bird with a wick then light it up with that minor addition conseil replied these fowl would make perfect lamps after this we should insist that nature equip them with wicks in advance half a mile farther on the ground was completely riddled with penguin nests egg-laying burrows from which numerous birds emerged later captain nemo had hundreds of them hunted because their black flesh is highly edible they brayed like donkeys the size of a goose with slate-colored bodies white undersides and lemon-colored neck bands these animals let themselves be stoned to death without making any effort to get away meanwhile the mists didn't clear and by eleven o'clock the sun still hadn't made an appearance its absence disturbed me without it no sights were possible then how could we tell whether we had reached the pole when i rejoined captain nemo i found him leaning silently against a piece of rock and staring at the sky he seemed impatient baffled but what could we do this daring and powerful man couldn't control the sun as he did the sea noon arrived without the orb of day appearing for a single instant you couldn't even find its hiding place behind the curtain of mist and soon this mist began to condense into snow until tomorrow the captain said simply and we went back to the nautilus amid flurries in the air during our absence the nets had been spread and i observed with fascination the fish just hauled on board the antarctic seas serve as a refuge for an extremely large number of migratory fish that flee from storms in the subpolar zones in truth only to slide down the gullets of porpoises and seals i noted some one decimeter southern bullhead a species of whitish cartilaginous fish overrun with bluish-gray stripes and armed with stings then some antarctic rabbit fish three feet long the body very slender the skin a smooth silver white the head rounded the top side furnished with three fins the snout ending in a trunk that curved back toward the mouth i sampled its flesh but found it tasteless despite conseil's views which were largely approving the blizzard lasted until the next day it was impossible to stay on the platform from the lounge where i was writing up the incidents of this excursion to the polar continent i could hear the calls of petrel and albatross cavorting in the midst of the turmoil the nautilus didn't stay idle and cruising along the coast it advanced some ten miles farther south amid the half-light left by the sun as it skimmed the edge of the horizon the next day march twenty it stopped snowing the cold was a little more brisk the thermometer marked minus two degrees centigrade the mist had cleared and on that day i hoped our noon sights could be accomplished since captain nemo hadn't yet appeared only conseil and i were taken ashore by the skiff 
the soil's nature was still the same volcanic traces of lava slag and basaltic rock were everywhere but i couldn't find the crater that had vomited them up there as yonder myriads of birds enlivened this part of the polar continent but they had to share their dominion with huge herds of marine mammals that looked at us with gentle eyes these were seals of various species some stretched out on the ground others lying on drifting ice floes several leaving or re-entering the sea having never dealt with man they didn't run off at our approach and i counted enough of them thereabouts to provision a couple hundred ships ye gods conseil said it's fortunate that ned land didn't come with us why so conseil because that madcap hunter would kill every animal here every animal may be overstating it but in truth i doubt we could keep our canadian friend from harpooning some of these magnificent cetaceans which would be an affront to captain nemo since he hates to slay harmless beasts needlessly he's right certainly conseil but tell me haven't you finished classifying these superb specimens of marine fauna master is well aware conseil replied that i'm not seasoned in practical application when master has told me these animals names they're seals and walruses to genera our scholarly conseil hastened to say that belong to the family pinnipedia order carnivora group unguicolata subclass monodelphia class mammalia branch vertebrata very nice conseil i replied but these two genera of seals and walruses are each divided into species and if i'm not mistaken we now have a chance to actually look at them let's it was eight o'clock in the morning we had four hours to ourselves before the sun could be productively observed i guided our steps toward a huge bay that made a crescent-shaped incision in the granite cliffs along the beach there all about us i swear that the shores and ice floes were crowded with marine mammals as far as the eye could see and i involuntarily looked around for old proteus that mythical shepherd who guarded king neptune's immense flocks to be specific these were seals they formed distinct male and female groups the father watching over his family the mother suckling her little ones the stronger youngsters emancipated a few paces away when these mammals wanted to relocate they moved in little jumps made by contracting their bodies clumsily helped by their imperfectly developed flippers which as with their manatee relatives form actual forearms in the water their ideal element i must say these animals swim wonderfully thanks to their flexible backbones narrow pelvises close-cropped hair and webbed feet resting on shore they assumed extremely graceful positions consequently their gentle features their sensitive expressions equal to those of the loveliest women their soft limpid eyes their charming poses led the ancients to glorify them by metamorphosizing the males into sea gods and the females into mermaids i drew conseil's attention to the considerable growth of the cerebral lobes found in these intelligent cetaceans no mammal except man has more abundant cerebral matter accordingly seals are quite capable of being educated 
they make good pets and together with certain other naturalists i think these animals can be properly trained to perform yeoman service as hunting dogs for fishermen most of these seals were sleeping on the rocks or the sand among those properly termed seals which have no external ears unlike sea lions whose ears protrude i observed several varieties of the species stenorhynchus three meters long with white hair bulldog heads and armed with ten teeth in each jaw four incisors in both the upper and lower plus two big canines shaped like a fleur-de-lis among them slithered some sea elephants a type of seal with a short flexible trunk these are the giants of the species with a circumference of twenty feet and a length of ten meters they didn't move as we approached are these animals dangerous conseil asked me only if they're attacked i replied but when these giant seals defend their little ones their fury is dreadful and it isn't rare for them to smash a fisherman's longboat to bits they're within their rights conseil answered i don't say nay two miles further on we were stopped by a promontory that screened the bay from southerly winds it dropped straight down to the sea and surf foamed against it from beyond this ridge there came fearsome bellows such as a herd of cattle might produce gracious conseil put in a choir of bulls no i said a choir of walruses are they fighting with each other either fighting or playing with all due respect to master this we must see then see it we must conseil and there we were climbing these blackish rocks amid sudden landslides and over stones slippery with ice more than once i took a tumble at the expense of my backside conseil more cautious or more stable barely faltered and would help me up saying if master's legs would kindly adopt a wider stance master will keep his balance arriving at the topmost ridge of this promontory i could see vast white plains covered with walruses these animals were playing among themselves they were howling not in anger but in glee walruses resemble seals in the shape of their bodies and the arrangement of their limbs but their lower jaws lack canines and incisors and as for their upper canines they consist of two tusks eighty centimeters long with a circumference of thirty-three centimeters at the socket made of solid ivory without striations harder than elephant tusks and less prone to yellowing these teeth are in great demand accordingly walruses are the victims of a mindless hunting that will soon destroy them all since their hunters indiscriminately slaughter pregnant females and youngsters and over four thousand individuals are destroyed annually passing near these unusual animals i could examine them at my leisure since they didn't stir their hides were rough and heavy a tan color leaning toward a reddish brown their coats were short and less than abundant some were four meters long more tranquil and less fearful than their northern relatives they posted no sentinels on guard duty at the approaches to their campsite after examining this community of walruses i decided to return in my tracks it was eleven o'clock and if captain nemo found conditions favorable for taking his sights i wanted to be present at the operation but i held no hopes that the sun would make an appearance that day it was hidden from our eyes by clouds squeezed together on the horizon 
apparently the jealous orb didn't want to reveal this inaccessible spot on the globe to any human being yet i decided to return to the nautilus we went along a steep narrow path that ran over the cliff's summit by eleven thirty we had arrived at our landing place the beached skiff had brought the captain ashore i spotted him standing on a chunk of basalt his instruments were beside him his eyes were focused on the northern horizon along which the sun was sweeping in its extended arc i found a place near him and waited without speaking noon arrived and just as on the day before the sun didn't put in an appearance it was sheer bad luck our noon sights were still lacking if we couldn't obtain them tomorrow we would finally have to give up any hope of fixing our position in essence it was precisely march twenty tomorrow the twenty-first was the day of the equinox the sun would disappear below the horizon for six months not counting refraction and after its disappearance the long polar night would begin following the september equinox the sun had emerged above the northerly horizon rising in long spirals until december twenty one at that time the summer solstice of these southernmost districts the sun had started back down and tomorrow it would cast its last rays i shared my thoughts and fears with captain nemo you're right professor aronnax he told me if i can't take the sun's altitude tomorrow i won't be able to try again for another six months but precisely because sailor's luck has led me into these seas on march twenty one it will be easy to get our bearings if the noonday sun does appear before our eyes why easy captain because when the orb of day sweeps in such long spirals it's difficult to measure its exact altitude above the horizon and our instruments are open to committing serious errors then what can we do i use only my chronometer captain nemo answered me at noon tomorrow march twenty one if after accounting for refraction the sun's disk is cut exactly in half by the northern horizon that will mean i'm at the south pole right i said nevertheless it isn't mathematically exact proof because the equinox needn't fall precisely at noon no doubt sir but the error will be under one hundred meters and that's close enough for us until tomorrow then captain nemo went back on board conseil and i stayed behind until five o'clock surveying the beach observing and studying the only unusual object i picked up was an ox egg of remarkable size for which a collector would have paid more than one thousand francs its cream-colored tint plus the streaks and markings that decorated it like so many hieroglyphics made it a rare trinket i placed it in conseil's hands and holding it like precious porcelain from china that cautious sure-footed lad got it back to the nautilus in one piece there i put this rare egg inside one of the glass cases in the museum i ate supper feasting with appetite on an excellent piece of seal liver whose flavor reminded me of pork then i went to bed but not without praying like a good hindu for the favors of the radiant orb the next day march twenty one bright and early at five o'clock in the morning i climbed onto the platform i found captain nemo there the weather is clearing a bit he told me i have high hopes 
after breakfast we'll make our way ashore and choose an observation post this issue settled i went to find ned land i wanted to take him with me the obstinate canadian refused and i could clearly see that his tight-lipped mood and his bad temper were growing by the day under the circumstances i ultimately wasn't sorry that he refused in truth there were too many seals ashore and it would never do to expose this impulsive fisherman to such temptations breakfast over i made my way ashore the nautilus had gone a few more miles during the night it lay well out a good league from the coast which was crowned by a sharp peak four hundred to five hundred meters high in addition to me the skiff carried captain nemo two crewmen and the instruments in other words a chronometer a spyglass and a barometer during our crossing i saw numerous baleen whales belonging to the three species unique to these southernmost seas the bowhead whale or right whale according to the english which has no dorsal fin the humpback whale from the genus Balaenoptera, in other words winged whales beasts with wrinkled bellies and huge whitish fins that genus name regardless do not yet form wings and the finback whale yellowish brown the swiftest of all cetaceans this powerful animal is audible from far away when it sends up towering spouts of air and steam that resemble swirls of smoke herds of these different mammals were playing about in the tranquil waters and i could easily see that this antarctic polar basin now served as a refuge for those cetaceans too relentlessly pursued by hunters i also noted long whitish strings of salps a type of a mollusk found in clusters and some jellyfish of large size that swayed in the eddies of the billows by nine o'clock we had pulled up to shore the sky was growing brighter clouds were fleeing to the south mists were rising from the cold surface of the water captain nemo headed toward the peak which he no doubt planned to make his observatory it was an arduous climb over sharp lava and pumice stones in the midst of air often reeking with sulfurous fumes from the smoke holes for a man out of practice at treading land the captain scaled the steepest slopes with a supple agility i couldn't equal and which would have been envied by hunters of pyrenees mountain goats it took us two hours to reach the summit of this half crystal half basalt peak from there our eyes scanned a vast sea which scrawled its boundary line firmly against the background of the northern sky at our feet dazzling tracts of white over our heads a pale azure clear of mists north of us the sun's disk like a ball of fire already cut into by the edge of the horizon from the heart of the waters jets of liquid rising like hundreds of magnificent bouquets far off like a sleeping cetacean the nautilus behind us to the south and east an immense shore a chaotic heap of rocks and ice whose limits we couldn't see arriving at the summit of this peak captain nemo carefully determined its elevation by means of his barometer since he had to take this factor into account in his noon sights at eleven forty five the sun by then seen only by refraction looked like a golden disk dispersing its last rays over this deserted continent and down to the seas not yet ploughed by the ships of man 
captain nemo had brought a spyglass with a reticular eyepiece, which corrected the sun's refraction by means of a mirror and he used it to observe the orb sinking little by little along a very extended diagonal that reached below the horizon i held the chronometer my heart was pounding mightily if the lower half of the sun's disk disappeared just as the chronometer said noon we were right at the pole noon i called the south pole captain nemo replied in a solemn voice handing me the spyglass which showed the orb of day cut into two exactly equal parts by the horizon i stared at the last rays wreathing this peak while shadows were gradually climbing its gradients just then resting his hand on my shoulder captain nemo said to me in sixteen hundred sir the dutchman garrick was swept by storms and currents reaching latitude sixty-four degrees south and discovering the south shetland islands on january seventeen seventeen seventy three the famous captain cook went along the thirty-eighth meridian arriving at latitude sixty-seven degrees thirty minutes and on january thirty seventeen seventy four along the one hundred and ninth meridian he reached latitude seventy-one degrees fifteen minutes in eighteen nineteen the russian bellinghausen lay on the sixty-ninth parallel and in eighteen twenty one on the sixty-sixth at longitude one hundred and eleven degrees west in eighteen twenty the englishman bransfield stopped at sixty-five degrees that same year the american morell whose reports are dubious went along the forty-second meridian finding open sea at latitude seventy degrees fourteen minutes in eighteen twenty five the englishman powell was unable to get beyond sixty two degrees that same year a humble seal fisherman the englishman weddell went as far as latitude seventy two degrees fourteen minutes on the thirty fifth meridian and as far as seventy four degrees fifteen minutes on the thirty sixth in eighteen twenty nine the englishman forster commander of the chanticleer laid claim to the antarctic continent in latitude sixty three degrees twenty six minutes and longitude sixty six degrees twenty six minutes on february one eighteen thirty one the englishman biscoe discovered enderby land at latitude sixty eight degrees fifty minutes adelaide land at latitude sixty seven degrees on february five eighteen thirty two and graham land at latitude sixty four degrees forty five minutes on february twenty one in eighteen thirty eight the frenchman dumont d'urville stopped at the ice bank in latitude sixty two degrees fifty seven minutes sighting the louis philippe peninsula on january twenty one two years later at a new southerly position of sixty six degrees thirty minutes he named the adelaide coast and eight days later the clary coast at sixty four degrees forty minutes in eighteen thirty eight the american wilkes advanced as far as the sixty ninth parallel on the one hundredth meridian in eighteen thirty nine the englishman balleny discovered the sabrina coast at the edge of the polar circle lastly on january twelve eighteen forty two with his ships the erebus and the terror the englishman sir james clark ross found victoria land in latitude seventy degrees fifty six minutes 
and longitude 171 degrees 7 minutes east on the 23rd of that same month he reached the 74th parallel a position denoting the farthest south attained until then on the 27th he lay at 76 degrees 8 minutes on the 28th at 77 degrees 32 minutes on february 2nd at 78 degrees 4 minutes and late in 1842 he returned to 71 degrees but couldn't get beyond it well now in 1868 on this 21st day of march i myself captain nemo have reached the south pole at 90 degrees and i hereby claim this entire part of the globe equal to one-sixth of the known continents in the name of which sovereign captain in my own name sir so saying captain nemo unfurled a black flag bearing a gold n on its quartered bunting then turning toward the orb of day whose last rays were licking at the sea's horizon farewell o sun he called disappear o radiant orb retire beneath this open sea and let six months of night spread their shadows over my new domains end of part two chapter fourteen Part 2, Chapter 15 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 15, Accident or Incident. The next day, March 22nd, at 6 o'clock in the morning, preparations for departure began the last gleams of twilight were melting into night the cold was brisk the constellations were glittering with startling intensity the wonderful southern cross polar star of the antarctic regions twinkled at its zenith the thermometer marked minus twelve degrees centigrade and a fresh breeze left a sharp nip in the air ice floes were increasing over the open water the sea was starting to congeal everywhere numerous blackish patches were spreading over its surface announcing the imminent formation of fresh ice obviously this southernmost basin froze over during its six-month winter and became utterly inaccessible what happened to the whales during this period no doubt they went beneath the ice bank to find more feasible seas as for seals and walruses they were accustomed to living in the harshest climates and stayed on in these icy waterways these animals know by instinct how to gouge holes in the ice fields and keep them continually open they go to these holes to breathe once the birds have migrated northward to escape the cold these marine mammals remain as sole lords of the polar continent meanwhile the ballast tanks filled with water and the nautilus sank slowly at a depth of one thousand feet it stopped its propeller churned the waves and it headed due north at a speed of fifteen miles per hour near the afternoon it was already cruising under the immense frozen carapace of the ice bank 
as a precaution the panels in the lounge stayed closed because the nautilus's hull could run afoul of some submerged block of ice so i spent the day putting my notes into final form my mind was completely wrapped up in my memories of the pole we had reached that inaccessible spot without facing exhaustion or danger as if our seagoing passenger carriage had glided there on railroad tracks and now we had actually started our return journey did it still have comparable surprises in store for me i felt sure it did so inexhaustible is this series of underwater wonders as it was in the five and a half months since fate had brought us on board we had cleared fourteen thousand leagues and over this track longer than the earth's equator so many fascinating or frightening incidents had beguiled our voyage that hunting trip in the crespo forests our running aground in the torres strait the coral cemetery the pearl fisheries of ceylon the arabic tunnel the fires of santorini those millions in the bay of vigo atlantis the south pole during the night all these memories crossed over from one dream to the next not giving my brain a moment's rest at three o'clock in the morning i was awakened by a violent collision i sat up in bed listening in the darkness and then was suddenly hurled into the middle of my stateroom apparently the nautilus had gone aground then heeled over sharply Leaning against the walls, I dragged myself down the gangways to the lounge, whose ceiling lights were on. The furniture had been knocked over. Fortunately, the glass cases were solidly secured at the base and had stood fast. Since we were no longer vertical, the starboard pictures were glued to the tapestries, while those to port had their lower edges hanging a foot away from the wall. So the Nautilus was lying on its starboard side, completely stationary to boot in its interior i heard the sound of footsteps and muffled voices but captain nemo didn't appear just as i was about to leave the lounge ned land and conseil entered what happened i instantly said to them i came to ask master that conseil replied damnation the canadian exclaimed i know full well what happened the nautilus has gone aground and judging from the way it's listing i don't think it'll pull through like that first time in the torres strait but i asked are we at least back on the surface of the sea we have no idea conseil replied it's easy to find out i answered i consulted the pressure gauge much to my surprise it indicated a depth of three hundred and sixty meters what's the meaning of this i exclaimed we must confer with captain nemo conseil said but where do we find him ned land asked follow me i told my two companions we left the lounge nobody in the library nobody by the central companionway or the crew's quarters i assumed that captain nemo was stationed in the pilot house best to wait the three of us returned to the lounge i'll skip over the canadian's complaints he had good grounds for an outburst i didn't answer him back letting him blow off all the steam he wanted we had been left to ourselves for twenty minutes trying to detect the tiniest noises inside the nautilus when captain nemo entered he didn't seem to see us his facial features usually so emotionless revealed a certain uneasiness 
he studied the compass and pressure gauge in silence then went and put his finger on the world map at a spot in the sector depicting the southernmost seas i hesitated to interrupt him but some moments later when he turned to me i threw back at him a phrase he had used in the torres strait an incident captain no sir he replied this time an accident serious perhaps is there any immediate danger no has the nautilus run aground yes and this accident came about through nature's unpredictability not man's incapacity no errors were committed in our maneuvers nevertheless we can't prevent a loss of balance from taking its toll one may defy human laws but no one can withstand the laws of nature captain nemo had picked an odd time to philosophize all in all this reply told me nothing may i learn sir i asked him what caused this accident an enormous block of ice an entire mountain has toppled over he answered me when an iceberg is eroded at the base by warmer waters or by repeated collisions its center of gravity rises then it somersaults it turns completely upside down that's what happened here when it overturned one of these blocks hit the nautilus as it was cruising under the waters sliding under our hull this block then raised us with irresistible power lifting us into less congested strata where we now lie on our side but can't we float the nautilus clear by emptying its ballast tanks to regain our balance that sir is being done right now you can hear the pumps working look at the needle on the pressure gauge it indicates that the nautilus is rising but this block of ice is rising with us and until some obstacle halts its upward movement our position won't change indeed the nautilus kept the same heel to starboard no doubt it would straighten up once the block came to a halt but before that happened who knew if we might not hit the underbelly of the ice bank and be hideously squeezed between two frozen surfaces i mused on all the consequences of this situation captain nemo didn't stop studying the pressure gauge since the toppling of this iceberg the nautilus had risen about one hundred and fifty feet but it still stayed at the same angle to the perpendicular suddenly a slight movement could be felt over the hull obviously the nautilus was straightening a bit objects hanging in the lounge were visibly returning to their normal positions the walls were approaching the vertical nobody said a word hearts pounding we could see and feel the ship righting itself the floor was becoming horizontal beneath our feet ten minutes went by finally we're upright i exclaimed yes captain nemo said heading to the lounge door but will we float off i asked him certainly he replied since the ballast tanks aren't yet empty and when they are the nautilus must rise to the surface of the sea the captain went out and soon i saw that at his orders the nautilus had halted its upward movement in fact it soon would have hit the underbelly of the ice bank but it had stopped in time and was floating in midwater that was a close call conseil then said yes we could have been crushed between these masses of ice or at least imprisoned between them and then with no way to renew our air supply 
yes that was a close call if it's over with ned land muttered i was unwilling to get into a pointless argument with the canadian and didn't reply moreover the panels opened just then and the outside light burst through the uncovered windows we were fully afloat as i have said but on both sides of the nautilus about ten meters away there rose dazzling walls of ice there also were walls above and below above because the ice banks underbelly spread over us like an immense ceiling below because the somersaulting block shifting little by little had found points of purchase on both side walls and had gotten jammed between them the nautilus was imprisoned in a genuine tunnel of ice about twenty meters wide and filled with quiet water so the ship could easily exit by going either ahead or astern sinking a few hundred meters deeper and then taking an open passageway beneath the ice bank the ceiling lights were off yet the lounge was still brightly lit this was due to the reflecting power of the walls of ice which threw the beams of our beacon right back at us words can't describe the effects produced by our galvanic rays on these huge whimsically sculpted blocks whose every angle ridge and facet gave off a different glow depending on the nature of the veins running inside the ice it was a dazzling mine of gems in particular sapphires and emeralds whose jets of blue and green crisscrossed here and there opaline hues of infinite subtlety raced among sparks of light that were like so many fiery diamonds their brilliance more than any eye could stand the power of our beacon was increased a hundredfold like a lamp shining through the biconvex lenses of a world-class lighthouse how beautiful conseil exclaimed yes i said it's a wonderful sight isn't it ned oh damnation yes ned land shot back it's superb i'm furious that i have to admit it nobody has ever seen the like but this sight could cost us dearly and in all honesty i think we're looking at things god never intended for human eyes ned land was right it was too beautiful all at once a yell from conseil made me turn around what is it i asked master must close his eyes master mustn't look with that conseil clapped his hands over his eyes but what's wrong my boy i've been dazzled struck blind involuntarily my eyes flew to the window but i couldn't stand the fire devouring it i realized what had happened the nautilus had just started off at great speed all the tranquil glimmers of the ice walls had then changed into blazing streaks the sparkles from these myriads of diamonds were merging with each other swept along by its propeller the nautilus was traveling through a sheath of flashing light then the panels in the lounge closed we kept our hands over our eyes which were utterly saturated with those concentric gleams that swirl before the retina when sunlight strikes too intensely it took some time to calm our troubled vision finally we lowered our hands ye gods i never would have believed it conseil said and i still don't believe it the canadian shot back when we return to shore jaded from all these natural wonders conseil added think how we'll look down on those pitiful land masses those puny works of man no the civilized world won't be good enough for us such words from the lips of this emotionless flemish boy showed that our enthusiasm was near the boiling point but the canadian didn't fail to throw his dram of cold water over us the civilized world he said shaking his head 
don't worry conseil my friend we are never going back to that world by this point it was five o'clock in the morning just then there was a collision in the nautilus's bow i realized that its spur had just bumped a block of ice it must have been a faulty maneuver because this underwater tunnel was obstructed by such blocks and didn't make for easy navigating so i had assumed that captain nemo in adjusting his course would go around each obstacle or would hug the walls and follow the windings of the tunnel in either case our forward motion wouldn't receive an absolute check nevertheless contrary to my expectations the nautilus definitely began to move backward we're going astern conseil said yes i replied apparently the tunnel has no way out at this end and so so i said our maneuvers are quite simple we'll return in our tracks and go out the southern opening that's all as i spoke i tried to sound more confident than i really felt meanwhile the nautilus accelerated its backward movement and running with propeller in reverse it swept us along at great speed this'll mean a delay ned said what are a few hours more or less so long as we get out yes ned land repeated so long as we get out i strolled for a little while from the lounge into the library my companions kept their seats and didn't move soon i threw myself down on a couch and picked up a book which my eyes skimmed mechanically a quarter of an hour later conseil approached me saying is it deeply fascinating this volume master is reading tremendously fascinating i replied i believe it master is reading his own book my own book indeed my hands were holding my own book on the great ocean depths i hadn't even suspected I closed the book and resumed my strolling. Ned and Conseil stood up to leave. Stay here, my friends, I said, stopping them. Let's stay together until we're out of this blind alley. As master wishes, Conseil replied. The hours passed. I often studied the instruments hanging on the lounge wall. The pressure gauge indicated that the Nautilus stayed at a constant depth of 300 meters, the compass that it kept heading south, the log that it was traveling at a speed of 20 miles per hour, an excessive speed in such a cramped area. But Captain Nemo knew that by this point there was no such thing as going too fast, since minutes were now worth centuries. At 8.25 a second collision took place, this time astern. I grew pale. My companions came over. I clutched Conseil's hand. Our eyes questioned each other, and more directly than if our thoughts had been translated into words. Just then the captain entered the lounge. I went to him. Our path is barred to the south? I asked him. Yes, sir. When it overturned, that iceberg closed off every exit. We're boxed in? Yes. End of Part 2, Chapter 15。Part 2, Chapter 16 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 16 shortage of air consequently above below and around the nautilus there were impenetrable frozen walls 
we were the ice bank's prisoners the canadian banged a table with his fearsome fist conseil kept still i stared at the captain his face had resumed its usual emotionlessness he crossed his arms he pondered the nautilus did not stir the captain then broke into speech gentlemen he said in a calm voice there are two ways of dying under the conditions in which we're placed this inexplicable individual acted like a mathematics professor working out a problem for his pupils the first way he went on is death by crushing the second is death by asphyxiation i don't mention the possibility of death by starvation because the nautilus's provisions will certainly last longer than we will therefore let's concentrate on our chances of being crushed or asphyxiated as for asphyxiation captain i replied that isn't a cause for alarm because the air tanks are full true captain nemo went on but they'll supply air for only two days now then we've been buried beneath the waters for thirty-six hours and the nautilus's heavy atmosphere already needs renewing in another forty-eight hours our reserve air will be used up well then captain let's free ourselves within forty-eight hours we'll try to at least by cutting through one of these walls surrounding us which one i asked borings will tell us that i'm going to ground the nautilus on the lower shelf then my men will put on their diving suits and attack the thinnest of these ice walls can the panels in the lounge be left open without ill effect we're no longer in motion captain nemo went out hissing sounds soon told me that water was being admitted into the ballast tanks the nautilus slowly settled and rested on the icy bottom at a depth of three hundred and fifty meters the depth at which the lower shelf of ice lay submerged my friends i said we're in a serious predicament but i'm counting on your courage and energy sir the canadian replied this is no time to bore you with my complaints i'm ready to do anything i can for the common good excellent ned i said extending my hand to the canadian i might add he went on that i'm as handy with a pick as a harpoon if i can be helpful to the captain he can use me any way he wants he won't turn down your assistance come along ned I led the Canadian to the room where the Nautilus's men were putting on their diving suits. I informed the captain of Ned's proposition, which was promptly accepted. The Canadian got into his underwater costume and was ready as soon as his fellow workers. Each of them carried on his back a Roqueyrol device that the air tanks had supplied with a generous allowance of fresh oxygen, a considerable but necessary drain on the Nautilus's reserves. As for the Rumcorf lamps, they were unnecessary in the midst of these brilliant waters saturated with our electric rays. After Ned was dressed, I re-entered the lounge, whose windows had been uncovered. Stationed next to Conseil, I examined the strata surrounding and supporting the Nautilus. Some moments later, we saw a dozen crewmen set foot on the shelf of ice, among them Ned Land, easily recognized by his tall figure captain nemo was with them before digging into the ice the captain had to obtain borings to ensure working in the best direction 
long bores were driven into the sidewalls but after fifteen meters the instruments were still impeded by the thickness of those walls it was futile to attack the ceiling since the surface was the ice bank itself more than four hundred meters high captain nemo then bored into the lower surface there we were separated from the sea by a ten-meter barrier that's how thick the iceberg was from this point on it was an issue of cutting out a piece equal in surface area to the nautilus's waterline this meant detaching about six thousand five hundred cubic meters to dig a hole through which the ship could descend below this tract of ice work began immediately and was carried on with tireless tenacity instead of digging all around the nautilus which would have entailed even greater difficulties captain nemo had an immense trench outlined on the ice eight meters from our port quarter then his men simultaneously staked it off at several points around its circumference soon their picks were vigorously attacking this compact matter and huge chunks were loosened from its mass these chunks weighed less than water and by an unusual effect of specific gravity each chunk took a wing as it were to the roof of the tunnel which thickened above by as much as it diminished below but this hardly mattered so long as the lower surface kept growing thinner after two hours of energetic work ned land re-entered exhausted he and his companions were replaced by new workmen including conseil and me the Nautilus's chief officer supervised us. The water struck me as unusually cold, but I warmed up promptly while wielding my pick. My movements were quite free, although they were executed under a pressure of thirty atmospheres. After two hours of work, re-entering to snatch some food and rest, I found a noticeable difference between the clean elastic fluid supplied me by the Roqueyral device and the Nautilus's atmosphere, which was already charged with carbon dioxide. The air hadn't been renewed in forty-eight hours, and its life-giving qualities were considerably weakened. Meanwhile, after twelve hours had gone by, we had removed from the outlined surface area a slice of ice only one meter thick, hence about six hundred cubic meters assuming the same work would be accomplished every twelve hours it would still take five nights and four days to see the undertaking through to completion five nights and four days i told my companions and we have oxygen in the air tanks for only two days without taking into account ned answered that once we're out of this damned prison we'll still be cooped up beneath the ice bank without any possible contact with the open air an apt remark for who could predict the minimum time we would need to free ourselves before the nautilus could return to the surface of the waves couldn't we all die of asphyxiation were this ship and everyone on board doomed to perish in this tomb of ice it was a dreadful state of affairs but we faced it head on each one of us determined to do his duty to the end during the night in line with my forecasts a new one-meter slice was removed from this immense socket but in the morning wearing my diving suit i was crossing through the liquid mass in a temperature of minus six degrees to minus seven degrees centigrade when i noted that little by little the side walls were closing in on each other the liquid strata farthest from the trench not warmed by the movements of workmen and tools were showing a tendency to solidify 
in the face of this imminent new danger what would happen to our chances for salvation and how could we prevent this liquid medium from solidifying then cracking the nautilus's hull like glass i didn't tell my two companions about this new danger there was no point in dampening the energy they were putting into our arduous rescue work but when i returned on board i mentioned this serious complication to captain nemo i know he told me in that calm tone the most dreadful outlook couldn't change it's one more danger but i don't know any way of warding it off our sole chance for salvation is to work faster than the water solidifies we've got to get there first that's all get there first by then i should have been used to this type of talk for several hours that day i wielded my pick doggedly the work kept me going besides working meant leaving the nautilus which meant breathing the clean oxygen drawn from the air tanks and supplied by our equipment which meant leaving the thin foul air behind near evening one more meter had been dug from the trench when i returned on board i was well nigh asphyxiated by the carbon dioxide saturating the air oh if only we had the chemical methods that would enable us to drive out this noxious gas there was no lack of oxygen all this water contained a considerable amount and after it was decomposed by our powerful batteries this life-giving elastic fluid could have been restored to us i had thought it all out but to no avail because the carbon dioxide produced by our breathing permeated every part of the ship to absorb it we would need to fill containers with potassium hydroxide and shake them continually but this substance was missing on board and nothing else could replace it that evening captain nemo was forced to open the spigots of his air tanks and shoot a few spouts of fresh oxygen through the nautilus's interior without this precaution we wouldn't have awakened the following morning the next day march twenty sixth i returned to my miner's trade working to remove the fifth meter the ice bank's side walls and underbelly had visibly thickened obviously they would come together before the nautilus could break free for an instant i was gripped by despair my pick nearly slipped from my hands what was the point of this digging if i was to die smothered and crushed by this water turning to stone a torture undreamed of by even the wildest savages i felt like i was lying in the jaws of a fearsome monster jaws irresistibly closing supervising our work working himself captain nemo passed near me just then i touched him with my hand and pointed to the walls of our prison the starboard wall had moved forward to a point less than four meters from the nautilus's hull the captain understood and gave me a signal to follow him we returned on board my diving suit removed i went with him to the lounge professor aronnax he told me this calls for heroic measures or we'll be sealed up in this solidified water as if it were cement yes i said but what can we do oh he exclaimed if only my nautilus were strong enough to stand that much pressure without being crushed well i asked not catching the captain's meaning don't you understand he went on that the congealing of this water could come to our rescue don't you see that by solidifying it could burst these tracts of ice imprisoning us just as its freezing can burst the hardest stones 
aren't you aware that this force could be the instrument of our salvation rather than our destruction yes captain maybe so but whatever resistance to crushing the nautilus may have it still couldn't stand such dreadful pressures and it would be squashed as flat as a piece of sheet iron i know it sir so we can't rely on nature to rescue us only our own efforts we must counteract this solidification we must hold it in check not only are the sidewalls closing in but there aren't ten feet of water ahead or astern of the nautilus all around us this freeze is gaining fast how long i asked will the oxygen in the air tanks enable us to breathe on board the captain looked me straight in the eye after tomorrow he said the air tanks will be empty i broke out in a cold sweat but why should i have been startled by this reply on march twenty two the nautilus had dived under the open waters at the pole it was now the twenty-sixth we had lived off the ship's stores for five days and all remaining breathable air had to be saved for the workmen even today as i write these lines my sensations are so intense that an involuntary terror sweeps over me and my lungs still seem short of air meanwhile motionless and silent captain nemo stood lost in thought an idea visibly crossed his mind but he seemed to brush it aside he told himself no at last these words escaped his lips boiling water he muttered boiling water i exclaimed yes sir we're shut up in a relatively confined area if the nautilus's pumps continually injected streams of boiling water into this space wouldn't that raise its temperature and delay its freezing it's worth trying i said resolutely so let's try it professor by then the thermometer gave minus seven degrees centigrade outside captain nemo led me to the galley where a huge distilling mechanism was at work supplying drinking water via evaporation the mechanism was loaded with water and the full electric heat of our batteries was thrown into coils awash in liquid in a few minutes the water reached one hundred degrees centigrade it was sent to the pumps while new water replaced it in the process the heat generated by our batteries was so intense that after simply going through the mechanism water drawn cold from the sea arrived boiling hot at the body of the pump the steaming water was injected into the icy water outside and after three hours had passed the thermometer gave the exterior temperature as minus six degrees centigrade that was one degree gained two hours later the thermometer gave only minus four degrees after i monitored the operation's progress double-checking it with many inspections i told the captain it's working i think so he answered me we've escaped being crushed now we have only asphyxiation to fear during the night the water temperature rose to minus one degree centigrade the injections couldn't get it to go a single degree higher but since salt water freezes only at minus two degrees i was finally assured that there was no danger of it solidifying by the next day march twenty seven six meters of ice had been torn from the socket only four meters were left to be removed that still meant forty-eight hours of work the air couldn't be renewed in the nautilus's interior accordingly that day it kept getting worse an unbearable heaviness weighed me down 
near three o'clock in the afternoon this agonizing sensation affected me to an intense degree yawns dislocated my jaws my lungs were gasping in their quest for that enkindling elastic fluid required for breathing now growing scarcer and scarcer my mind was in a daze i lay outstretched strength gone nearly unconscious my gallant conseil felt the same symptoms suffered the same sufferings yet never left my side he held my hand he kept encouraging me and i even heard him mutter oh if only i didn't have to breathe to leave more air for master it brought tears to my eyes to hear him say these words since conditions inside were universally unbearable how eagerly how happily we put on our diving suits to take our turns working picks rang out on that bed of ice arms grew weary hands were rubbed raw but who cared about exhaustion what difference were wounds life-sustaining air reached our lungs we could breathe we could breathe and yet nobody prolonged his underwater work beyond the time allotted him his shift over each man surrendered to a gasping companion the air tank that would revive him captain nemo set the example and was foremost in submitting to this strict discipline when his time was up he yielded his equipment to another and re-entered the foul air on board always calm unflinching and uncomplaining that day the usual work was accomplished with even greater energy over the whole surface area only two meters were left to be removed only two meters separated us from the open sea but the ship's air tanks were nearly empty the little air that remained had to be saved for the workmen not an atom for the nautilus when i returned on board i felt half suffocated what a night i'm unable to depict it such sufferings are indescribable the next day i was short-winded headaches and staggering fits of dizziness made me reel like a drunk my companions were experiencing the same symptoms some crewmen were at their last gasp that day the sixth of our imprisonment captain nemo concluded that picks and mattocks were too slow to deal with the ice layer still separating us from open water and he decided to crush this layer the man had kept his energy and composure he had subdued physical pain with moral strength he could still think plan and act at his orders the craft was eased off in other words it was raised from its icy bed by a change in its specific gravity when it was afloat the crew towed it leading it right above the immense trench outlined to match the ship's waterline next the ballast tanks filled with water the boat sank and was fitted into its socket just then the whole crew returned on board the double outside door was closed by this point the nautilus was resting on a bed of ice only one meter thick and drilled by bores in a thousand places the stopcocks of the ballast tanks were then opened wide and one hundred cubic meters of water rushed in increasing the nautilus's weight by one hundred thousand kilograms we waited we listened we forgot our sufferings we hoped once more we had staked our salvation on this one last gamble despite the buzzing in my head i soon could hear the vibrations under the nautilus's hull we tilted the ice cracked with an odd ripping sound like paper tearing and the nautilus began settling downward we're going through 
conseil muttered in my ear i couldn't answer him i clutched his hand i squeezed it in an involuntary convulsion all at once carried away by its frightful excess load the nautilus sank into the waters like a cannonball in other words dropping as if in a vacuum our full electric power was then put on the pumps which instantly began to expel water from the ballast tanks after a few minutes we had checked our fall the pressure gauge soon indicated an ascending movement brought to full speed the propeller made the sheet-iron hull tremble down to its rivets and we sped northward but how long would it take to navigate under the ice bank to the open sea another day i would be dead first half lying on the couch in the library i was suffocating my face was purple my lips blue my faculties in abeyance i could no longer see or hear i had lost all sense of time my muscles had no power to contract i'm unable to estimate the hours that passed in this way but i was aware that my death throes had begun i realized that i was about to die suddenly i regained consciousness a few whiffs of air had entered my lungs had we risen to the surface of the waves had we cleared the ice bank no ned and conseil my two gallant friends were sacrificing themselves to save me a few atoms of air were still left in the depths of one roquayral device instead of breathing it themselves they had saved it for me and while they were suffocating they poured life into me drop by drop i tried to push the device away they held my hands and for a few moments i could breathe luxuriously my eyes flew toward the clock it was eleven in the morning it had to be march twenty eighth the nautilus was traveling at a frightful speed of forty miles per hour it was writhing in the waters where was captain nemo had he perished had his companions died with him just then the pressure gauge indicated we were no more than twenty feet from the surface separating us from the open air was a mere tract of ice could we break through it perhaps in any event the nautilus was going to try in fact i could feel it assuming an oblique position lowering its stern and raising its spur the admission of additional water was enough to shift its balance then driven by its powerful propeller it attacked this ice field from below like a fearsome battering ram it split the barrier little by little backing up then putting on full speed against the punctured track device and finally carried away by its supreme momentum it lunged through and onto this frozen surface crushing the ice beneath its weight the hatches were opened or torn off if you prefer and waves of clean air were admitted into every part of the nautilus end of part two chapter sixteen Part two, chapter seventeen of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, an underwater tour of the world by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter seventeen From Cape Horn to the Amazon. How I got onto the platform I'm unable to say. Perhaps the Canadian transferred me there but i could breathe 
I could inhale the life-giving sea air. Next to me, my two companions were getting tipsy on the fresh oxygen particles. Poor souls who have suffered from long starvation mustn't pounce heedlessly on the first food given them. We, on the other hand, didn't have to practice such moderation. We could suck the atoms from the air by the lungful, and it was the breeze, the breeze itself, that poured into us this luxurious intoxication. Ah, Conseil was putting in, what fine oxygen! Let master have no fears about breathing. There's enough for everyone. As for Ned Land, he didn't say a word, but his wide open jaws would have scared off a shark. And what powerful inhalations! The Canadian drew like a furnace going full blast. Our strength returned promptly, and when I looked around, I saw that we were alone on the platform. No crewmen, not even Captain Nemo. Those strange seamen on the Nautilus were content with the oxygen circulating inside. Not one of them had come up to enjoy the open air. The first words I pronounced were words of appreciation and gratitude to my two companions. Ned and Conseil had kept me alive during the final hours of our long death throes, but no expression of thanks could repay them fully for such devotion. "'Good Lord, Professor,' Ned Land answered me. "'Don't mention it. What did we do that's so praiseworthy? Not a thing. It was a question of simple arithmetic.' Your life is worth more than ours, so we had to save it. No, Ned, I replied, it isn't worth more. Nobody could be better than a kind and generous man like yourself. All right, all right, the Canadian repeated in embarrassment. And you, my gallant Conseil, you suffered a great deal. Not too much, to be candid with Master. I was lacking a few throatfuls of air, but I would have gotten by. Besides, when I saw Master fainting, it left me without the slightest desire to breathe. It took my breath away, in a manner of... Confounded by this lapse into banality, Conseil left his sentence hanging. My friends, I replied, very moved, we're bound to each other forever, and I am deeply indebted to you. We'll take advantage of that, the Canadian shot back. Eh? Conseil put in. Yes, Ned Land went on. You can repay your debt by coming with me when I leave this infernal Nautilus. By the way, Conseil said, are we going in a favorable direction? Yes, I replied, because we're going in the direction of the sun, and here the sun is due north. Sure, Ned Land went on, but it remains to be seen whether we'll make for the Atlantic or the Pacific, in other words, whether we'll end up in a well-traveled or deserted seas. I had no reply to this, and I feared that Captain Nemo wouldn't take us homeward, but rather into that huge ocean washing the shores of both Asia and America. In this way he would complete his underwater tour of the world, going back to those seas where the Nautilus enjoyed the greatest freedom. But if we returned to the Pacific, far from every populated shore, what would happen to Ned Land's plans? We would soon settle this important point. The Nautilus traveled swiftly. Soon we had cleared the Antarctic Circle plus the promontory of Cape Horn. We were abreast of the tip of South America by March 31 at 7 o'clock in the evening. By then all our past sufferings were forgotten. The memory of that imprisonment under the ice faded from our minds. We had thoughts only of the future. 
captain nemo no longer appeared neither in the lounge nor on the platform the positions reported each day on the world map were put there by the chief officer and they enabled me to determine the nautilus's exact heading now then that evening it became obvious much to my satisfaction that we were returning north by the atlantic route i shared the results of my observations with the canadian and conseil that's good news the canadian replied but where's the nautilus going i'm unable to say ned after the south pole does our captain want to tackle the north pole then go back to the pacific by the notorious northwest passage i wouldn't double dare him conseil replied oh well the canadian said we'll give him the slip long before then in any event conseil added he's a superman that captain nemo and we'll never regret having known him especially once we've left him ned land shot back the next day april one when the nautilus rose to the surface of the waves a few minutes before noon we raised land to the west it was tierra del fuego the land of fire a name given it by early navigators after they saw numerous curls of smoke rising from the natives huts this land of fire forms a huge cluster of islands over thirty leagues long and eighty leagues wide extending between latitude fifty three degrees and fifty six degrees south and between longitude sixty seven degrees fifty minutes and seventy seven degrees fifteen minutes west its coastline looked flat but high mountains rose in the distance i even thought i glimpsed mount sarmiento whose elevation is two thousand seventy meters above sea level a pyramid-shaped block of shale with a very sharp summit which depending on whether it's clear or veiled in vapor predicts fair weather or foul as ned land told me a first-class barometer my friend yes sir a natural barometer that didn't let me down when i navigated the narrows of the strait of magellan just then its peak appeared before us standing out distinctly against the background of the skies this forecast fair weather and so it proved going back under the waters the nautilus drew near the coast cruising along it for only a few miles through the lounge windows i could see long creepers and gigantic fucus plants bulb-bearing seaweed of which the open sea at the pole has revealed a few specimens with their smooth viscous filaments they measured as much as three hundred meters long genuine cables much more than an inch thick and very tough they're often used as mooring lines for ships another weed known by the name velp and boasting four-foot leaves was crammed into the coral concretions and carpeted the ocean floor it served as both nest and nourishment for myriads of crustaceans and mollusks for crabs and cuttlefish here seals and otters could indulge in a sumptuous meal mixing meat from fish with vegetables from the sea like the english with their irish stews the nautilus passed over these lush luxuriant depths with tremendous speed near evening it approached the falkland islands whose rugged summits i recognized the next day the sea was of moderate depth so not without good reason i assumed that these two islands plus the many islets surrounding them used to be a part of the magellan coastline the falkland islands were probably discovered by the famous navigator john davis who gave them the name davis southern islands later sir richard hawkins called them the maiden land after the blessed virgin 
subsequently at the beginning of the eighteenth century they were named the malouines by fishermen from saint malo in brittany then finally dubbed the falklands by the english to whom they belong today in these waterways our nets brought up fine samples of algae in particular certain fucus plants whose roots were laden with the world's best mussels geese and duck alighted by the dozens on the platform and soon took their places in the ship's pantry as for fish i specifically observed some bony fish belonging to the goby genus especially some gudgeon two decimeters long sprinkled with whitish and yellow spots i likewise marveled at the numerous medusas including the most beautiful of their breed the compass jellyfish unique to the falkland seas some of these jellyfish were shaped like very smooth semispherical parasols with russet stripes and fringes of twelve neat festoons others looked like upside-down baskets from which wide leaves and long red twigs were gracefully trailing they swam with quiverings of their four leaf-like arms letting the opulent tresses of their tentacles dangle in the drift i wanted to preserve a few specimens of these delicate zoophytes but they were merely clouds shadows illusions melting and evaporating outside their native element when the last tips of the falkland islands had disappeared below the horizon the nautilus submerged to a depth between twenty and twenty-five meters and went along the south american coast captain nemo didn't put in an appearance we didn't leave these patagonian waterways until april three sometimes cruising under the ocean sometimes on its surface the nautilus passed the wide estuary formed by the mouth of the rio de la plata and on april four we lay abreast of uruguay albeit fifty miles out keeping to its northerly heading it followed the long windings of south america by then we had fared sixteen thousand leagues since coming on board in the seas of japan near eleven o'clock in the morning we cut the tropic of capricorn on the thirty-seventh meridian passing well out from cape frio much to ned land's displeasure captain nemo had no liking for the neighborhood of brazil's populous shores because he shot by with dizzying speed not even the swiftest fish or birds could keep up with us and the natural curiosities in these seas completely eluded our observation this speed was maintained for several days and on the evening of april nine we raised south america's easternmost tip cape sao roque but then the nautilus veered away again and went looking for the lowest depths of an underwater valley gouged between this cape and sierra leone on the coast of africa abreast of the west indies this valley forks into two arms and to the north it ends in an enormous depression nine thousand meters deep from this locality to the lesser antilles the ocean's geologic profile features a steeply cut cliff six kilometers high and abreast of the cape verde islands there's another wall just as imposing together these two barricades confine the whole submerged continent of atlantis the floor of this immense valley is made picturesque by mountains that furnish these underwater depths with scenic views this description is based mostly on certain hand-drawn charts kept in the nautilus's library charts obviously rendered by captain nemo himself from his own personal observations for two days we visited these deep and deserted waters by means of our slanting fins the nautilus would do long diagonal dives that took us to every level 
but on april eleven it rose suddenly and the shore reappeared at the mouth of the amazon river a huge estuary whose outflow is so considerable it desalts the sea over an area of several leagues we cut the equator twenty miles to the west lay guiana french territory where we could easily have taken refuge but the wind was blowing a strong gust and the furious billows would not allow us to face them in a mere skiff no doubt ned land understood this because he said nothing to me for my part i made no allusion to his escape plans because i didn't want to push him into an attempt that was certain to misfire i was readily compensated for this delay by fascinating research during those two days of april eleven twelve the nautilus didn't leave the surface of the sea and its trawl brought up a simply miraculous catch of zoophytes fish and reptiles some zoophytes were dredged up by the chain of our trawl most were lovely sea anemone belonging to the family actinidia including among other species the cycalus protexta native to this part of the ocean a small cylindrical trunk adorned with vertical lines mottled with red spots and crowned by a wondrous blossoming of tentacles as for mollusks they consisted of exhibits i had already observed turret snails olive shells of the tent olive species with neatly intersecting lines and russet spots standing out sharply against a flesh-colored background fanciful spider conchs that looked like petrified scorpions transparent glass snails argonauts some highly edible cuttlefish and certain species of squid that the naturalists of antiquity classified with the flying fish which are used chiefly as bait for catching cod as for the fish in these waterways i noted various species that i hadn't yet had the opportunity to study among cartilaginous fish some brook lamprey a type of eel fifteen inches long head greenish fins violet back bluish-gray belly a silvery brown strewn with bright spots iris of the eye encircled in gold unusual animals that the amazon's current must have swept out to sea because their natural habitat is fresh water stingrays the snout pointed the tail long slender and armed with an extensive jagged sting small one-meter sharks with gray and whitish hides their teeth arranged in several backward curving rows fish commonly known by the name carpet shark batfish a sort of reddish isosceles triangle half a meter long whose pectoral fins are attached by fleshy extensions that make these fish look like bats although an appendage made of horn located near the nostrils earns them the nickname of sea unicorns lastly a couple species of triggerfish the cuculio whose stippled flanks glitter with a sparkling gold color and the bright purple leather jacket whose hues glisten like a pigeon's throat i'll finish up this catalogue a little dry but quite accurate with the series of bony fish i observed eels belonging to the genus apteronotus whose snow-white snout is very blunt the body painted a handsome black and armed with a very long slender fleshy whip long sardines from the genus odontognathus like three decimeter pike shining with a bright silver glow Goranian mackerel furnished with two anal fins black tinted rudderfish that you catch by using torches fish measuring two meters and boasting white firm plump meat that when fresh tastes like eel when dried like smoked salmon 
semi-red wrasse sporting scales only at the bases of their dorsal and anal fins grunts on which gold and silver mingle their luster with that of ruby and topaz yellow-tailed gilt-head whose flesh is extremely dainty and whose phosphorescent properties give them away in the midst of the waters porgies tinted orange with slender tongues croakers with gold caudal fins black sturgeonfish four-eyed fish from suriname etc this etc won't keep me from mentioning one more fish that conseil with good reason will long remember one of our nets had hauled up a type of very flat ray that weighed some twenty kilograms with its tail cut off it would have formed a perfect disc it was white underneath and reddish on top with big round spots of deep blue encircled in black its hide quite smooth and ending in a double-lobed fin laid out on the platform it kept struggling with convulsive movements trying to turn over making such efforts that its final lunge was about to flip it into the sea but conseil being very possessive of his fish rushed at it and before i could stop him he seized it with both hands instantly there he was thrown on his back legs in the air his body half paralyzed and yelling oh sir sir will you help me for once in his life the poor lad didn't address me in the third person the canadian and i sat him up we massaged his contracted arms and when he regained his five senses that eternal classifier mumbled in a broken voice class of cartilaginous fish order chrondopterygia with fixed gills suborder salacia family regiforma genus electric ray yes my friend i answered it was an electric ray that put you in this deplorable state oh master can trust me on this conseil shot back i'll be revenged on that animal how i'll eat it which he did that same evening but strictly as retaliation because frankly it tasted like leather poor conseil had assaulted an electric ray of the most dangerous species the cumana living in a conducting medium such as water this bizarre animal can electrocute other fish from several meters away so great is the power of its electric organ an organ whose two chief surfaces measure at least twenty-seven square feet during the course of the next day april twelve the nautilus drew near the coast of dutch guiana by the mouth of the moroni river there several groups of sea cows were living in family units these were manatees which belonged to the order sirenia like the dugong and stellar's sea cow harmless and unaggressive these fine animals were six to seven meters long and must have weighed at least four thousand kilograms each i told ned land and conseil that far-seeing nature had given these mammals a major role to play in essence manatees like seals are designed to graze the underwater prairies destroying the clusters of weeds that obstruct the mouths of tropical rivers and do you know i added what happened since man has almost completely wiped out these beneficial races rotting weeds have poisoned the air and this poisoned air causes the yellow fever that devastates these wonderful countries this toxic vegetation has increased beneath the seas of the torrid zone so the disease spreads unchecked from the mouth of the rio de la plata to florida and if professor tausenel is correct this plague is nothing compared to the scourge that will strike our descendants once the seas are depopulated of whales and seals 
by then crowded with jellyfish squid and other devilfish the oceans will have become huge centers of infection because their waves will no longer possess these huge stomachs that god has entrusted with scouring the surface of the sea meanwhile without scorning these theories the nautilus's crew captured half a dozen manatees in essence it was an issue of stocking the larder with excellent red meat even better than beef or veal their hunting was not a fascinating sport the manatees let themselves be struck down without offering any resistance several thousand kilos of meat were hauled below to be dried and stored the same day an odd fishing practice further increased the nautilus's stores so full of game were these seas our trawl brought up in its meshes a number of fish whose heads were topped by little oval slabs with fleshy edges these were suckerfish from the third family of the Sabrachian Malacopterygia. These flat discs on their heads consist of crosswise plates of movable cartilage between which the animals can create a vacuum, enabling them to stick to objects like suction cups. The remoras I had observed in the Mediterranean were related to this species, but the creature at issue here was Echeneus osteochara, unique to this sea. Right after catching them, our seamen dropped them in buckets of water. Its fishing finished, the Nautilus drew nearer to the coast. In this locality, a number of sea turtles were sleeping on the surface of the waves. It would have been difficult to capture these valuable reptiles, because they wake up at the slightest sound, and their solid carapaces are harpoon-proof. But our suckerfish would effect their capture with extraordinary certainty and precision. In truth, this animal is a living fish-hook, promising wealth and happiness to the greenest fishermen in the business. The Nautilus's men attached to each fish's tail a ring that was big enough not to hamper its movements, and to this ring a long rope whose other end was moored on board. Thrown into the sea, the suckerfish immediately began to play their roles, going and fastening themselves onto the breastplates of the turtles. Their tenacity was so great, they would rip apart rather than let go. They were hauled in, still sticking to the turtles that came aboard with them. In this way we caught several loggerheads, reptiles a meter wide and weighing 200 kilos. They are extremely valuable because of their carapaces, which are covered with big slabs of horn, thin, brown, transparent, with white and yellow markings besides they were excellent from an edible viewpoint with an exquisite flavor comparable to the green turtle this fishing ended our stay in the waterways of the amazon and that evening the nautilus took to the high seas once more end of part two chapter seventeen Part 2, Chapter 18 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 18, The Devilfish. For some days the Nautilus kept veering away from the American coast. It obviously didn't want to frequent the waves of the Gulf of Mexico or the Caribbean Sea. Yet there was no shortage of water under its keel, since the average depth of these seas is 1,800 meters. But these waterways, strewn with islands and plowed by steamers, probably didn't agree with Captain Nemo. 
on april sixteen we raised martinique and guadeloupe from a distance of about thirty miles for one instant i could see their lofty peaks the canadian was quite disheartened having counted on putting his plans into execution in the gulf either by reaching shore or by pulling alongside one of the many boats plying a coastal trade from one island to another an escape attempt would have been quite feasible assuming ned land managed to seize the skiff without the captain's knowledge but in mid-ocean it was unthinkable the canadian conseil and i had a pretty long conversation on this subject for six months we had been prisoners aboard the nautilus we had fared seventeen thousand leagues and as ned land put it there was no end in sight so he made me a proposition i hadn't anticipated we were to ask captain nemo this question straight out did the captain mean to keep us on board his vessel permanently this measure was distasteful to me to my mind it would lead nowhere we could hope for nothing from the nautilus's commander but could depend only on ourselves besides for some time now the man had been gloomier more withdrawn less sociable he seemed to be avoiding me i encountered him only at rare intervals he used to take pleasure in explaining the underwater wonders to me now he left me to my research and no longer entered the lounge what changes had come over him from what cause i had no reason to blame myself was our presence on board perhaps a burden to him even so i cherished no hopes that the man would set us free so i begged ned to let me think about it before taking action if this measure proved fruitless it could arouse the captain's suspicions make our circumstances even more arduous and jeopardize the canadian's plans i might add that i could hardly use our state of health as an argument except for that grueling ordeal under the ice bank at the south pole we had never felt better neither ned conseil or i the nutritious food life-giving air regular routine and uniform temperature kept illness at bay and for a man who didn't miss his past existence on land for a captain nemo who was at home here who went where he wished who took paths mysterious to others if not to himself in attaining his ends i could understand such a life but we ourselves hadn't severed all ties with humanity for my part i didn't want my new and unusual research to be buried with my bones i had now earned the right to pen a definitive book on the sea and sooner or later i wanted that book to see the light of day there once more through the panels opening into these caribbean waters ten meters below the surface of the waves i found so many fascinating exhibits to describe in my daily notes among other zoophytes there were portuguese men-of-war known by the name Fasalia pelagica like big oblong bladders with a pearly sheen spreading their membranes to the wind letting their blue tentacles drift like silken threads to the eye delightful jellyfish to the touch actual nettles that ooze a corrosive liquid among the articulates there were annelid worms one and a half meters long furnished with a pink proboscis equipped with seventeen hundred organs of locomotion snaking through the waters and as they went throwing off every gleam in the solar spectrum from the fish branch there were manta rays enormous cartilaginous fish ten feet long and weighing six hundred pounds their pectoral fin triangular their mid-back slightly arched their eyes attached to the edges of the face at the front of the head they floated like wreckage from a ship 
sometimes fastening onto our windows like opaque shutters there were american triggerfish for which nature has ground only black and white pigments feather-shaped gobies that were long and plump with yellow fins and jutting jaws sixteen decimeter mackerel with short sharp teeth covered with small scales and related to the albacore species next came swarms of red mullet corseted with gold stripes from head to tail their shining fins all a-quiver genuine masterpieces of jewelry formerly sacred to the goddess diana much in demand by rich romans and about which the old saying goes he who catches them doesn't eat them finally adorned with emerald ribbons and dressed in velvet and silk golden angelfish passed before our eyes like courtiers in the paintings of veronese spurred gilt-heads stole by their swift thoracic fins thread herring fifteen inches long were wrapped in their phosphorescent glimmers gray mullet thrashed the sea with their big fleshy tails red salmon seemed to mow the waves with their slicing pectorals and silver moonfish worthy of their name rose on the horizon of the waters like the whitish reflections of many moons how many other marvelous new specimens i still could have observed if little by little the nautilus hadn't settled to the lower strata its slanting fins drew it to depths of two thousand and three thousand five hundred meters there animal life was represented by nothing more than sea lilies starfish delightful crinoids with bell-shaped heads like little chalices on straight stems top-shell snails blood-red tooth-shells and fissurella snails a large species of coastal mollusk by april twenty we had risen to an average level of fifteen hundred meters the nearest land was the island group of the bahamas scattered like a batch of cobblestones over the surface of the water there high underwater cliffs reared up straight walls made of craggy chunks arranged like big stone foundations among which there gaped black caves so deep our electric rays couldn't light them to the far ends these rocks were hung with huge weeds immense sea tangle giant fucus a genuine trellis of water plants fit for a world of giants in discussing these colossal plants conseil ned and i were naturally led into mentioning the sea's gigantic animals the former were obviously meant to feed the latter however through the windows of our almost motionless nautilus i could see nothing among these long filaments other than the chief articulates of the division brachyuria long-legged spider crabs violet crabs and sponge crabs unique to the waters of the caribbean it was about eleven o'clock when ned land drew my attention to a fearsome commotion out in this huge seaweed well i said these are real devilfish caverns and i wouldn't be surprised to see some of those monsters hereabouts what conseil put in squid ordinary squid from the class cephalopoda no i said devilfish of large dimensions but friend land is no doubt mistaken because i don't see a thing that's regrettable conseil answered i'd like to come face to face with one of those devilfish i've heard so much about which can drag ships down into the depths those beasts go by the name of crack fake it is more like it the canadian replied sarcastically krakens conseil shot back finishing his word without wincing at his companion's witticism nobody will ever make me believe ned land said that such animals exist why not conseil replied 
we sincerely believed in master's narwhal we were wrong conseil no doubt but there are others with no doubts who believe to this day probably conseil but as for me i'm bound and determined not to accept the existence of any such monster till i've dissected it with my own two hands yet conseil asked me doesn't master believe in gigantic devilfish yikes who in hades ever believed in them the canadian exclaimed many people ned my friend i said no fishermen scientists maybe pardon me ned fishermen and scientists why i to whom you speak conseil said with the world's straightest face i recall perfectly seeing a large boat dragged under the waves by the arms of a cephalopod you saw that the canadian asked yes ned with your own two eyes with my own two eyes where may i ask in saint malo conseil returned unflappably in the harbor ned land said sarcastically no in a church conseil replied in a church the canadian exclaimed yes ned my friend it had a picture that portrayed the devilfish in question oh good ned land exclaimed with a burst of laughter mr conseil put one over on me actually he's right i said i've heard about that picture but the subject it portrays is taken from a legend and you know how to rate legends in matters of natural history besides when it's an issue of monsters the human imagination always tends to run wild people not only claimed these devilfish could drag ships under but a certain oleus magnus tells of a cephalopod a mile long that looked more like an island than an animal there's also the story of how the bishop of trondheim set up an altar one day on an immense rock after he finished saying mass this rock started moving and went back into the sea the rock was a devilfish and that's everything we know the canadian asked no i replied another bishop pontopidon of bergen also tells of a devilfish so large a whole cavalry regiment could maneuver on it they sure did go on those old-time bishops ned land said finally the naturalists of antiquity mentioned some monsters with mouths as big as a gulf which were too huge to get through the strait of gibraltar good work men the canadian put in but in all these stories is there any truth conseil asked none at all my friends at least in those that go beyond the bounds of credibility and fly off into fable or legend yet for the imaginings of these storytellers there had to be if not a cause at least an excuse it can't be denied that some species of squid and other devilfish are quite large though still smaller than cetaceans aristotle put the dimensions of one squid at five cubits or three point one meters our fishermen frequently see specimens over one point eight meters long the museums in Trist and montpellier have preserved some devilfish carcasses measuring two meters besides according to the calculations of naturalists one of these animals only six feet long would have tentacles as long as twenty-seven which is enough to make a fearsome monster does anybody fish for them nowadays the canadian asked if they don't fish for them sailors at least sight them a friend of mine captain paul boss of le havre has often sworn to me that he encountered one of these monsters of colossal size in the seas of the east indies but the most astonishing event 
which proves that these gigantic animals undeniably exist took place a few years ago in 1861. "'What event was that?' Ned Land asked. "'Just this. In 1861, to the northeast of Tenerife, and fairly near the latitude where we are right now, the crew of the gunboat Electo spotted a monstrous squid swimming in their waters. Commander Bagur approached the animal and attacked it with blows from a harpoon and blasts from rifles, but without much success, because bullets and harpoons crossed its soft flesh as if it were semi-liquid jelly. After several fruitless attempts, the crew managed to slip a noose around the mollusk's body. This noose slid as far as the caudal fins and came to a halt. Then they tried to haul the monster on board, but its weight was so considerable that when they tugged on the rope, the animal parted company with its tail, and, deprived of this adornment, it disappeared beneath the waters. Finally, an actual event, Ned Land said. An indisputable event, my gallant Ned. Accordingly, people have proposed naming this devilfish Begewer's Squid. And how long was it? the Canadian asked. Didn't it measure about six meters? said Conseil, who was stationed at the window and examining anew the crevices in the cliff. Precisely, I replied. Wasn't its head, Conseil went on, crowned by eight tentacles that quivered in the water like a nest of snakes? Precisely. Weren't its eyes prominently placed and considerably enlarged? Yes, Conseil. And wasn't its mouth a real parrot's beak, but of fearsome size? Correct, Conseil. Well, with all due respect to Master, Conseil replied serenely, if this isn't Begueur's squid, at least it's one of his close relatives. I stared at Conseil. Ned Land rushed to the window. What an awful animal! he exclaimed. I stared in my turn and couldn't keep back a movement of revulsion. Before my eyes there quivered a horrible monster worthy of a place among the most far-fetched teratological legends. It was a squid of colossal dimensions, fully eight meters long. It was traveling backward with tremendous speed in the same direction as the Nautilus. It gazed with enormous staring eyes that were tinted sea-green. Its eight arms, or more accurately feet, were rooted in its head, which has earned these animals the name cephalopod. Its arms stretched a distance twice the length of its body and were writhing like the serpentine hair of the Furies. You could plainly see its 250 suckers arranged over the inner sides of its tentacles and shaped like semispheric capsules. Sometimes these suckers fastened onto the lounge window by creating vacuums against it. The monster's mouth, a beak made of horn and shaped like that of a parrot, opened and closed vertically. Its tongue, also of horn substance and armed with several rows of sharp teeth, would flicker out from between these genuine shears. What a freak of nature! A bird's beak on a mollusk. Its body was spindle-shaped and swollen in the middle, a fleshy mass that must have weighed 20,000 to 25,000 kilograms. Its unstable color would change with tremendous speed as the animal grew irritated, passing successively from bluish-gray to reddish-brown. What was irritating this mollusk? No doubt the presence of the Nautilus, even more fearsome than itself, and which it couldn't grip with its mandibles or the suckers on its arms. And yet what monsters these devilfish are! What vitality our Creator has given them! What vigor in their movements, thanks to their owning a triple heart! 
sheer chance had placed us in the presence of this squid and i didn't want to lose this opportunity to meticulously study such a cephalopod specimen i overcame the horror that its appearance inspired in me picked up a pencil and began to sketch it perhaps this is the same as the electos conseil said can't be the canadian replied because this one's complete while the other one lost its tail that doesn't necessarily follow i said the arms and tails of these animals grow back through regeneration and in seven years the tail on the viewer's squid has surely had time to sprout again anyhow ned shot back if it isn't this fellow maybe it's one of those indeed other devilfish had appeared at the starboard window i counted seven of them they provided the nautilus with an escort and i could hear their beaks gnashing on the sheet-iron hull we couldn't have asked for a more devoted following i continued sketching these monsters kept pace in our waters with such precision they seemed to be standing still and i could have traced their outlines in miniature on the window but we were moving at a moderate speed all at once the nautilus stopped a jolt made it tremble through its entire framework did we strike bottom i asked in any event we're already clear the canadian replied because we're afloat the nautilus was certainly afloat but it was no longer in motion the blades of its propeller weren't churning the waves a minute passed followed by his chief officer captain nemo entered the lounge i hadn't seen him in a good while he looked gloomy to me without speaking to us without even seeing us perhaps he went to the panel stared at the devilfish and said a few words to his chief officer the latter went out soon the panels closed the ceiling lit up i went over to the captain an unusual assortment of devilfish i told him as carefree as a collector in front of an aquarium correct mr naturalist he answered me and we're going to fight them at close quarters i gaped at the captain i thought my hearing had gone bad at close quarters i repeated yes sir our propeller is jammed i think the horn-covered mandibles of one of these squid are entangled in the blades that's why we aren't moving and what are you going to do rise to the surface and slaughter the vermin a difficult undertaking correct our electric bullets are ineffective against such soft flesh where they don't meet enough resistance to go off but we'll attack the beast with axes and harpoons sir the canadian said if you don't turn down my help i accept it mr land we'll go with you i said and we followed captain nemo heading to the central companionway there some ten men were standing by for the assault armed with boarding axes conseil and i picked up two more axes ned land seized a harpoon by then the nautilus had returned to the surface of the waves stationed on the top steps one of the seamen undid the bolts of the hatch but he had scarcely unscrewed the nuts when the hatch flew up with tremendous violence obviously pulled open by the suckers on a devilfish's arm instantly one of those long arms glided like a snake into the opening and twenty others were quivering above with a sweep of the axe captain nemo chopped off this fearsome tentacle which slid writhing down the steps just as we were crowding each other to reach the platform two more arms lashed the air swooped on the seamen stationed in front of captain nemo and carried the fellow away with irresistible violence captain nemo gave a shout and leaped outside 
we rushed after him what a scene seized by the tentacle and glued to its suckers the unfortunate man was swinging in the air at the mercy of this enormous appendage he gasped he choked he yelled help help these words pronounced in french left me deeply stunned so i had a fellow countryman on board perhaps several i'll hear his harrowing plea the rest of my life the poor fellow was done for who could tear him from such a powerful grip even so captain nemo rushed at the devilfish and with a sweep of the axe hewed one more of its arms his chief officer struggled furiously with the other monsters crawling up the nautilus's sides the crew battled with flailing axes the canadian conseil and i sank our weapons into these fleshy masses an intense musky odor filled the air it was horrible for an instant i thought the poor man entwined by the devilfish might be torn loose from its powerful suction seven arms out of the eight had been chopped off brandishing its victim like a feather one lone tentacle was writhing in the air but just as captain nemo and his chief officer rushed at it the animal shot off a spout of blackish liquid secreted by a pouch located in its abdomen it blinded us when this cloud had dispersed the squid was gone and so was my poor fellow-countryman what rage then drove us against these monsters we lost all self-control ten or twelve devilfish had overrun the nautilus's platform and sides we piled helter-skelter into the thick of these sawed-off snakes which darted over the platform amid waves of blood and sepia ink it seemed as if these viscous tentacles grew back like the many heads of hydra at every thrust ned land's harpoon would plunge into a squid's sea-green eye and burst it but my daring companion was suddenly toppled by the tentacles of a monster he could not avoid oh my heart nearly exploded with excitement and horror the squid's fearsome beak was wide open over ned land the poor man was about to be cut in half i ran to his rescue but captain nemo got there first his axe disappeared between the two enormous mandibles and the canadian miraculously saved stood and plunged his harpoon all the way into the devilfish's triple heart tit for tat captain nemo told the canadian i owed it to myself ned bowed without answering him this struggle had lasted a quarter of an hour defeated mutilated battered to death the monsters finally yielded to us and disappeared beneath the waves red with blood motionless by the beacon captain nemo stared at the sea that had swallowed one of his companions and large tears streamed from his eyes end of part two chapter eighteen Part 2, Chapter 19 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 19, The Gulf Stream. This dreadful scene on April 20 none of us will ever be able to forget. I wrote it up in a state of intense excitement later i reviewed my narrative i read it to conseil and the canadian they found it accurate in detail but deficient in impact to convey such sights it would take the pen of our most famous poet victor hugo author of the toilers of the sea as i said captain nemo wept while staring at the waves his grief was immense this was the second companion he had lost since we had come aboard 
and what a way to die smashed strangled crushed by the fearsome arms of a devilfish ground beneath its iron mandibles this friend would never rest with his companions in the placid waters of their coral cemetery as for me what had harrowed my heart in the thick of this struggle was the despairing yell given by this unfortunate man forgetting his regulation language this poor frenchman had reverted to speaking his own mother tongue to fling out one supreme plea among the nautilus's crew allied body and soul with captain nemo and likewise fleeing from human contact i had found a fellow-countryman was he the only representative of france in this mysterious alliance obviously made up of individuals from different nationalities this was just one more of those insoluble problems that kept welling up in my mind captain nemo re-entered his stateroom and i saw no more of him for a good while but how sad despairing and irresolute he must have felt to judge from this ship whose soul he was which reflected his every mood the nautilus no longer kept to a fixed heading it drifted back and forth riding with the waves like a corpse its propeller had been disentangled but was barely put to use it was navigating at random it couldn't tear itself away from the setting of this last struggle from this sea that had devoured one of its own ten days went by in this way it was only on may first that the nautilus openly resumed its northbound course after raising the bahamas at the mouth of old bahama channel we then went with the current of the sea's greatest river which has its own banks fish and temperature i mean the gulf stream it is indeed a river that runs independently through the middle of the atlantic its waters never mixing with the ocean's waters it's a salty river saltier than the sea surrounding it its average depth is three thousand feet its average width sixty miles in certain localities its current moves at a speed of four kilometers per hour the unchanging volume of its waters is greater than that of all the world's rivers combined as discovered by commander maury the true source of the gulf stream its starting point if you prefer is located in the bay of biscay there its waters still weak in temperature and color begin to form it goes down south skirts equatorial africa warms its waves in the rays of the torrid zone crosses the atlantic reaches cape sao roque on the coast of brazil and forks into two branches one going to the caribbean sea for further saturation with heat particles then entrusted with restoring the balance between hot and cold temperatures and with mixing tropical and northern waters the gulf stream begins to play its stabilizing role attaining a white heat in the gulf of mexico it heads north up the american coast advances as far as newfoundland swerves away under the thrust of a cold current from the davies strait and resumes its ocean course by going along the great circle of the earth on the rum line it then divides into two arms near the forty-third parallel one helped by the northeast trade winds returns to the bay of biscay and the azores the other washes the shores of ireland and norway with lukewarm water goes beyond spitzbergen where its temperature falls to four degrees centigrade and fashions the open sea at the pole it was on this oceanic river that the nautilus was then navigating leaving old bahama channel with its fourteen leagues wide by three hundred and fifty meters deep the gulf stream moves at the rate of eight kilometers per hour 
its speed steadily decreases as it advances northward and we must pray that this steadiness continues because as experts agree if its speed and direction were to change the climates of europe would undergo disturbances whose consequences are incalculable near noon i was on the platform with conseil i shared with him the relevant details on the gulf stream when my explanation was over i invited him to dip his hands into its current conseil did so and he was quite astonished to experience no sensation of either hot or cold that comes i told him from the water temperature of the gulf stream which as it leaves the gulf of mexico is barely different from your blood temperature this gulf stream is a huge heat generator that enables the coasts of europe to be decked in eternal greenery and if commander maury is correct were one to harness the full warmth of this current it would supply enough heat to keep molten a river of iron solder as big as the amazon or the missouri just then the gulf stream's speed was two point two five meters per second so distinct is its current from the surrounding sea its confined waters stand out against the ocean and operate on a different level from the colder waters murky as well and very rich in saline material their pure indigo contrasts with the green waves surrounding them moreover their line of demarcation is so clear that abreast of the carolinas the nautilus's spur cut the waves of the gulf stream while its propeller was still churning those belonging to the ocean this current swept along with it a whole host of moving creatures argonauts so common in the mediterranean voyaged here in schools of large numbers among cartilaginous fish the most remarkable were rays whose ultra slender tails made up nearly a third of the body which was shaped like a huge diamond twenty-five feet long then little one-meter sharks the head large the snout short and rounded the teeth sharp and arranged in several rows the body seemingly covered with scales among bony fish i noted grizzled wrasse unique in these seas deep-water gilthead whose iris has a fiery gleam one-meter croakers whose large mouths bristle with small teeth and which lets out thin cries black rudderfish like those i've already discussed blue dorados accented with gold and silver rainbow-hued parrotfish that can rival the loveliest tropical birds in coloring banded blennies with triangular heads bluish flounder without scales toadfish covered with a crosswise yellow band in the shape of a t swarms of little freckled gobies stippled with brown spots lungfish with silver heads and yellow tails various specimens of salmon mullet with slim figures and a softly glowing radiance that lassipede dedicated to the memory of his wife and finally the american kavala a handsome fish decorated by every honorary order bedizened with their every ribbon frequenting the shores of this great nation where ribbons and orders are held in such low esteem i might add that during the night the gulf stream's phosphorescent waters rivaled the electric glow of our beacon especially in the stormy weather that frequently threatened us on may eight while abreast of north carolina we were across from cape hatteras once more there the gulf stream is seventy-five miles wide and two hundred and ten meters deep the nautilus continued to wander at random seemingly all supervision had been jettisoned under these conditions i admit that we could easily have gotten away in fact the populous shores offered ready refuge everywhere 
the sea was plowed continuously by the many steamers providing service between the gulf of mexico and new york or boston and it was crossed night and day by little schooners engaged in coastal trade over various points on the american shore we could hope to be picked up so it was a promising opportunity despite the thirty miles that separated the nautilus from these union coasts but one distressing circumstance totally thwarted the canadians plans the weather was thoroughly foul we were approaching waterways where storms are commonplace the very homeland of tornadoes and cyclones specifically engendered by the gulf stream's current to face a frequently raging sea in a frail skiff was a race to certain disaster ned land conceded this himself so he champed at the bit in the grip of an intense homesickness that could be cured only by our escape sir he told me that day it's got to stop i want to get to the bottom of this your nemo's veering away from shore and heading up north but believe you me i had my fill at the south pole and i'm not going with him to the north pole what can we do ned since it isn't feasible to escape right now i keep coming back to my idea we've got to talk to the captain when we were in your own country's seas you didn't say a word now that we're in mine i intend to speak up before a few days are out i figure the nautilus will lie abreast of nova scotia and from there to newfoundland is the mouth of a large gulf and the st lawrence empties into that gulf and the st lawrence is my own river the river running by quebec my hometown and when i think about all this my gorge rises and my hair stands on end honestly sir i'd rather jump overboard i can't stay here any longer i'm suffocating the canadian was obviously at the end of his patience his vigorous nature couldn't adapt to this protracted imprisonment his facial appearance was changing by the day his moods grew gloomier and gloomier i had a sense of what he was suffering because i also was gripped by homesickness nearly seven months had gone by without our having any news from shore moreover captain nemo's reclusiveness his changed disposition and especially his total silence since the battle with the devilfish all made me see things in a different light i no longer felt the enthusiasm of our first days on board you needed to be flemish like conseil to accept these circumstances living in a habitat designed for cetaceans and other denizens of the deep truly if that gallant lad had owned gills instead of lungs i think he would have made an outstanding fish well sir ned land went on seeing that i hadn't replied well ned you want me to ask captain nemo what he intends to do with us yes sir even though he's already made that clear yes i want it settled once and for all speak just for me strictly on my behalf if you want but i rarely encounter him he positively avoids me all the more reason you should go look him up i'll confer with him ned when the canadian asked insistently when i encounter him professor aronnax would you like me to go find him myself no let me do it tomorrow today ned land said so be it i'll see him today i answered the canadian who if he took action himself would certainly have ruined everything i was left to myself his request granted i decided to dispose of it immediately i like things over and done with i re-entered my stateroom from there i could hear movements inside captain nemo's quarters i couldn't pass up this chance for an encounter i knocked on his door 
i received no reply i knocked again then tried the knob the door opened i entered the captain was there he was bending over his work table and hadn't heard me determined not to leave without questioning him i drew closer he looked up sharply with a frowning brow and said in a pretty stern tone oh it's you what do you want to speak with you captain but i'm busy sir i'm at work i give you the freedom to enjoy your privacy can't i have the same for myself this reception was less than encouraging but i was determined to give as good as i got sir i said coolly i need to speak with you on a matter that simply can't wait whatever could that be sir he replied sarcastically have you made some discovery that has escaped me has the sea yielded up some novel secret to you we were miles apart but before i could reply he showed me a manuscript open on the table and told me in a more serious tone here professor aronnax is a manuscript written in several languages it contains a summary of my research under the sea and god willing it won't perish with me signed with my name complete with my life story this manuscript will be enclosed in a small unsinkable contrivance the last surviving man on the nautilus will throw this contrivance into the sea and it will go wherever the waves carry it the man's name his life story written by himself so the secret of his existence might some day be unveiled but just then i saw this announcement only as a lead-in to my topic captain i replied i'm all praise for this idea you're putting into effect the fruits of your research must not be lost but the methods you're using strike me as primitive who knows where the winds will take that contrivance into whose hands it may fall can't you find something better can't you or one of your men never sir the captain said swiftly interrupting me but my companions and i would be willing to safeguard this manuscript and if you give us back our freedom your freedom captain nemo put in standing up yes sir and that's the subject on which i wanted to confer with you for seven months we've been aboard your vessel and i ask you today in the name of my companions as well as myself if you intend to keep us here forever professor aronnax captain nemo said i'll answer you today just as i did seven months ago whomever boards the nautilus must never leave it what you're inflicting on us is outright slavery call it anything you like but every slave has the right to recover his freedom by any worthwhile available means who has denied you that right captain nemo replied did i ever try to bind you with your word of honor the captain stared at me crossing his arms sir i told him to take up this subject a second time would be distasteful to both of us so let's finish what we've started i repeat it isn't just for myself that i raise this issue to me research is a relief a potent diversion an enticement a passion that can make me forget everything else like you i'm a man neglected and unknown living in the faint hope that some day i can pass on to future generations the fruits of my labors figuratively speaking by means of some contrivance left to the luck of winds and waves in short i can admire you and comfortably go with you while playing a role i only partly understand but i still catch glimpses of other aspects of your life that are surrounded by involvements and secrets that alone on board my companions and i can't share and even when our hearts could beat with yours moved by some of your griefs or stirred by your deeds of courage and genius 
we've had to stifle even the slightest token of that sympathy that arises at the sight of something fine and good whether it comes from friend or enemy all right then it's this feeling of being alien to your deepest concerns that makes our situation unacceptable impossible even impossible for me but especially for ned land every man by virtue of his very humanity deserves fair treatment have you considered how a love of freedom and hatred of slavery could lead to plans of vengeance in a temperament like the canadian's what he might think attempt endeavor i fell silent captain nemo stood up ned land can think attempt or endeavor anything he wants what difference is it to me i didn't go looking for him i don't keep him on board for my pleasure as for you professor aronnax you're a man able to understand anything even silence i have nothing more to say to you let this first time you've come to discuss this subject also be the last because a second time i won't even listen i withdrew from that day forward our position was very strained i reported this conversation to my two companions now we know ned land said that we can't expect a thing from this man the nautilus is nearing long island we'll escape no matter what the weather but the skies became more and more threatening there were conspicuous signs of a hurricane on the way the atmosphere was turning white and milky slender sheaves of cirrus clouds were followed on the horizon by layers of nimbocumulus other low clouds fled swiftly the sea grew towering inflated by long swells every bird had disappeared except a few petrels friends of the storms the barometer fell significantly indicating a tremendous tension in the surrounding haze the mixture in our storm glass decomposed under the influence of the electricity charging the air a struggle of the elements was approaching the storm burst during the daytime of may thirteen just as the nautilus was cruising abreast of long island a few miles from the narrows to upper new york bay i am able to describe this struggle of the elements because captain nemo didn't flee into the ocean depths instead from some inexplicable whim he decided to brave it out on the surface the wind was blowing from the southwest initially a stiff breeze in other words with a speed of fifteen meters per second which built to twenty-five meters near three o'clock in the afternoon this is the figure for major storms unshaken by these squalls captain nemo stationed himself on the platform he was lashed around the waist to withstand the monstrous breakers foaming over the deck i hoisted and attached myself to the same place dividing my wonderment between the storm and this incomparable man who faced it head-on the raging sea was swept with huge tattered clouds drenched by the waves i saw no more of the small intervening billows that form in the troughs of the big crests just long soot-colored undulations with crests so compact they didn't foam they kept growing taller they were spurring each other on the nautilus sometimes lying on its side sometimes standing on end like a mast rolled and pitched frightfully near five o'clock a torrential rain fell but it lulled neither wind nor sea the hurricane was unleashed at a speed of forty-five meters per second hence almost forty leagues per hour under these conditions houses topple 
roof tiles puncture doors iron railings snap in two and twenty-four pounder cannons relocate and yet in the midst of this turmoil the nautilus lived up to that saying of an expert engineer a well-constructed hull can defy any sea this submersible was no resisting rock that waves could demolish it was a steel spindle obediently in motion without rigging or masting and able to brave their fury with impunity meanwhile i was carefully examining these unleashed breakers they measured up to fifteen meters in height over a length of one hundred and fifty to one hundred and seventy five meters and the speed of their propagation half that of the wind was fifteen meters per second their volume and power increased with the depth of the waters i then understood the role played by these waves which trap air in their flanks and release it in the depths of the sea where its oxygen brings life their utmost pressure it has been calculated can build to three thousand kilograms on every square foot of surface they strike it was such waves in the hebrides that repositioned a stone block weighing eighty four thousand pounds it was their relatives in the tidal wave on december twenty three eighteen fifty four that toppled part of the japanese city of tokyo then went that same day at seven hundred kilometers per hour to break on the beaches of america after nightfall the storm grew in intensity as in the eighteen sixty cyclone on reunion island the barometer fell to seven hundred and ten millimeters at the close of day i saw a big ship passing on the horizon struggling painfully it lay too at half steam in an effort to hold steady on the waves it must have been a steamer on one of those lines out of new york to liverpool or le havre it soon vanished into the shadows at ten o'clock in the evening the skies caught on fire the air was streaked with violent flashes of lightning i couldn't stand this brightness but captain nemo stared straight at it as if to inhale the spirit of the storm a dreadful noise filled the air a complicated noise made up of the roar of crashing breakers the howl of the wind claps of thunder the wind shifted to every point of the horizon and the cyclone left the east to return there after passing through north west and south moving in the opposite direction of revolving storms in the southern hemisphere oh that gulf stream it truly lives up to its nickname the lord of storms all by itself it creates these fearsome cyclones through the difference in temperature between its currents and the superimposed layers of air the rain was followed by a downpour of fire droplets of water changed into exploding tufts you would have thought captain nemo was courting a death worthy of himself seeking to be struck by lightning in one hideous pitching movement the nautilus reared its steel spur into the air like a lightning rod and i saw long sparks shoot down it shattered at the end of my strength i slid flat on my belly to the hatch i opened it and went below to the lounge by then the storm had reached its maximum intensity it was impossible to stand upright inside the nautilus captain nemo re-entered near midnight i could hear the ballast tanks filling little by little and the nautilus sank gently beneath the surface of the waves through the lounge's open windows i saw large frightened fish passing like phantoms in the fiery waters some were struck by lightning right before my eyes the nautilus kept descending i thought it would find calm again at fifteen meters down no 
the upper strata was too violently agitated it needed to sink to fifty meters searching for a resting place in the bowels of the sea but once there what tranquility we found what silence what peace all around us who would have known that a dreadful hurricane was then unleashed on the surface of this ocean end of part two chapter nineteen Part 2, Chapter 20 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 20 In latitude 47 degrees 24 minutes and longitude 17 degrees 28 minutes in the aftermath of this storm we were thrown back to the east away went any hope of escaping to the landing places of new york or the st lawrence in despair poor ned went into seclusion like captain nemo conseil and i no longer left each other as i said the nautilus veered to the east to be more accurate i should have said to the northeast sometimes on the surface of the waves sometimes beneath them the ship wandered for days amid these mists so feared by navigators these are caused chiefly by melting ice which keeps the air extremely damp how many ships have perished in these waterways as they tried to get directions from the hazy lights on the coast how many casualties have been caused by these opaque mists how many collisions have occurred with these reefs where the breaking surf is covered by the noise of the wind how many vessels have rammed each other despite their running lights despite the warnings given by their bosun's pipes and alarm bells so the floor of this sea had the appearance of a battlefield where every ship defeated by the ocean still lay some already old and encrusted others newer and reflecting our beacon light on their ironwork and copper undersides among these vessels how many went down with all hands with their crews and hosts of immigrants at these trouble spots so prominent in the statistics cape race st paul island the strait of belle isle the st lawrence estuary and in only a few years how many victims have been furnished to the obituary notices by the royal mail inman and montreal lines by vessels named the solway the isis the paramata the hungarian the canadian the anglo-saxon the humboldt and the united states all run aground by the arctic and the lyonnaise sunk in collisions by the president the pacific and the city of glasgow lost for reasons unknown in the midst of their gloomy rubble the nautilus navigated as if passing the dead in review by may fifteen we were off the southern tip of the grand banks of newfoundland these banks are the result of marine sedimentation an extensive accumulation of organic waste brought either from the equator by the gulf stream's current or from the north pole by the countercurrent of cold water that skirts the american coast here too erratically drifting chunks collect from the ice breakup here a huge boneyard forms from fish mollusks and zoophytes dying over it by the billions the sea is of no great depth at the grand banks a few hundred fathoms at best 
but to the south there is a deep suddenly occurring depression a three thousand meter pit here the gulf stream widens its waters come to full bloom it loses its speed and temperature but it turns into a sea among the fish that the nautilus startled on its way i'll mention a one-meter lump fish blackish on top with orange on the belly and rare among its brethren in that it practices monogamy a good-sized eel pout a type of emerald moray whose flavor is excellent wolf fish with big eyes and a head somewhat resembling a canine's viviparous blennies whose eggs hatch inside their bodies like those of snakes bloated gobio or black gudgeon measuring two decimeters grenadiers with long tails and gleaming with a silvery glow speedy fish venturing far from their high arctic seas our nets also hauled in a bold daring vigorous and muscular fish armed with prickles on its head and stings on its fins a real scorpion measuring two to three meters the ruthless enemy of cod blennies and salmon it was the bullhead of the northerly seas a fish with red fins and a brown body covered with nodules the nautilus's fishermen had some trouble getting a grip on this animal which thanks to the formation of its gill covers can protect its respiratory organs from any parching contact with the air and can live out of water for a good while and i'll mention for the record some little banded blennies that follow ships into the northernmost seas sharp-snouted carp exclusive to the north atlantic scorpion fish and lastly the gadoid family chiefly the cod species which i detected in their waters of choice over these inexhaustible grand banks because newfoundland is simply an underwater peak you could call these cod mountain fish while the nautilus was clearing a path through their tight ranks conseil couldn't refrain from making this comment mercy look at these cod he said why i thought cod were flat like dab or sole innocent boy i exclaimed cod are flat only at the grocery store where they're cut open and spread out on display but in the water they're like mullet spindle-shaped and perfectly built for speed i can easily believe master conseil replied but what crowds of them what swarms bah my friend there'd be many more without their enemies scorpion fish and human beings do you know how many eggs have been counted in a single female i'll go all out conseil replied five hundred thousand eleven million my friend eleven million I refuse to accept that until I count them myself. So count them, Conseil, but it will be less work to believe me. Besides, Frenchmen, Englishmen, Americans, Danes, and Norwegian catch these cod by the thousands. They're eaten in prodigious quantities, and without the astonishing fertility of these fish, the seas would soon be depopulated of them. Accordingly, in England and America alone, five thousand ships manned by seventy-five thousand seamen go after cod each ship brings back an average catch of forty-four hundred fish making twenty-two million off the coast of norway the total is the same fine conseil replied i'll take master's word for it i won't count them count what 
those eleven million eggs but i'll make one comment what's that if all their eggs hatched just four codfish could feed england america and norway as we skimmed the depths of the grand banks i could see perfectly those long fishing lines each armed with two hundred hooks that every boat dangled by the dozens the lower end of each line dragged the bottom by means of a small grappling iron and at the surface it was secured to the buoy rope of a cork float the nautilus had to maneuver shrewdly in the midst of this underwater spider web but the ship didn't stay long in these heavily traveled waterways it went up to about latitude 42 degrees this brought it abreast of st john's in newfoundland and heart's content where the atlantic cable reaches its end point instead of continuing north the nautilus took an easterly heading as if to go along this plateau on which the telegraph cable rests where multiple soundings have given the contours of the terrain with the utmost accuracy it was on may 17 about 500 miles from heart's content and 2800 meters down that i spotted this cable lying on the seafloor conseil whom i hadn't alerted mistook it at first for a gigantic sea snake and was gearing up to classify it in his best manner but i enlightened the fine lad and led him down gently by giving him various details on the laying of this cable the first cable was put down during the years eighteen fifty seven through eighteen fifty eight but after transmitting about four hundred telegrams it went dead in eighteen sixty three engineers built a new cable that measured three thousand four hundred kilometers weighed four thousand five hundred metric tons and was shipped aboard the great eastern this attempt also failed now then on may twenty fifth while submerged to a depth of three thousand eight hundred thirty six meters the nautilus lay in precisely the locality where this second cable suffered the rupture that ruined the undertaking it happened six hundred and thirty eight miles from the coast of ireland at around two o'clock in the afternoon all contact with europe broke off the electricians on board decided to cut the cable before fishing it up and by eleven o'clock that evening they had retrieved the damaged part they repaired the joint and its splice then the cable was resubmerged but a few days later it snapped again and couldn't be recovered from the ocean depths these americans refused to give up the daring cyrus field who had risked his whole fortune to promote this undertaking called for a new bond issue it sold out immediately another cable was put down under better conditions its sheaves of conducting wire were insulated within a gutta percha covering which was protected by a padding of textile material enclosed in a metal sheath the great eastern put back to sea on july thirteenth eighteen sixty six the operation proceeded apace yet there was one hitch as they gradually unrolled this third cable the electricians observed on several occasions that someone had recently driven nails into it trying to damage its core captain anderson his officers and the engineers put their heads together then posted a warning that if the culprit were detected he would be thrown overboard without a trial after that these villainous attempts were not repeated by july twenty three the great eastern was lying no farther than eight hundred kilometers from newfoundland when it received telegraphed news from ireland of an armistice signed between prussia and austria after the battle of sadova 
through the mists on the twenty seventh it sighted the port of heart's content the undertaking had ended happily and in its first dispatch young america addressed old europe with these wise words so rarely understood glory to god in the highest and peace on earth to men of good will i didn't expect to find this electric cable in mint condition as it looked on leaving its place of manufacture the long snake was covered with seashell rubble and bristling with foraminifera a crust of caked gravel protected it from any mollusks that might bore into it it rested serenely sheltered from the sea's motions under a pressure favorable to the transmission of that electric spark that goes from america to europe in thirty-two one-hundredths of a second this cable will no doubt last indefinitely because as observers note its gutta-percha casing is improved by a stay in salt water besides on this well-chosen plateau the cable never lies at depths that could cause a break the nautilus followed it to its lowest reaches located four thousand four hundred and thirty one meters down and even there it rested without any stress or strain then we returned to the locality where the eighteen sixty three accident had taken place there the ocean floor formed a valley one hundred and twenty kilometers wide into which you could fit mont blanc without its summit poking above the surface of the waves this valley is closed off to the east by a sheer wall two thousand meters high we arrived there on may twenty eighth and the nautilus lay no farther than one hundred and fifty kilometers from ireland would captain nemo head up north and beach us on the british isles no much to my surprise he went back down south and returned to european seas as we swung around the emerald isle i spotted cape clear for an instant plus the lighthouse on fastnet rock that guides all those thousands of ships setting out from glasgow or liverpool an important question then popped into my head would the nautilus dare to tackle the english channel ned land who promptly reappeared after we hugged shore never stopped questioning me what could i answer him captain nemo remained invisible after giving the canadian a glimpse of american shores was he about to show me the coast of france but the nautilus kept gravitating southward on may thirty in sight of land's end it passed between the lowermost tip of england and the scilly islands which it left behind to starboard if it was going to enter the english channel it clearly needed to head east it did not all day long on may thirty one the nautilus swept around the sea in a series of circles that had me deeply puzzled it seemed to be searching for a locality that it had some trouble finding at noon captain nemo himself came to take our bearings he didn't address a word to me he looked gloomier than ever what was filling him with such sadness was it our proximity to these european shores was he reliving his memories of that country he had left behind if so what did he feel remorse or regret for a good while these thoughts occupied my mind and i had a hunch that fate would soon give away the captain's secrets the next day june first the nautilus kept to the same tack it was obviously trying to locate some precise spot in the ocean just as on the day before captain nemo came to take the altitude of the sun the sea was smooth the skies clear 
eight miles to the east a big steamship was visible on the horizon line no flag was flapping from the gaff of its fore and aft sail and i couldn't tell its nationality a few minutes before the sun passed its zenith captain nemo raised his sextant and took his sights with the utmost precision the absolute calm of the waves facilitated this operation the nautilus lay motionless neither rolling nor pitching i was on the platform just then after determining our position the captain pronounced only these words it's right here he went down the hatch had he seen that vessel change course and seemingly head toward us i'm unable to say i returned to the lounge the hatch closed and i heard water hissing in the ballast tanks the nautilus began to sink on a vertical line because its propeller was in check and no longer furnished any forward motion some minutes later it stopped at a depth of eight hundred and thirty three meters and came to rest on the sea floor the ceiling lights in the lounge then went out the panels opened and through the windows i saw for a half-mile radius the sea brightly lit by the beacon's rays i looked to port and saw nothing but the immenseness of these tranquil waters to starboard a prominent bulge on the sea bottom caught my attention you would have thought it was some ruin enshrouded in a crust of whitened seashells as if under a mantle of snow carefully examining this mass i could identify the swollen outlines of a ship shorn of its masts which must have sunk bow first this casualty certainly dated from some far-off time to be so caked with the limestone of these waters this wreckage must have spent many a year on the ocean floor what ship was this why had the nautilus come to visit its grave was it something other than a maritime accident that had dragged this craft under the waters i wasn't sure what to think but next to me i heard captain nemo's voice slowly saying originally this ship was christened the marseillaise it carried seventy-four cannons and was launched in seventeen sixty two on august thirteenth seventeen seventy eight commanded by le poep vertrio it fought valiantly against the preston on july fourth seventeen seventy nine as a member of the squadron under admiral d'estaing it assisted in the capture of the island of granada on september five seventeen eighty one under the count de grasse it took part in the battle of chesapeake bay in seventeen ninety four the new republic of france changed the name of this ship on april sixteenth of that same year it joined the squadron at brest under rear admiral villarette de joyeuse who was entrusted with escorting a convoy of wheat coming from america under the command of admiral van stabel in this second year of the french revolutionary calendar on the eleventh and twelfth days in the month of pasture this squadron fought an encounter with english vessels sir today is june first eighteen sixty eight or the thirteenth day in the month of pasture seventy-four years ago to the day at this very spot in latitude forty-seven degrees twenty-four minutes and longitude seventeen degrees twenty-eight minutes this ship sank after a heroic battle its three masts gone water in its hold a third of its crew out of action it preferred to go to the bottom with its three hundred and fifty-six seamen rather than surrender 
and with its flag nailed up on the afterdeck, it disappeared beneath the waves to shouts of, Long live the Republic. This is the Avenger, I exclaimed. Yes, sir, the Avenger. A splendid name, Captain Nemo murmured, crossing his arms. End of Part 2, Chapter 20《Part Two, Chapter Twenty One of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Twenty One A Mass Execution. The way he said this, the unexpectedness of this scene, first the biography of this patriotic ship then the excitement with which this eccentric individual pronounced these last words the name avenger whose significance could not escape me all this taken together had a profound impact on my mind my eyes never left the captain hands outstretched toward the sea he contemplated the proud wreck with blazing eyes Perhaps I would never learn who he was, where he came from, or where he was heading, but more and more I could see a distinction between the man and the scientist. It was no ordinary misanthropy that kept Captain Nemo and his companions sequestered inside the Nautilus's plating, but a hate so monstrous or so sublime that the passing years could never weaken it. Did this hate also hunger for vengeance? Time would soon tell. Meanwhile, the Nautilus rose slowly to the surface of the sea, and I watched the Avenger's murky shape disappearing little by little. Soon a gentle rolling told me that we were afloat in the open air. Just then a hollow explosion was audible. I looked at the captain. The captain did not stir. Captain, I said. He didn't reply. I left him and climbed onto the platform. Conseil and the Canadian were already there. What caused that explosion? I asked. A cannon going off, Ned Land replied. I stared in the direction of the ship I had spotted. It was heading toward the Nautilus, and you could tell it had put on steam. Six miles separated it from us. What sort of craft is it, Ned? From its rigging and its low masts, the Canadian replied. I bet it's a warship. Here's hoping it pulls up and sinks this damned Nautilus. Ned, my friend, Conseil replied, what harm could it do the Nautilus? Will it attack us under the waves? Will it cannonade us at the bottom of the sea? Tell me, Ned, I asked, can you make out the nationality of that craft? Creasing his brow, lowering his lids, and puckering the corners of his eyes, the Canadian focused the full power of his gaze on the ship for a short while. No, sir, he replied. I can't make out what nation it's from. It's flying no flag, but I'll swear it's a warship because there's a long pennant streaming from the peak of its mainmast. For a quarter of an hour we continued to watch the craft bearing down on us, but it was inconceivable to me that it had discovered the Nautilus at such a distance, still less that it knew what this underwater machine really was. Soon the Canadian announced that the craft was a big battleship, a double-decker ironclad complete with ram. 
dark, dense smoke burst from its two funnels, its furled sails merged with the lines of its yardarms. The gaff of its fore and aft sail flew no flag. Its distance still kept us from distinguishing the colors of its pennant, which was fluttering like a thin ribbon. It was coming on fast. If Captain Nemo let it approach, a chance for salvation might be available to us. Sir, Ned Land told me, if that boat gets within a mile of us, I'm jumping overboard, and I suggest you follow suit. I didn't reply to the Canadian's proposition, but kept watching the ship, which was looming larger on the horizon. Whether it was English, French, American, or Russian, it would surely welcome us aboard if we could just get to it. Master may recall, Conseil then said, that we have some experience with swimming. He can rely on me to tow him to that vessel, if he's agreeable to going with our friend Ned. Before I could reply, white smoke streamed from the battleship's bow. Then, a few seconds later, the waters splashed astern of the Nautilus, disturbed by the fall of a heavy object. Soon after, an explosion struck my ears. "'What's this? They're firing at us!' I exclaimed. "'Good lads!' the Canadian muttered. That means they don't see us as castaways clinging to some wreckage. With all due respect to Master, gracious, Conseil put in, shaking off the water that had sprayed over him from another shell. With all due respect to Master, they've discovered the narwhal and they're cannonading the same. But it must be clear to them, I exclaimed, that they're dealing with human beings. Maybe that's why, Ned Land replied, staring hard at me. The full truth dawned on me. Undoubtedly, people now knew where they stood on the existence of this so-called monster. Undoubtedly, the latter's encounter with the Abraham Lincoln, when the Canadian hit it with his harpoon, had led Commander Farragut to recognize the narwhal as actually an underwater boat, more dangerous than any unearthly cetacean. Yes, this had to be the case and undoubtedly they were now chasing this dreadful engine of destruction on every sea. Dreadful indeed, if, as we could assume, Captain Nemo had been using the Nautilus in works of vengeance. That night in the middle of the Indian Ocean, when he imprisoned us in the cell, hadn't he attacked some ship? That man now buried in the Coral Cemetery, wasn't he the victim of some collision caused by the Nautilus? Yes, I repeat, this had to be the case. One part of Captain Nemo's secret life had been unveiled. And now, even though his identity was still unknown, at least the nations allied against him knew they were no longer hunting some fairy tale monster, but a man who had sworn an implacable hate toward them. This whole fearsome sequence of events appeared in my mind's eye. Instead of encountering friends on this approaching ship, we would find only pitiless enemies. Meanwhile, shells fell around us in increasing numbers. Some, meeting the liquid surface, would ricochet and vanish into the sea at considerable distances, but none of them reached the Nautilus. By then, the ironclad was no more than three miles off. Despite its violent cannonade, Captain Nemo hadn't appeared on the platform, and yet if one of those conical shells had scored a routine hit on the Nautilus's hull, it could have been fatal to him. The Canadian then told me, Sir, we've got to do everything we can to get out of this jam. Let's signal them. Damnation! Maybe they'll realize we're decent people. Ned Land pulled out his handkerchief to wave it in the air, 
but he had barely unfolded it when he was felled by an iron fist and despite his great strength he tumbled to the deck scum the captain shouted do you want to be nailed to the nautilus's spur before it charges that ship dreadful to hear captain nemo was even more dreadful to see his face was pale from some spasm of his heart which must have stopped beating for an instant his pupils were hideously contracted his voice was no longer speaking it was bellowing bending from the waist he shook the canadian by the shoulders then dropping ned and turning to the battleship whose shells were showering around him oh ship of an accursed nation you know who i am he shouted in his powerful voice and i don't need your colors to recognize you look i'll show you mine and in the bow of the platform captain nemo unfurled a black flag like the one he had left planted at the south pole just then a shell hit the nautilus's hull obliquely failed to breach it ricocheted near the captain and vanished into the sea captain nemo shrugged his shoulders then addressing me go below he told me in a curt tone you and your companions go below sir i exclaimed are you going to attack the ship sir i am going to sink it you wouldn't i will captain nemo replied icily you're ill-advised to pass judgment on me sir fate has shown you what you weren't meant to see the attack has come our reply will be dreadful get back inside from what country is that ship you don't know fine so much the better at least its nationality will remain a secret to you go below the canadian conseil and i could only obey some fifteen of the nautilus's seamen surrounded their captain and stared with a feeling of implacable hate at the ship bearing down on them you could feel the same spirit of vengeance enkindling their very soul i went below just as another projectile scraped the nautilus's hull and i heard the captain exclaim shoot you demented vessel shower your futile shells you won't escape the nautilus's spur but this isn't the place where you'll perish i don't want your wreckage mingling with that of the avenger i repaired to my stateroom the captain and his chief officer stayed on the platform the propeller was set in motion the nautilus swiftly retreated putting us outside the range of the vessel's shells but the chase continued and captain nemo was content to keep his distance near four o'clock in the afternoon unable to control the impatience and uneasiness devouring me i went back to the central companionway the hatch was open i ventured onto the platform the captain was still strolling there his steps agitated he stared at the ship which stayed to his leeward five or six miles off he was circling it like a wild beast drawing it eastward letting it chase after him yet he didn't attack was he perhaps still undecided i tried to intervene one last time but i had barely queried captain nemo when the latter silenced me i'm the law i'm the tribunal i'm the oppressed and there are my oppressors thanks to them i've witnessed the destruction of everything i loved cherished and venerated homeland wife children father and mother there lies everything i hate not another word out of you i took a last look at the battleship which was putting on steam then i rejoined ned and conseil we'll escape i exclaimed 
good ned put in where's that ship from i've no idea but wherever it's from it will sink before nightfall in any event it's better to perish with it than be accomplices in some act of vengeance whose merits we can't gauge that's my feeling ned land replied coolly let's wait for nightfall night fell a profound silence reigned on board the compass indicated that the nautilus hadn't changed direction i could hear the beat of its propeller churning the waves with steady speed staying on the surface of the water it rolled gently sometimes to one side sometimes to the other my companions and i had decided to escape as soon as the vessel came close enough for us to be heard or seen because the moon would wax full in three days and was shining brightly once we were aboard that ship if we couldn't ward off the blow that threatened it at least we could do everything that circumstances permitted several times i thought the nautilus was about to attack but it was content to let its adversary approach and then it would quickly resume its retreating ways part of the night passed without incident we kept watch for an opportunity to take action we talked little being too keyed up ned land was all for jumping overboard i forced him to wait as i saw it the nautilus would attack the double-decker on the surface of the waves and then it would be not only possible but easy to escape at three o'clock in the morning full of uneasiness i climbed onto the platform captain nemo hadn't left it he stood in the bow next to his flag which a mild breeze was unfurling above his head his eyes never left that vessel the extraordinary intensity of his gaze seemed to attract it beguile it and draw it more surely than if he had it in tow the moon then passed its zenith jupiter was rising in the east in the midst of this placid natural setting sky and ocean competed with each other in tranquillity and the sea offered the orb of night the loveliest mirror ever to reflect its image and when i compared this deep calm of the elements with all the fury seething inside the plating of this barely perceptible nautilus i shivered all over the vessel was two miles off it drew nearer always moving toward the phosphorescent glow that signaled the nautilus's presence i saw its green and red running lights plus the white lantern hanging from the large stay of its foremast hazy flickerings were reflected on its rigging and indicated that its furnaces were pushed to the limit showers of sparks and cinders of flaming coal escaped from its funnels spangling the air with stars i stood there until six o'clock in the morning captain nemo never seeming to notice me the vessel lay a mile and a half off and with the first glimmers of daylight it resumed its cannonade the time couldn't be far away when the nautilus would attack its adversary and my companions and i would leave forever this man i dared not judge i was about to go below to alert them when the chief officer climbed onto the platform several seamen were with him captain nemo didn't see them or didn't want to see them they carried out certain procedures that on the nautilus you could call clearing the decks for action they were quite simple the man ropes that formed a handrail around the platform were lowered likewise the pilot house and the beacon housing were withdrawn into the hull until they lay exactly flush with it the surface of this long sheet iron cigar no longer offered a single protrusion that could hamper its maneuvers i returned to the lounge 
the nautilus still emerged above the surface a few morning gleams infiltrated the liquid strata beneath the undulations of the billows the windows were enlivened by the blushing of the rising sun that dreadful day of june too had dawned at seven o'clock the log told me that the nautilus had reduced speed i realized that it was letting the warship approach moreover the explosions grew more intensely audible shells furrowed the water around us drilling through it with an odd hissing sound my friends i said it's time let's shake hands and may god be with us ned land was determined conseil calm i myself nervous and barely in control we went into the library just as i pushed open the door leading to the well of the central companionway i heard the hatch close sharply overhead the canadian leaped up the steps but i stopped him a well-known hissing told me that water was entering the ship's ballast tanks indeed in a few moments the nautilus had submerged some meters below the surface of the waves i understood this maneuver it was too late to take action the nautilus wasn't going to strike the double-decker where it was clad in impenetrable iron armor but below its waterline where the metal carapace no longer protected its planking we were prisoners once more unwilling spectators at the performance of this gruesome drama but we barely had time to think taking refuge in my stateroom we stared at each other without pronouncing a word my mind was in a total daze my mental processes came to a dead stop i hovered in that painful state that predominates during the period of anticipation before some frightful explosion i waited i listened i lived only through my sense of hearing meanwhile the nautilus's speed had increased appreciably so it was gathering momentum its entire hull was vibrating suddenly i let out a yell there had been a collision but it was comparatively mild i could feel the penetrating force of the steel spur i could hear scratchings and scrapings carried away with its driving power the nautilus had passed through the vessel's mass like a sailmaker's needle through canvas i couldn't hold still frantic going insane i leaped out of my stateroom and rushed into the lounge captain nemo was there mute gloomy implacable he was staring through the port panel an enormous mass was sinking beneath the waters and the nautilus missing none of its death throes was descending into the depths with it ten meters away i could see its gaping hull into which water was rushing with a sound of thunder then its double rows of cannons and railings its deck was covered with dark quivering shadows the water was rising those poor men leaped up into the shrouds clung to the masts writhed beneath the waters it was a human anthill that an invading sea had caught by surprise paralyzed rigid with anguish my hair standing on end my eyes popping out of my head short of breath suffocating speechless i stared i too i was glued to the window by an irresistible allure the enormous vessel settled slowly following it down the nautilus kept watch on its every movement suddenly there was an eruption the air compressed inside the craft sent its decks flying as if the powder stores had been ignited the thrust of the waters was so great the nautilus swerved away 
the poor ship then sank more swiftly its mastheads appeared laden with victims then its cross trees bending under clusters of men finally the peak of its mainmast then the dark mass disappeared and with it a crew of corpses dragged under by fearsome eddies i turned to captain nemo this dreadful executioner this true archangel of hate was still staring when it was all over captain nemo headed to the door of his stateroom opened it and entered i followed him with my eyes on the rear paneling beneath the portraits of his heroes i saw the portrait of a still youthful woman with two little children captain nemo stared at them for a few moments stretched out his arms to them sank to his knees and melted into sobs End of Part 2, Chapter 21Part 2, Chapter 22 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea An Underwater Tour of the World by Jules Verne This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana Chapter 22 the last words of captain nemo the panels closed over this frightful view but the lights didn't go on in the lounge inside the nautilus all was gloom and silence it left this place of devastation with prodigious speed 100 feet beneath the waters where was it going north or south where would the man flee after this horrible act of revenge I re-entered my stateroom, where Ned and Conseil were waiting silently. Captain Nemo filled me with insurmountable horror. Whatever he had once suffered at the hands of humanity, he had no right to mete out such punishment. He had made me, if not an accomplice, at least an eyewitness to his vengeance. Even this was intolerable. At eleven o'clock, the electric lights came back on. I went into the lounge. It was deserted. I consulted the various instruments. The Nautilus was fleeing northward at a speed of twenty-five miles per hour, sometimes on the surface of the sea, sometimes thirty feet beneath it. After our position had been marked on the chart, I saw that we were passing into the mouth of the English Channel, that our heading would take us to the northernmost seas with incomparable speed. I could barely glimpse the swift passing of long-nosed sharks, hammerhead sharks, spotted dogfish that frequent these waters, big eagle rays, swarms of seahorse looking like knights on a chessboard, eels quivering like fireworks serpents, armies of crab that fled obliquely by crossing their pincers over their carapaces, finally schools of porpoise that held contests of speed with the nautilus but by this point observing studying and classifying were out of the question by evening we had cleared two hundred leagues up the atlantic shadows gathered and gloom overran the sea until the moon came up i repaired to my stateroom i couldn't sleep i was assaulted by nightmares that horrible scene of destruction kept repeating in my mind's eye from that day forward who knows where the nautilus took us in the north atlantic basin 
always at incalculable speed always amid the high arctic mists did it call at the capes of spitzbergen or the shores of novaya zemlya did it visit such uncharted seas as the white sea the kara sea the gulf of ob the lyakov islands or those unknown beaches on the siberian coast i'm unable to say i lost track of the passing hours time was in abeyance on the ship's clocks as happens in the polar regions it seemed that night and day no longer followed their normal sequence i felt myself being drawn into that strange domain where the overwrought imagination of edgar allan poe was at home like his fabled arthur gordon pym i expected any moment to see that quote, shrouded human figure very far larger in its proportions than any dweller among men end quote, thrown across the cataract that protects the outskirts of the pole i estimate but perhaps i'm mistaken that the nautilus's haphazard course continued for fifteen or twenty days and i'm not sure how long this would have gone on without the catastrophe that ended our voyage as for captain nemo he was no longer in the picture as for his chief officer the same applied not one crewman was visible for a single instant the nautilus cruised beneath the waters almost continuously when it rose briefly to the surface to renew our air the hatches opened and closed as if automated no more positions were reported on the world map i didn't know where we were i'll also mention that the canadian at the end of his strength and patience made no further appearances conseil couldn't coax a single word out of him and feared that in a fit of delirium while under the sway of ghastly homesickness ned would kill himself so he kept a devoted watch on his friend every instant you can appreciate that under these conditions our situation had become untenable one morning whose date i'm unable to specify i was slumbering near the first hours of daylight a painful sickly slumber waking up i saw ned land leaning over me and i heard him tell me in a low voice we're going to escape i sat up when i asked tonight there doesn't seem to be any supervision left on the nautilus you'd think a total daze was raining on board will you be ready sir yes where are we in sight of land i saw it through the mists just this morning twenty miles to the east what land is it i've no idea but whatever it is there we'll take refuge yes ned we'll escape tonight even if the sea swallows us up the sea's rough the wind's blowing hard but a twenty-five mile run in the nautilus's nimble longboat doesn't scare me unknown to the crew i've stowed some food and flasks of water inside i'm with you what's more the canadian added if they catch me i'll defend myself i'll fight to the death then we'll die together ned my friend my mind was made up the canadian left me i went out on the platform where i could barely stand upright against the jolts of the billows the skies were threatening but land lay inside those dense mists and we had to escape not a single day not even a single hour could we afford to lose i returned to the lounge 
dreading yet desiring an encounter with captain nemo wanting yet not wanting to see him what would i say to him how could i hide the involuntary horror he inspired in me no it was best not to meet him face to face best to try and forget him and yet how long that day seemed the last i would spend aboard the nautilus i was left to myself ned land and conseil avoided speaking to me afraid they would give themselves away at six o'clock i ate supper but i had no appetite despite my revulsion i forced it down wanting to keep my strength up at six thirty ned land entered my stateroom he told me we won't see each other again before we go at ten o'clock the moon won't be up yet we'll take advantage of the darkness come to the skiff conseil and i will be inside waiting for you the canadian left without giving me time to answer him i wanted to verify the nautilus's heading i made my way to the lounge we were racing north northeast with frightful speed fifty meters down i took one last look at the natural wonders and artistic treasures amassed in the museum this unrivaled collection doomed to perish some day in the depths of the seas together with its curator i wanted to establish one supreme impression in my mind i stayed there an hour basking in the aura of the ceiling lights passing in review the treasures shining in their glass cases then i returned to my stateroom there i dressed in sturdy seafaring clothes i gathered my notes and packed them tenderly about my person my heart was pounding mightily i couldn't curb its pulsations my anxiety and agitation would certainly have given me away if captain nemo had seen me what was he doing just then i listened at the door to his stateroom i heard the sound of footsteps captain nemo was inside he hadn't gone to bed with his every movement i imagined he would appear and ask me why i wanted to escape i felt in a perpetual state of alarm my imagination magnified this sensation the feeling became so acute i wondered whether it wouldn't be better to enter the captain's stateroom dare him face to face brave it out with word and deed it was an insane idea fortunately i controlled myself and stretched out on the bed to soothe my bodily agitation my nerves calmed a little but with my brain so aroused i did a swift review of my whole existence aboard the nautilus every pleasant or unpleasant incident that had crossed my path since i went overboard from the abraham lincoln the underwater hunting trip the tories strait our running aground the savages of papua the coral cemetery the suez passageway the island of santorini the cretan diver the bay of vigo atlantis the ice bank the south pole our imprisonment in the ice the battle with the devilfish the storm in the gulf stream the avenger and that horrible scene of the vessel sinking with its crew all these events passed before my eyes like backdrops unrolling upstage in a theater in this strange setting captain nemo then grew fantastically his features were accentuated taking on superhuman proportions he was no longer my equal he was the man of the waters the spirit of the seas 
by then it was nine-thirty i held my head in both hands to keep it from bursting i closed my eyes i no longer wanted to think a half hour still to wait a half hour of nightmares that could drive me insane just then i heard indistinct chords from the organ melancholy harmonies from some undefinable hymn actual pleadings from a soul trying to sever its earthly ties i listened with all my senses at once barely breathing immersed like captain nemo in this musical trance that was drawing him beyond the bounds of this world then a sudden thought terrified me captain nemo had left his stateroom he was in the same lounge i had to cross in order to escape there i would encounter him one last time he would see me perhaps speak to me one gesture from him could obliterate me a single word shackle me to his vessel even so ten o'clock was about to strike it was time to leave my stateroom and rejoin my companions i dared not hesitate even if captain nemo stood before me i opened the door cautiously but as it swung on its hinges it seemed to make a frightful noise this noise existed perhaps only in my imagination i crept forward through the nautilus's dark gangways pausing after each step to curb the pounding of my heart i arrived at the corner door of the lounge i opened it gently the lounge was plunged into profound darkness chords from the organ were reverberating faintly captain nemo was there he didn't see me even in broad daylight i doubt he would have noticed me so completely was he immersed in his trance i inched over the carpet avoiding the tiniest bump whose noise might give me away it took me five minutes to reach the door at the far end which led into the library i was about to open it when a gasp from captain nemo nailed me to the spot i realized that he was standing up i even got a glimpse of him because some rays of light from the library had filtered into the lounge he was coming toward me arms crossed silent not walking but gliding like a ghost his chest was heaving swelling with sobs and i heard him murmur these words the last of his to reach my ears oh almighty god enough enough was it a vow of repentance that had just escaped from this man's conscience frantic i rushed into the library i climbed the central companionway and going along the upper gangway i arrived at the skiff i went through the opening that had already given access to my two companions let's go let's go i exclaimed right away the canadian replied first ned land closed and bolted the opening cut into the nautilus's sheet iron using the monkey wrench he had with him after likewise closing the opening in the skiff the canadian began to unscrew the nuts still bolting us to the underwater boat suddenly a noise from the ship's interior became audible voices were answering each other hurriedly what was it had they spotted our escape i felt ned land sliding a dagger into my hand yes i muttered we know how to die the canadian paused in his work but one word twenty times repeated one dreadful word told me the reason for the agitation spreading aboard the nautilus we weren't the cause of the crew's concerns maelstrom maelstrom they were shouting the maelstrom 
could a more frightening name have rung in our ears under more frightening circumstances were we lying in the dangerous waterways off the norwegian coast was the nautilus being dragged into this whirlpool just as the skiff was about to detach from its plating as you know at the turn of the tide the waters confined between the pharaoh and lofoten islands rush out with irresistible violence they form a vortex from which no ship has ever been able to escape monstrous waves race together from every point on the horizon they form a whirlpool aptly called the ocean's navel whose attracting power extends a distance of fifteen kilometers it can suck down not only ships but whales and even polar bears from the northernmost regions this was where the nautilus had been sent accidentally or perhaps deliberately by its captain it was sweeping around in a spiral whose radius kept growing smaller and smaller the skiff still attached to the ship's plating was likewise carried around at dizzying speed i could feel a swirling i was experiencing that accompanying nausea that follows such continuous spinning motions we were in dread in the last stages of sheer horror our blood frozen in our veins our nerves numb drenched in cold sweat as if from the throes of dying and what a noise around our frail skiff what roars echoing from several miles away what crashes from the waters breaking against sharp rocks on the seafloor where the hardest objects are smashed where tree trunks are worn down and worked into a shaggy fur as norwegians express it what a predicament we were rocking frightfully the nautilus defended itself like a human being its steel muscles were cracking sometimes it stood on end the three of us along with it we've got to hold on tight ned said and screw the nuts down again if we can stay attached to the nautilus we can still make it he hadn't finished speaking when a cracking sound occurred the nuts gave way and ripped out of its socket the skiff was hurled like a stone from a sling into the midst of the vortex my head struck against an iron timber and with this violent shock i lost consciousness end of part two chapter twenty two part two chapter twenty three of twenty thousand leagues under the sea an underwater tour of the world by jules verne this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 23 Conclusion We come to the conclusion of this voyage under the seas. What happened that night? How the skiff escaped from the maelstrom's fearsome eddies? How Ned Land, Conseil, and I got out of that whirlpool? I am unable to say. But when I regained consciousness, I was lying in a fisherman's hut on one of the Lofoten Islands. My two companions, safe and sound, were at my bedside clasping my hands. We embraced each other heartily. Just now we can't even dream of returning to France. Travel between Upper Norway and the South is limited, so I have to wait for the arrival of a steamboat that provides bi-monthly service from North Cape so it is here among these gallant people who have taken us in that i'm reviewing my narrative of these adventures it is accurate 
not a fact has been omitted not a detail has been exaggerated it's the faithful record of this inconceivable expedition into an element now beyond human reach but where progress will some day make great inroads will anyone believe me i don't know ultimately it's unimportant what i can now assert is that i've earned the right to speak of these seas beneath which in less than ten months i've cleared twenty thousand leagues in this underwater tour of the world that has shown me so many wonders across the pacific the indian ocean the red sea the mediterranean the atlantic the southernmost and northernmost seas but what happened to the nautilus did it withstand the maelstrom's clutches is captain nemo alive is he still under the ocean pursuing his frightful program of revenge or did he stop after the latest mass execution will the waves some day deliver that manuscript that contains his full life story will i finally learn the man's name will the nationality of the stricken warship tell us the nationality of captain nemo i hope so i likewise hope that his powerful submersible has defeated the sea inside its most dreadful whirlpool that the nautilus has survived where so many ships have perished if this is the case and captain nemo still inhabits the ocean his adopted country may the hate be appeased in that fierce heart may the contemplation of so many wonders extinguish the spirit of vengeance in him may the executioner pass away and the scientist continue his peaceful exploration of the seas if his destiny is strange it's also sublime haven't i encompassed it myself didn't i lead ten months of this otherworldly existence thus to the question asked six thousand years ago in the book of ecclesiastes quote, who can fathom the soundless depths End quote two men out of all humanity have now earned the right to reply captain nemo and i end of part two chapter twenty two end of twenty thousand leagues under the sea an underwater tour of the world by jules verne first published in eighteen sixty nine this recording completed in October 2013 by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.